little town. Everyone's in lockdown. All alone, they remain at home. Little town full of little people waking up to say, "Stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home." There comes old Bernie and he's got corona. So why the heck is he outside? Walks around as though he's well. I've got corona. With a sanitizer gel, he's gonna get us all infected. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Why aren't you quarantined? I'm not sick. I'm just on my way to Costco to buy some toilet paper before we're out. That's and- nice, Sandy. The Purell. Hurry up. I've yet to see a reckless fool quite like her. Without a mask or gloves, she goes. In a grand princess, she's been. And she thinks no one had seen. She's gonna get us all infected. That is bad. Stay home. Of course. We're all in lockdown. Stay home. With you. At least six feet. They close our schools. It's now a ghost town. The song, so no, just fell eight hundred points. You again. Good morning, Albert. I'm done reading the book. Did you wash your hands? I don't remember. Is there anything new? Ha ha ha! I'm serious. Wash your hands. No worries. Okay, I'll take this one. Another Stephen King? Are you sure? I'm not feeling well. I've got a fever, terrible cough. I think I've got corona. Fine. Take the book. Just don't come near me. But sir. Don't touch me. Thank you. Thank you very much. And there she goes with runny nose and fever. She never covered when she sneezed. She forgets to wash her hands. Though she claims to comprehend the dangers of Corona, that is bad. No, the world isn't ending. This is just another flu. You see. Kind of pale, and her breathing seems to fade. Very different from the rest of us. She's nothing like the rest of us. She's gonna be the end of us as well. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on Saturday, April twenty fifth, two thousand twenty. 8.39 p.m. Pacific time is the time right now as we record this. It's also being broadcasted live, but uh, most of you I know are not listening live. We have an interesting show tonight, an unusual show. Usually this is just me and my co-hosts talking, mainly me to be honest. But what we usually don't have very much of here are guests. We have some call-ins, but we don't have guests that are scheduled to be on the show very often. It seems like the few times we do have guests, we seem to have two on in one night. I don't know how that always happens, but it seems like the rare guest appearance we get, then somebody else also wants to be a guest on the same night, coincidentally, and we end up with two guests the same night. That has happened again tonight. So we're going to have two guests early in the show. Very soon we're going to have on Eric Sheets Haber. He has been on once before. He's actually a regular listener to the show, and a lot of you know him, especially from the 2000s, from the uh, staking operation he had that was very well-known and successful. 
he came on and explained that whole thing last time. This time it'll be more of a just like a general conversation with him, what he's up to and his opinion about things and uh, what he's doing with poker, what he's doing with staking these days. Just kind of a visit with him. It's not a really uh, one-topic interview we're going to have. He's just going to come on because he listens and you guys know him and he'd like to come on again. Then at 11 o'clock, which uh, for those of you in the archives is about uh, two hours and 20 minutes into the show, we're going to have on Robbie Straczynski, who is the founder and uh, writer on Card Player Lifestyle. Now, this should not be this should not be confused with either Rounder Life, which is an awful publication that's pretty much controlled by Mike Possle, or Card Player Magazine, which is not an awful publication, but I've got a lot of problems with them because they took money from Lock Poker to promote them when they knew Lock Poker was a scam. So I don't like Card Player or Rounder Life, but I do like Card Player Lifestyle, despite its similarity to those two in name only. And Robbie Straczynski is actually a Jew who lives in Israel, so he's actually getting up in the morning to talk to us. He's going to be on 11 p.m. Pacific time, but it'll be 9 a.m. Israel time. And funny enough, I would have just left Israel and gotten back this morning if it were not for the coronavirus. So I would have just been there too, except he's still there. He lives there. And we're going to have him on to discuss Jews. Yes, we're going to discuss Jews with Robbie Strudinsky. He's a Jew. I'm a Jew. And something I've always noticed and talked about on the show, but never at length, is Jews in poker. And a lot of you don't realize that Jews are disproportionately represented in poker compared to the percentage of the population that we are in the U.S. We're a very, very small percentage of the U.S. population, and yet a decent-sized percentage of poker players in the U.S. And if you take out the Asian poker players, we're a very large percentage. Like if you look at the white poker players – there's a surprising number of Jews, a very surprisingly high percentage of Jews in poker. So we're going to discuss that. We'll talk about some prominent Jews in poker, and we'll talk about why this is. Why are there so many Jews in poker? And I thought that would be a good topic to talk to with a journalist who not only is a Jew, but sometimes incorporates Jewishness into his articles. So that will be our discussion with Robbie Straczynski tonight. Hard to say his name a little bit, though. He came on because of a weird reason. We actually had a a small Twitter, I don't want to say argument, but uh, we kind of went back and forth on Twitter a bit in a less than friendly manner. But then it was quickly resolved, and uh, then we decided that uh, it'd be great to have him on the show. It's not going to be a contentious interview, though. If you're hoping for that, that's not going to happen here. Friendly interview with both people. If you'd like to have someone come on here who will be a contentious interview, you can suggest people, and if they're willing to come on, I'll probably do it. I say probably because there's a few I I don't think I want to have on here, but for the most part, I'll have on almost anybody. Okay, so there's a free roll going on right now. If you liked last week's free roll, you'll like this week's because it's identical. Start at the exact same time on the exact same day of the week with the exact same prize pool. It's a $55 free roll. It is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen. You need a 
validated account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room and a separate account there from your main Poker Fraud Alert form account. So don't try to log in with that password. You need to understand the rules to qualify for the free money. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, and read and understand the rules. $30 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. Three people are responsible for the prize pool tonight. McAllen, 18, gave $10. He actually gave us for last week, but it was kind of last minute, and I was like, I don't feel like editing the post I made regarding the free roll prize pool, so I'm just going to leave it, just do it for the week of the 25th, so that's tonight. Landon Mark, the other $30 that he forfeited from June 14th for not claiming his prize, and Shoeshine Box, $25 from him. He is a poker dealer who has gotten over cancer and lived. So glad to see that. Very nice guy. He has dealt to me, I think, just about every year at the World Series, at least every year I can remember. Every year I had good luck when he dealt to me, except this year, on day five of the main. I've mentioned that before. But uh, that, that would have been the time to really get the luck. That, that would be the time. But it can't be perfect. Every once in a while he can deal to me and I won't get lucky. I didn't get unlucky with him there. I just pretty much didn't play many hands. The few I played, I just check-folded the flop. Okay, so uh, we're going to have Trader Ruski on tonight. We are going to have Vintage One on tonight, as we have recently. And uh, at 9 o'clock, which is in 15 minutes, we will call up Sheets. Hopefully we can reach him. There was uh, some doubt at one point whether he'd be on the show because his wife is sick. And he said he may not be able to make it. And then it looked like he can make it. And uh, so we're going to call him around uh, around midnight, his time. He's on the East Coast, which will be 9 p.m. our time. I'll give you the rest of the intro in the meantime. If you want to call into the show, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the phone number, as it has been during the entire show's run. You can also text that number at any time. 775-372-8355. I may read your text on the air, so make sure you mention at the beginning not to read your text on the air, especially if it comes in during the show, or unless it's really obvious. But if I read it on the air without you warning me at the beginning, don't blame me. It might happen. You can text me, though, anytime. It doesn't have to be during the show. Just anytime you feel like texting me, 775-372-8355. The Mount Charleston number is an old 70s rotary telephone that sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin and forwards to me wherever I go. 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. It can be used to reach this show. It's a separate line into the show, so if the main line isn't working, try the Mount Charleston line. Or if you just want to always use the Mount Charleston line, you can too. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston number. The call to listen line is a phone number that you can use to listen to the show, which does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet. If you have a phone that can dial, that's good enough. And it never freezes, never buffers, and only requires the ability to complete a phone call, meaning you don't have to have a lot of bars. You have one bar, zero bars. As long as you can make a phone call, then it will work. It will not freeze. It will not be slow. It's not like the usual streaming experience where you've got to have a good, reliable connection and it buffers. This just plays. This just works the way streaming should work. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. If that doesn't work for whatever reason, there's the alternate number, 
In case you are forgetting these numbers easily, which can happen, these are not easy numbers to remember, just go to the radio tab on the top of PokerFileAlert.com. Every phone number I give out on this show is listed right there for you to find at any time you need it. I'm going to give the agenda, then we will get going after I connect on our co-hosts. By the way, we do have a chat room. You need a flash-enabled device to get in there, and you need a form account that is validated and in good standing. The agenda tonight, the World Series of Poker has officially canceled for its expected schedule. When I say expected, I mean the ones that they – the schedule they put forth. Nobody was expecting it to go, but what was their projected schedule is no longer. They've admitted it's not taking place. They've admitted not only is it not taking place as scheduled, it's not going to happen in the fall, or the spring or summer at all. It may happen in the fall. Even with that, they're saying we're hoping it'll happen in the fall. They're not even guaranteeing it because, of course, they can't. So don't bother making summer plans for the World Series of Poker. It's absolutely not happening, and I will talk a little bit more about that when we get to our topic on that, which will come after the Sheets interview. I have an update on Christopher Mitchell. Remember we did a two-hour segment on that last week? I'm sure you do. I expected to get a lot of complaints about the fact that that segment was two hours. Surprisingly, I did not. I did not get one complaint. I did get some compliments, though, that people enjoyed the segment. They thought it was funny. They thought it was entertaining. They thought it was interesting. So I said, okay, we'll do three hours this week. No, we won't do three hours this week, I promise. But I do have an update on this. We're not going to take two hours, anywhere near two hours, but I do have an update on uh, the Christopher Mitchell situation, the scam he's running, and the ongoing stuff happening with that, because it changes pretty much every day, much like the coronavirus. Christopher Mitchell's kind of like the the coronavirus of uh, gambling coaches. It changes every day, and there's attempts to fight it every day. <laughs> So I'll give you an update on that. Of course, we're going to have the interviews with Eric Schietaber and Robbie Trzinski, about two hours apart from each other. Coronavirus discussion. We have a bunch of topics again. I won't bother to list them. Yes, one of the topics is the Vegas mayor who made a fool of herself on national TV. I'm going to play that for you. And we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff, as we always do in the middle of the show these days, about the coronavirus I'm going to give you a Jew tip of the week. This is a popular segment. I get people messaging me every time I do one of these, thanking me for the information I give out here. It doesn't help all of you, but there's always people who listen who are immensely helped out by the Jew tips of the week. I try to find things that uh, I have discovered on my own that I think are helpful. Sometimes things I didn't even know before or I have just learned myself. So this week's Jew Tip of the Week will be how to reach Amazon by phone during the coronavirus phone center closure, because they have closed their phone center at Amazon. So then how do you get them on the phone? I will tell you, and I will tell you why it's important to get them on the phone, and I will tell you why it's awful if you don't. So that's the Jew Tip of the Week, and trust me, it works. I did it myself. A half a million dollar rock, paper, scissors bet, yes, exactly as it sounds, was invalidated by the court in Quebec. This was about a bet that took place nine years ago, but the decision just came down. I will tell you all about that one. Bally's Atlantic City is no longer going to be a Caesars property, and 
you cannot uh, use your total rewards card when it opens back up because it won't be under their ownership anymore. Bally's Atlantic City, Mont Blue in Tahoe, and the El Dorado in Shreveport have all sold in preparation for the still-planned Caesars merger with El Dorado Gaming. Mansion Online Casino is under fire for offering VIP incentives for UK customers' unemployment checks. (laughs) Basically, if they've found that somebody's getting unemployment checks, that they're incentivizing them to ship it over there and gamble with it. They're really under fire right now in the UK about that. Finally, Elkie, Bertrand Grosbelier, I don't know how you say his name, something like that. I just know him as Elkie. He has joined GG Poker as a sponsored pro, and then he got the coronavirus. (laughs) I guess one good and one bad thing happened to him in the same week. Joined GG Poker, probably got some good money for it, and then got the coronavirus. If this was offered to me to do both, I would refuse it. I would I would like to be a GG Poker Pro. That'd be great. But I would not do it if I had to get the coronavirus to do so. But both of these things happened to him. So we will talk about Elkie. And about GG Poker and their signing of Poker Pros that used to be part of Poker Stars. Because now there are three, to my knowledge. So that is our agenda tonight. Let me find our co-hosts. Let me track them down. Trader Ruski. Get him. What's happening, Trust? Trader Ruski, hello. And if you take a look there on Skype, put up a new picture of myself. I, I had a picture up for a long time from 2007. And finally I said, you know what? This just isn't honest. I, I can't keep presenting my 2007 self up there uh, when I don't look like that anymore. So I, I'm going to present a, a more pic- a more current picture of myself. So I put up a picture of myself from October 2019. I'm, I'm in front of a, a beautiful cliff with the, with the ocean, and uh, that's a lot closer to how I currently look. I, I think as someone who's seen me uh, semi-recently, I think you'd agree. Absolutely. Now, where is that, Jeff? It looks nice. That was California. That was in Rancho Palos Verdes, California, and uh, it's on the cliffs there. It's actually uh, near, but not at the uh, the Trump golf course over there. But if anyone knows where that is, it's also I, I will give another tip as to where that is. It's at the same place where Daniel Negreanu got married. I said, I'm going to drive all the way down there because I want to be where Negreanu married Amanda Leatherman. That makes me feel special inside. So I, I drove all that way just to feel like Negreanu for one moment. I hope he doesn't mind. But that's, that's really where it was. Did you get a brochure from the hotel? Maybe he can sign up the next time you see him. That's tr- I, That's where I messed up. I should have done that. I should have done that. And I, I should have done that. And if only the World Series took place this Summer, I could have brought this up to Daniel and said, Daniel, I, I went to where you got married. I didn't get invited to the wedding, I know, but can you please sign this for me so I can feel like I was there? I messed everything up, though. Now I I guess I have the picture, though. I can show them the picture. I can could, I could even try to get his Skype and <laughs> Skype him and say, Daniel, do you recognize this view? This this is the view that you had. When do you think you had that, Daniel? And he'll probably get a restraining order against me, but uh, I bet he'll know. Or, or Photoshop both of them next to you. <laughs> like <in> the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, 
Actually, I'm, I'm probably going to get people who listen to both shows reporting this back to Daniel, so I, I guess I should clarify so it doesn't scare him. I'm actually from this area, so I was uh, visiting the area, and uh, I happened to be there where he had his wedding. I, I recognized it immediately when he had his wedding because I had been there before he had been there many, many times. So I thought that was interesting that he chose that. I was surprised he even found the place because uh, this is not a very well-known place outside of that local area. So, and since Daniel's from Vegas and to my knowledge has no connection to L.A., so I was surprised he f- even found that venue. But uh, nevertheless, that's where it was. I, I thought maybe he could have learned about it through uh, Barry Greenstein because Barry used to live really close to there. So I guess that's possible. Anyway, uh, I, I just decided it's time to upgrade the picture. Update, not upgrade. It's probably a downgrade of the picture, but it's it's, it's uh, an upgraded view, probably a downgraded version of me, but it's more accurate, and I have to stick with accuracy. Now, Trader Ruski, I know your picture has been there for a while. Huh? What, what year was this picture taken? Um, I think it was probably six, seven years ago. Yeah, okay, that's what, that would have been my guess. I mean, you don't look too different now, so it's 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 good enough. Yeah, I probably need a new one, but today my hair is so long. I'm going to have to cut it myself. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I just get the big juke froze, and then it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's hot. It's, it's brutal. Yeah. I, you can use a picture, though, from, like, late 2019, like I did. I understand why you wouldn't take one now. Anyway, it's it's not a huge deal, but it just, every once in a while, you got to update your picture. I, I had an embarrassing moment at the World Series of Poker where there was a guy who was sitting next to me. I forgot even who it was. It was a younger guy, though. And he said, oh, wow, you know, I didn't realize at first who you were because I was expecting you to look like your Twitter picture. <laughs> and then I look at my Twitter picture, and it's this one from 2008 where I'm wearing the black. It's actually the one that's up on, uh, I think it's up on Wikipedia currently. Or maybe, I, you know, I think I actually had it replaced on Wikipedia because I actually kind of felt that was dishonest, too. But it's a picture you've probably seen a lot of me wearing Black, you can see it's a, a Never Win Poker shirt if you look closely. And it's it's at the 2008 main event. And I like the picture, but that picture is obviously 12 years old now. And this didn't happen last year. I think it happened in 17, but whatever it was, it was, it was far enough away from when that picture was taken that the guy said he didn't even recognize me because he was expecting me to look like that picture. So then I, I brought up uh, the uh, the picture on my other Twitter account, the Dandruff Poker Twitter account which is a 2012 picture. And that one, he said, oh, yeah, okay, that looks like you. So I felt a little bit better because at least he felt like I looked like 2012. As I said, I think this is like 17 or 18. But it was still a bit embarrassing that uh, someone didn't recognize me because I didn't look like my Twitter picture. And I, I, I make fun of people who do that. I make fun of people who use a super old picture because they don't want to acknowledge that they've aged and look different. Now, I sound the same, but I don't look the same. I said, it's time I update the Skype picture, even though hardly anyone gets to see it. But I know you, you have to look at it for hours on, on end here, Turtle So I wanted you to see something more current. Okay, let's get Vintage One. Yeah, get Vintage One on and then put him right on. It says he's unavailable. Okay. Uh, we'll text him. When he's ready, I'll put him on here. Okay, we're going to call up Sheets, and we'll find out what he's up to. Hey. Sheets, hello. I'm glad I found you. I was afraid that we had more fail here and that there's going to be no sheets this week. Nah, all good. All good. All right. Very good. So it has been a few years since you've been on the show. Do you remember what year it was? I don't even remember what year it was. Like three years ago or so? I think it was longer than that. Maybe longer than that. I, I don't know. It all, it all blends together eventually for me. 
I'm so pumped that you're still doing this, man. And this is great. You know, people say that that they're very happy I'm doing this during the the whole coronavirus thing, and I say, well, you know, it's a. Fortunately, the coronavirus has not really affected my ability to do the show because I don't have it. Nobody in my family has it, and uh, nothing about doing this show required me to leave my home. So, where do you where do you live? Do you live in L.A. or in uh, yeah. Vegas? Or no, I'm in the L.A. area. So, okay. I'm not quite in L.A. So that's why going to Commerce was a hassle. I was doing it though. I was doing it regularly until uh, a certain virus uh, appeared. But. Uh, yeah, I, I'm in the L.A. area. I've been here for a long time. And uh, the reason, for those of you that don't know, for the change was that my girlfriend uh, got pregnant, which was actually intentional. It wasn't an accidental pregnancy. It was we, we decided to have a kid and decided to be together. And uh, so How old how old's your kid? My kid is nine and a half. Wow, you're you're like really old now. I mean, yeah. This is crazy. I mean, you, are you going to play the seniors event this year? I mean, you, you've got a you've got to be you've got to be at least like sixty by now. No? <laughs> well, actually, this helps me pass one more year till I can play the seniors event, which will be in just two years. So you uh, you may have been joking about the seniors event, but I really can play it very soon. Yeah, it's nuts. You know, I, I my I my kids. I mean, it's so funny. I think of my life when I speak to you in terms of poker career. I remember it was like it was just yesterday when my we dragged my one-year-old with me to the Aruba tournament, and now my, now he's going to UVA next year. Wow. I mean, it's 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 nuts. It's just nuts. Yeah, I think it really hits you more when they get to be like later teenagers and college aged because then they're not they're clearly not kids anymore. At least, at least Benjamin being nine, I can I, I see he's not a baby or a toddler anymore. I, I see obvious differences in him, but at least he's still a little kid, and uh, it it. When you get, I think you get to feel older when you see them looking closer to adults, and that's probably what you're feeling now. Well, the first thing I also I wanted to tell you, by the way, that you know I I actually took one of the things that you said relevant to the coronavirus like several weeks ago, and I passed it along to my uh, my in laws. Like my uh, my father in law has high blood pressure, and I remember that you posted a couple of things about certain medications that needed to be kind of looked at and things like that. Yeah. And I did actually pass the information along to him to, uh, and that's what got me thinking about you again is, um, is, uh, I think he took it to his doctor and whether, I don't know what became of it, but, uh, so that's, that's how I kind of like reinjected myself into what you were doing. Cause, cause you know, I, I honestly, until the coronavirus thing started happening, I really wasn't on Twitter all that much. Um, and you know, as everybody's got a little more time to kill and, you know, just to get a little more familiar with what people are thinking about in the community and things. I, I, I saw that you were posting stuff about that. And, you know, it's funny. The reason why one of the original reasons I reached out to you is my experience. I don't know what you want to transition this, but me, one of my experience with the coronavirus is pretty unique because my daughter, we're talking about how old our kids are nowadays. My daughter is now in college and she was spending her in her semester abroad this year. And she had spent her entire semester in Singapore um, this this past spring. And, you know, people asked me before she was going to go, like, why does she want to go all the way to Singapore? And, you know, when when your kids get older, you'll appreciate the sentiment. My, my joke was that uh, – was that well? Because there were no, there's no place further. You know what I mean? Like she, 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 she really wanted to go as far as she could. So she was in, so she was in Singapore, and we actually went to visit her. Literally, right as you got to think of the timing of this. Todd, you're with me, right? I think you might have, did I disconnect you? 
No, no, I'm here. Go ahead. Okay. And you think of the timing of this. We visited her the right in the middle of February, which was just as the virus was as as strong as it was in Singapore, and just as the people in the United States were thinking that there was a possibility it might come to us, right? So. In leading up to our trip to Singapore, my wife was very freaked out. She's like, should we even go? Should we whatever? I can't believe this is going on. And we were tracking Singapore, you know, cases and we were freaking out. Oh, my God, three more cases, you know, or two more cases and things like that. And, you know, we were just and my daughter's like, listen, it's really they have it totally under control here. You don't understand. And, you know, Singapore had this kind of you know, this reputation of whenever people think of Singapore, they say, oh, that's the place where, you know, if you f- you're found chewing gum on the street, they cane you or something like that. Or that's where, you know, everybody's like, there's a lot of rules and all this stuff. So we went there and it was a really amazing experience to go. And we stayed the full week. And, you know, you think about what they're doing here versus what they were doing there. Every place that we went, there was a temperature screen. They had one of those thermometers that you see. And, you know, you had to, like, get a temperature screen. They, 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 they zapped you, you know, in the forehead before you got in. And there was, like, really signs posted, like, everywhere saying if you've been around for, you know, if you've been in China the last 14 days, you have to be quarantined. And all these different things that people are handling. And then when they were actually doing the tracing, like, every day they would put up a something in the newspaper with how many cases there were, and they would track where all they all came from. And they knew like every single, the, the, the source of every single case. And the reason I mention this is you would think that, well, I mean, how do the people put up with this? But it's, it's interesting. There was such cooperation and everybody was just so chilled about it that it made everything really, really comfortable. Even from like our perspective walking in, we just felt very comfortable walking in. It was no stress. It was no hassle. It was just kind of part of what you just had to do to get your shit taken care of. And then what was kind of ironic is I was telling my family there, I'm like, listen, you know, uh, you know, I, I was, I'm, I'm the type I grew up, Todd. I had the, I had a, a a Mondale Ferraro bumper sticker. You know what I mean? Like I I I've, I was supporting Carter. I'm I'm like one of the great bleeding heart liberals of our generation. And yet when I'm sitting over there, I'm like, you know what? You know, you sometimes need the government to kind of tell you what to do a little bit. And I was thinking when I was over there, listen, God forbid this really comes over to the United States. What they're doing here in Singapore is really what you need to do, and that shit just ain't gonna fly. Like in the United States. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking, could you imagine what would happen if, if they told people that you actually had to work together and just kind of stay home and just kind of, and God forbid they, they told, they, they, they asked the person in the United States, you know, you have coronavirus, where have you been the last couple of weeks? So maybe it's, it will help us kind of figure out where the thing is. And you see it all just kind of planning. You see it all playing out. And look, United States is a totally different country. I mean, it's got so much more, you know, raw surface area, but to just see it all just kind of play out in my worst nightmare about exactly how it, how it, how it came over here. And, and it, it was just really, really fascinating to me. Yeah, I actually was been to Singapore once in my life. I was in Singapore in 1993. I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of differences since 93, but uh, I bet there's a lot that's still the same. And what I noticed there was that, and, and I also went to Thailand and to Malaysia and, and some other uh, countries in the area during that same trip. So I got to also compare them. And 
what you get to see is, of course, Singapore is very, very clean, while the other countries I mentioned are not. It uh, operates like a first world country where the other countries I just mentioned are not. There's a lot that is good about Singapore. The crime rate is extremely low, so it's it's very safe, it's very clean. So they they have good aspects, and then they have bad aspects in that it's it's authoritarian, and the government has uh, just tremendous control over everything. You get fined for every little thing, and uh, there's you're you're pretty much living in constant uh, fear of the government and uh, and and. and Every little thing can be a violation there. Now, people get used to it. People who grow up that yep. way, they just think that's, that's the way life is. They, it, it, yep. and, and because it's a, a very small area, yep. uh, it's, it's a lot easier for everyone to be of that same mindset and everyone to grow up. And, 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 and you know, it is a mixture of a lot of different cultures, but it's, it's a lot easier in just one area to control like that. Uh, the U.S., this, that sort of thing would never work, not even nope. close to that. And, uh, so, so I saw the good and the bad about it, and then the the thing that happened with the caning actually came later, where that American was there who did yeah. graffiti and got caned, and uh, I, I wasn't surprised to see that at all. And and having been to Singapore myself, I thought, boy, that guy's stupid to have done that. That's one place right. you don't you don't vandalize anything. It should become very clear very quickly there that you don't screw around in Singapore, whether you're a foreigner or not. And uh, so this is one of these things. It's kind of like L.A. where. What's bad about L.A. turned about what was good about L.A. in that they did they always were criticized for the lack of public transportation and the need to have automobiles to, to get anywhere. And then that ended up saving a lot of lives with the coronavirus because not as many people got it because right. there was a, a very little usage of public transportation and people were just basically driving to wherever they went to. And there's also a lot less in the culture of, of walking around. It's just uh, – it's not, it's not even just about public transportation. It's also about walking places, uh, wandering into stores. Like There's just much less of that in L.A. So a lot of what was criticized for decades about L.A., seen as the area's biggest weakness, became the biggest strength in this time. And, and so with Singapore, I can believe how that whole uh, government-controls-everything yeah. culture, which uh, which has its good and bad sides. And, and by the way, that's a society I wouldn't want to live in. I, I never liked that, uh, even though I'm... I, I am in favor of uh, stronger penalties for violent criminals and, and repeat criminals and things like that than, than many other people are. Uh, I, I don't like when there's just so many little persnickety uh, gov- fines and, and, and regulations that are constantly enforced on the people and you just feel kind of oppressed by the government even if nothing that bad happens to you. Uh, I, I don't like that, and that's a place I wouldn't want to live, even though I see its upsides. But in this type of situation, is this a bad place to be? No, for the reasons you yeah. stated. Like, that's, that's, that's and, I'll, and I'll tell you something else, Todd. You know, in eight days there, I saw, and this is, I don't know whether, whether this, is, this is interesting or scary, I didn't see a single police officer, like anywhere. And I was looking, eight days, I'm not even a car, not even a, a patrolman. I mean, I, I, I was joking. Maybe these, maybe the police officers are like, listen, we're not going in this coronavirus shit. I'm just staying in our freaking squad room. But um, it was, it was a very, again, a very unique situation where, again, you know, I'm sure if I went during some other time, like, boy, it's, it's, uh, you know, I don't know if, if, if I could live in a place like this. But like you said, in a crisis situation, you know, sometimes it's just kind of better <laughs> to, 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 uh, to have some, some control of what's going on. So, uh, it was, uh, it was a very, very interesting thing. And we, we got out of there just as 
I mean, we just basically got out of there just as the stuff was coming over to the United States. And it was a very, uh, it was in a way nerve wracking. And it's funny, you know, my daughter finally came back, you know, weeks later. And I think literally the day after she came back, they just banned all travel coming out of there. So it was, it was, uh, it's, uh, it's nuts, man. (laughs) It's just crazy. Yeah. That's, um, I'm glad everybody's back there and that, uh, and, and nobody in your family, has gotten the virus yet, right? Yeah, actually, my mom did. Wow. My mom uh, got got it, and she actually had. Um, she's better now, but she had. Um, uh, well, a unique, not unique, uh, interesting situation with it. Well, first of all, she had pre-existing conditions. She had a uh, previous lung uh, lung issues, oh, and yeah, so so she lived in New Jersey, and and they, when she lives in New Jersey, and what they they had these first drive up testings, right? And she knew she had some symptoms, and she knew that she was, you know, and I said, Mom, you pro- you almost definitely have it, but you know, just probably just stay at home. But if you feel worse, you know, you go to the hospital, or whatever, and. She got on the line because she couldn't take, you know, the stress of not knowing. So she got on one of those drive-through test lines, and it went back like miles. And about a cop came about after she'd been waiting for about two hours and said, "Listen, ma'am, your car is never going to make it there. We're going to run out of tests before you get there. You may as well go home." So they sent her home after waiting there for two wow. hours, and then and then the next day was a Sunday. They closed the testing down for that day. So to following month, the next Monday, she got online for and literally it was for four hours. So they made her wait in one of those drive-through lines, and when she was about three cars away, they turned her back. Oh, and I'm like, I'm like, wouldn't you think that like it would be sooner between you know maybe there were 15 cars away, they'd be able to figure it out, right? And so eventually she just went, you know, I, I just went to the actual hospital. She got tested, and my like, mom, it's been now nine days since symptoms. You know what I mean? You're, they're just going to tell you what you know already. And so they did confirm that she had it. And by the time that they actually got the rules of the test, she was feeling like 90% better. So, so she, uh, wow, she so went through it and she's all, she's healthy now. And, and, you know, I'll tell you that the combination of just kind of where I live, which is in Long Island with, you know, my age and I'm, you know, I'm 53 now. So I just, I know a lot more people than people younger than me, right? Just because I've been alive longer. And, um, I mean, it's, I know like just so many people that got it. And, and, and it was, and, you know, I, I coach AAU basketball, one kid from my team, 17 years old, you know, some, some six, six, you know, you know, healthy young kid, you know, he got it. So his parents got it. Two other kids on my team and we weren't even coaching that. We, you know, we were locked down and two other kids got it. Their parents got it. And one, one other coach that I know was actually in critical condition. I would say that of my, seriously, of my just people that I know, or at least even one person removed. I would say at least thirty people. Wow. See, I that I know have it, and 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 one one person I know from law school died um, from coronavirus. Wow. And and yeah, and and and, and you know, I, I I always wonder when I'm like, because you know, I'm Twitter, and I I don't know where people are from really on Twitter, although I have some idea. You know, I, I don't know how many people are actually from this area, and and just 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 the sort of volume of people in this area, and the sheer number of people that have it, just you know, it's just going to be natural that you're just people from this area is going to know people that have it. So it's uh, it's it's really uh, it's really freaky. Well, they've already tested. I, I saw the other day that, and these are the people that that have been proven to have it that have tested positive. One out of every fifty-seven in New York City. Have tested positive for it, and that doesn't include all the people who had it and either just 
didn't bother to go get a test because they just stayed at home and uh, and it got better, or those that uh, didn't even know they had it and were asymptomatic or, or, or mild, that uh, the 1 in 57 is a lot higher. But even 1 in 57, you're going to know a number of people in your area, if you live in that area, yeah. 1 in 57, even if it was 1 in 57, but it's a lot higher. So that, that area is a big problem. And when I look at the, the three states that have had the biggest problem with it, uh, it, it, New York, you have New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And what some people who don't know the East Coast very well don't realize is that a lot of people who go into New York City for work live in New Jersey or Connecticut. So, uh, well, well, that's the that's the thing, you know. Especially, see, Nassau County, which is where I live, and Suffolk County, which makes up Long Island. We have just in Long Island, or even just in Nassau County, twice as much as the entire state of California. And the reason for that is, as you're kind of alluding to, we, we get the privilege of double dipping. Like, not only we get the people that are contagious in, in Nassau, but so many people that live here work in New York City. That they commute into Manhattan every day, so they get to dip into the people from Manhattan, yeah. who also mix with the people that are commuting in from New Jersey, who mix with the people who are commuting in from Connecticut. So it's a perfect, it's it's actually a quadruple perfect storm, not only of just density, not only of like this melting pot of sharing community, but also that New York thing. And you know, people from New York are are uniquely qualified to think that. The world doesn't revolve. That the world doesn't affect them, and that they can replace their entire their opinion for others. And, and they're really they're just expert at it. Like we had we had a really nasty hurricane like years ago, uh, Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, I remember that. And and well, what happened was like a year before there was a hurricane, Hurricane Irene, and the news came out and they said, listen, for Hurricane Irene, you guys better lock, lock up, you better buckle up. And it turned out to be not that big a deal. So I'm like, uh oh. So then when Sandy came, they were giving like really nasty warnings, but people from New York were like, yeah, forget about it. You know, it's a bunch of BS. It's the media. Just it's probably just going to be rain. It's going to be just whatever. And nobody was prepared, and everybody got destroyed. Okay, so so New York is really really good at this they're really good at being jaded and they're really good at, at whatever and and between you and me three of the I, several of the people that i alluded to like the 30 people i know i would say at least half of them were just people that in that that one weekend that march 11th the end of march 11th weekend where that where they really were supposed to just not where they were supposed to stay in their house but nobody told them to yet Right. That one little window, everybody went out, everybody was a moron and that that caused an incredible wave. And and, um, and that's and that's the, the quadruple whammy of New York, man. I mean, it's uh, and uh, fortunately, and, you know, we could talk about that. I don't know how. See, again, like, I, I Twitter's a unique thing because I don't realize and you think about this. I always presume that everybody from Twitter that's my follower that I follow all follow the same people, right? But that's just not true, right? Everybody's got their own little Twitter sphere. So I just presume that when I'm, by the way, watching, you know, Mayor Cuomo on New York every, I'm not Mayor Cuomo, Governor Cuomo on New York every day, everybody else is kind of following Cuomo too, but, but I guess that's not the case. So Cuomo has been, you know, he's been, he's been like the hero around here. I mean, like, look, he takes a lot of, he takes a lot of abuse from like a lot, you know, just because you're always going to find people that give, give abuse, you know, whatever. But he's been like, you know, He's been. Let's put it this way: like, all, like, like pe- wives of 
people my age have, have, have replaced like George Clooney with him on their, their hall pass list. I mean, like he's going to be like the, the next bachelor around here next time they have a show around like bachelor of New York. And so, so it's kind of like become a like must see TV Cuomo's briefing every day because he comes out and he just kind of speaks, you know, like a, uh, like a New Yorker, like a human being. And it's, 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 a it's, it's, it's very interesting to, 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 um, to have that experience also. You know, I don't understand, since we're talking about New York, why haven't they shut down the subway yet? Why is that still open? I know people need to get yeah. places, but that's uh, – it, it's it's almost like you throw everything else out the window, all the other social distancing stuff out the window if you're going to still have yeah. the subway. I don't, so, I don't understand it. I, I, know, so it's, I know it's so essential sub, to get around. The subway, but, the subway and then the other part is, as I alluded to before, millions of people from Long Island travel into New York City via the Long Island Railroad every day. And yeah, that's another it's, problem. there's just, there's no, and there's just, there's just no escape. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not as if you can, you know, in, uh, there's nothing, there's no way to make that safe. There's just no yeah, there way. Isn't. There is. You know, and, and then the subway and the subway as well. You could talk all you want about, you know, I mean, look, yeah, you can have everybody wear masks or whatever, but, but remember at the beginning when the first real wave spread, I mean, no one knew shit and everybody was just kind of just, just on the sub, on the on the railroad, and just doing whatever, and the subways, whatever, and and it's um those types of those types of things are impossible to to kind of control. You know, you know the uh, the analogy I, I like to use. You're you're old enough probably to remember this. Like you, you, I remember it. It wasn't that long ago that you were allowed to smoke cigarettes on planes, right? Yes, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and but but was 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 incredibly bizarre about it if you think about it now it's like it's like ridiculous that the reason why they said it was okay was because it's not a big deal because they're only going to allow the smoking in like rows 15 to 17 right yeah. <laughs> all the other rows don't worry about it we're not going to allow smoking in your row so you guys are cool only rows 15 to 17 are going to be smoking as if that made a difference you know what i mean like the smoke just goes all throughout anyway so so that's what's what's going on with these some of these situations when they're trying to say, well, I want to open this thing, but, you know, we got to be careful. There's some situations where it doesn't matter how careful you can be. There's just no way that if there is, you know, a great amount of infection, if in fact, you know, it's very contagious, it's just it's just going to spread regardless of what you do about it. Yeah, it, it's true. And uh, yeah, and, and so I think that's part of the reason probably the big reason that you're still seeing you're not really seeing the cases and the deaths go down very much in that area or at all because uh this is still going on so new york uh, there were almost eleven thousand new diagnosed cases today and that's not new cases total that's not new proven cases that were tested positive uh 3300 new jersey and, uh, well, 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 Todd. Here's the thing, and this is my opinion. I mean, I'm I'm very analytical, and I'm like, you know, I'm one of those, I'm just one of those guys. And and here here's here's my issues. I I 100% believe that you know everything is 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 going downwards. Number of cases is is reducing. Hospitalization is going down. And I, it's been obvious for weeks now that this is what's going to happen. And things are going to go down. And the 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 weird kind of philosophical conundrum is this. You know, is the reason that everything is going down is because of the measures that we are now thinking measures we are taking that we're now thinking of removing, right? And, and and the logic of that is very, very bizarre to deal with because you're like, wow, things are going well, so now let's just go back to the way it was. 
But then that you get that that natural you know logic argument that argument against is well the only reason things are getting better is because people have been forced to stay home or people have elected to stay home or whatever it is. So it's it's a really weird situation where you know you honestly don't know why you know what I mean for sure if the reason why things are going down is simply because it's getting weaker or because just we we've just kind of forced to do so. Oh, to me, I'll give to you me, another, just like kind of a really, I guess kind of a shitty analogy, but I have, um, being the 53-year-old man that I have, I have a terrible herniated disc in my back. I had it forever, and it really flared up about six, seven years ago to the point where I had sciatica that just, if you ever had, it's just, it's just the nut low, to say the least. And I tried everything. I went, I got epidural shots. I went to physical therapy. I went to chiropractor. I went to acupuncture. And I went to all of these things, and then after about a month, it was starting to feel better, okay? So the question that you ask is, well, what caused it to get better? You know what I mean? Like, was it just the passage of time? Was it the acupuncture? Was it the combination of things? And from my perspective, I could give a shit. You know what I mean? I'm like, I, I'll, let the, I'll let all you people take credit for it. I just want to get better. And, and so, you know, you have this, 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 these, these statistics that show that things are getting better. But the question is, are they getting better because of the measures that we took that we're now thinking of removing? You know, because it, and look, again, I'm, I'm being very sense, uh, New York centric about this. But again, I know the way New Yorkers are and the way New York, New York operates. And if they do, you know, let, things go back, you know, too quickly, there's no way they're going to be able to pull it back if they feel like they screwed up. You know what I mean? Like, yes, if they said, you know what I mean? They say, okay, now restaurants go open, and then next thing you know, you have like 2,500 new cases of coronavirus. There's no way they're going to be able to get away with, okay, uh, restaurants closed again. Yeah, that's, that's, that's everywhere. And that, that is a big problem. And then many, many overlooking that it is hard to reopen things and then just say, no, actually, we're closing it again. And people are going to get tired of this open, close, open, close stuff, and they're going to stop cooperating, and, and we're going to start having a big problem. So they have to very, be very careful how they do that. But to me, I just still think that with the subway being open, with this train being open, which I didn't even think of, but that's a very good point as oh, well. It's the uh, worst. It's the worst. I, I, I think that there, there, there's so many people who are in harm's way here that are going to keep spreading this. That this does take away a lot from any other social distancing effort that's going on, and and, uh, and that maybe they, they should just re- reopen things uh, because if they're going to have this going on, you, know, you might as well uh, save the economy too. And I haven't seen that point raised very much, but but it's true. I think that if if you're going to leave things like that, then you're saying, well, what are we doing? You can't you can't just social distance to feel good. You have to social distance to actually accomplish something, and and yeah. uh, and that's important. It's like. In, in Las Vegas now, where they have these BS uh, checks that uh, uh, of your key, or they make sure that you, you your room gets checked every two days because of uh, Stephen Paddock uh, shooting from the Mandalay Bay in, in October of 2017. All the measures they're taking are incredibly easy to circumvent if you want to do what Paddock did again. You easily could do that. It does not require criminal genius to shoot up the Las Vegas Strip again and sneak a lot of higher-powered weapons into your room. It's very, very easy. And, and uh, so these measures they're taking are just there to make people feel good, but in reality are not actually accomplishing any additional security. Uh, so I, I don't want this, which is on a much greater level than just being inconvenienced with them going into your room. Uh, this is on a much greater level to have the shutdown. I don't want a shutdown ever for the reason of 
making people feel good like they've done something, making people feel good like they're like they're doing something to stop it. When in reality, uh, there's a huge hole, w- which is uh, still allowing this to happen. So. Uh, I know it's not easy to shut down the train and the subway and that, that it will shut down all the people from getting to work, period. And uh, But they have to decide, are we going to do this or are we not? I, I think the half-assed way of doing it, which is happening over there, that might bring the numbers down, but you're, you're never going to have it very much under control. And there there is the school of thought that some people have, and, and you see this in Sweden and other places, of, you know what, since the vaccine's very far away, since there's going to be vast economic damage from... Uh, from this whole thing, there already is. There's going to get worse and worse as as everything remains shut down. Uh, might as well try to just leave as much open as you can. Have the people who are most vulnerable stay away, and and just let the chips fall where they may. I I don't agree with that uh, methodology, by the way. But uh, I know there's some who do. And uh, but but I will say that if you are in a place that's going to leave a subway and a, and a busy train open with 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 tons of people traveling on it. Then, then I would say, yeah, go. To, I think we probably should open things because we're we're getting the worst of both worlds here. We're still getting a lot of people infected. It's still spreading around a lot, and the economy is getting hurt. So it's, it's, I think I think that's the that's the worst solution. So I that's what I'm not understanding there. And and I I know the deaths follow uh, behind because it, it takes a few weeks usually to get there. Sometimes more from when you first get infected. So you can't look at the death rate today and say, oh, that's indicative of how it's doing. Yeah, the death rate today is more indicative of how it was doing maybe three or three, three to four weeks ago. But but still, the, the death rate, 617 people died today in, in New York uh, to, to make a total death, uh, almost 22,000 there, which is more than 40% of all the deaths in the U.S., just in New York State alone. It's nuts. And if, and if you add New York, New York and New Jersey together, which really should be added together because uh, New Jersey and New York are so associated. So many people who go into New York City live in New Jersey. So, as you know very well. Yep. So, so, so it's about half. But New York and New Jersey make up about half the cases in the U.S., which, which is amazing because the population is, is nowhere near half so even the two the two together it's less than california's population so and new york when i last looked new york had a death rate of 27 times what california has 27 times that's that's insane so uh there's yeah what were we gonna say Todd, let me ask let me ask you this so let's let's talk about a little, something a little more fun so, so not even so much fun so what do you what do you think's gonna happen with 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 live poker, and I say that because I'll give you, I'll, you know, let me let me preface it by saying this way: like I, 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 you know, don't really play live poker. I don't really play that much poker at all anymore. I mean, I played I played online recently just because, like I said, everybody has again. But I, I really don't play live poker, and part of the reason why I don't play live poker is actually because of the uh, the cigarette smoke. I just I just can't take. Not not to mention the um, just the whole live. See, I just, I just can't take it, and. When I would play, like my wife would say, you know, make sure you wash your hands after the chips and, and all this stuff. And, 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 and when I think about it, it's, it's just the, the ultimate combination of the worst that a thing like this can cause. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. and, and, and yet on the other hand, you have Vegas and AC, which is so dependent on gambling, right? As for revenues and, and, and the derivatives from gambling that, You'd like to think that they would, you know, that they would be less, more aggressive to get them back. How, how, how do they get people? How do they open? How do they get people to play? I mean, what, 
Are people going to come and play? I mean, look, you're, you're, you know, you've made it clear on Twitter what your, what your, your, your thoughts are, but, but I mean, I, I, I don't, I can't even, maybe I'm being paranoid because I wouldn't probably play anyway just because the cigarette smoke or stuff like that. But how, how are people going to go even in the fall? I mean, are they going to require masks? Well, okay. you know what I mean? Like, what, what do you think is going to happen? Well, yes. I, and I've thought of this too. And it, in fact, it's funny because that's going to be a topic tonight that we're going to talk about later in the show oh, about uh, about the permanent effects, not so much about poker, but uh, about just the permanent effects on society that this is going to have. But from a, the poker standpoint, which we'll, we'll talk about now since you yeah. brought it up, uh, I, I think it's going to be tough. You're going to have the people who are young and don't care because they figure the chance of it affecting them in a very bad way is fairly low, which is true. There's some who get unlucky and and uh, get it badly. There's some who get really unlucky and die. But the truth is, if you're 25 years old, you don't have that much to fear. But poker has aged. Poker is not the same demographics it was 15 years ago. So, uh, so the problem is, you don't have that many players under 30 anymore. And uh, and most players live are over 40, which automatically puts you in somewhat of a danger zone. So, so that's the youth is not going to bring that many people back to poker rooms. Uh, you know, there's people who are middle-aged that will say, okay, I'll chance that the chance of me dying, this is low. And, and a lot of people who are middle-aged don't realize that there's a, a a very fair chance of you suffering just really awful symptoms from it, at uh, even if it doesn't kill you or put you on a ventilator, that that you can get really awful symptoms, which also can cause permanent lung damage or other permanent damage or even permanent psychological damage. So, so, but so, so a lot of people don't think about this. A lot of people say, well, okay, I'm seeing that a very small percentage of people between 45 and 50 are dying, so screw it, I'm going to go. So you'll have those people that go. You have the degenerate gamblers who would play if the if the poker room was on fire, they'd still be playing. Uh, right. so, so you'll have that contingent returning. You'll have the, the poker pros who are winning players but still kind of degenerate gamblers that uh, that just have to stay in action even though they're, they're, they're like gambling addicts who also win. So there, there's that too. And... Then there is – so you're going to have some people returning, but you're going to have a lot of people, including recreational players who are not degenerate gamblers but just kind of enjoy poker. I'll, I'll give you an example of one. I haven't asked how he feels about this or how, how much chance he'll take, but uh, Eric Benzamokin, who appears on this show, an attorney, uh, he's not a poker pro. He, he never postures like he's a poker pro. He, he admits he's a recreational player. Uh, I don't know if – he is going to return to play live poker. He's not like a degenerate gambler. He's a guy who enjoys playing poker, but uh, but isn't there every day. Uh, most of his life doesn't revolve around playing poker. Most of his uh, life revolves around his uh, legal career and his family. So uh, he's he's some he's the type of person. Even though I haven't asked him directly, who I could see saying, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm just I'm just going to quit. So well, you you said you said something really interesting. By the way, I want to go back to it because because you just actually shocked me with something you said. Is that again? I haven't really been as in tune with the poker community as I used to be. But you mentioned to me that 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 you think the poker community is aged in in such that the average live poker players are in their forties. I see. I I would have I would have guessed the exact opposite. I I see, I see all these like live events with like all these all these kids winning. You know, all these twenty one, twenty two year olds winning. <laughs> and and what I was going to say is is that. Is that I would is that at least my Twitter feed the ones that they're chock full of kind of these young sharp people. I mean these are people that are kind of were ahead of the curve on the the coronavirus stuff in the first place. So I think that these people from an analytical perspective would be actually less likely 
to go and play than the older, you know, the older, you know, 40s and 50s year old players and stuff like that. But you're telling me that 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 for the World Series, for example, and live tournaments, that that even that like there's there's yes. you know the average age is even older than I think that's amazing to me. Oh yeah, so well, let me tell you a few things. First of all, the average age at the World Series of Poker they they publish this every year it has has been for the last uh, few years like 40s, 43, 44, wow. something like that. Okay. Wow. Second, it's not just the average. It's also there are very few players that are under 25 now and even relatively few under 30. In the main event, it's a very small percentage now. And I mean like a single-digit percentage that's under 30 uh, because they what you don't have anymore are people who – like people that age, to have that type of money to enter the $10,000 main event – they either right. have to be surprisingly uh, well off at that young age outside of poker, which doesn't happen very often, or that they have to have uh, done very well in poker to where uh, they can enter a $10,000 tournament. And you just don't have that many people anymore. Now, what you do have, you do have some people who were hot shots in their early 20s uh, 10 to 15 years ago who are now okay. in their 30s. And uh, like, right. like, look at, look at uh, Timex Mike McDonald. He's, he's uh, I believe, 31. So is he still young? Yeah, he's he's young, but is is he one of these uh, kids anymore? No, he's not. He's a lot yeah. younger than us, but he's uh he's not he's not right. a kid. So uh, same with Doug Polk, another one early 30s, not not a kid anymore. So, so you have not. you have those types and and those are the young guys now. And and in fact, I'll I'll tell you something interesting. I made it to deep day 5 of the main event the, in 2019. The table I started at, I was the youngest one at the table at age 47. Wow. On on at late day 4, I was the oldest one at the table. So, so so what so what do you think they're going to hold the, they're going to hold the whole world series in, in in the fall? No, I think it's not happening. Uh what you said about the, the poker room being the perfect place for this to transmit is 100% correct. This is one of the worst things to do. This is why when we started hearing about the coronavirus in late January and keep in mind there was not uh any confirmation yet they still haven't found to this day anyone who died in January. From the coronavirus, but still on the same day Kobe Bryant died, I think like January 27th, something like that, was the yeah. very last day I played at Commerce. And I was going there regularly, and I decided after that session I'm not coming back until this is over. And uh, and then I said, well, I'm going to stay away from here because – not that I think it's widespread in the U.S., but there's Chinese nationals, like 90 percent Chinese nationals dealing at Commerce. So that's that's very bad news. So I'm, I, I, I'm definitely not – going to play there but and i won't play anywhere else in la where there's a similar situation but uh if i'm in vegas and this doesn't get much worse i'll play so the following week i did play at bellagio which doesn't have the chinese dealers but after that i even said you know what i'm going to stop doing that too so i stopped uh, i stopped playing all live poker after that and uh that's because i started i i saw that was the one that was the type of place that was the biggest threat and I stopped playing live poker long before I took any other measures uh, regarding any kind of social distancing. Everything so, else I continued doing except for live poker. And 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 so with, with so, so what I think is going to happen, they were they were at least smart enough to delay it to the fall. They they didn't try to say let's let's just move the whole. Th- we'll we'll try again in July. They're not even trying right. that because they know that there's no chance. So they're they're moving it to the fall, and I think they're hoping that maybe the weather will cause a big reduction. Uh, maybe there will be some treatment by then that's that's proven reliable to where most people can get yeah, the treatment. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think Vegas cares. I, I think they're I think they're going to. Um 
you know, they're, they're going to wait for any signs that they can be the first ones to do it. I think they're going to run it in the fall. I think that they're just way too much of their economy is just, just, just dependent on getting gambling, just rolling again. And I think they're going to take the heat for it and just going to, maybe they'll do something like require masks or something, but I think they're just going to roll it. I mean, I don't, I don't see whether it's right or wrong, but I just think that's just going to be the case. Like when I was, when I was watching these things kind of like slowly close down, I knew that the two things that were going to close down last, one, the one was going to be casinos and the other surprisingly has not completely closed yet was, was horse racing. So horse racing gambling, there are actually a couple of tracks that are still holdouts that are still, that are still racing, um, still with no fans. But, you know, my, my, my conspiracy theory is when, whenever you have a cut going back to the state and there's gambling involved, anything, oh, everything possible is going to be done to keep these things running. I, I, I believe that they're going to run that World Series well, in full. Well, it, and, it, and I don't know what, what they're going to, I don't know whether it's going to be right or wrong, but I just think that's what's going to happen. Well, yeah, and th- they definitely want to. Uh, there's the question of will they be allowed to, and the, and the question will also be uh, allowed to by whom? Well, allowed to by the, by the government, by the Nevada state government. Now, I, I have to say that by October, there's a good chance that that the even the state right now, the the Vegas wants to reopen basically, and uh, yeah. uh, and, and and the governor is saying no, it's it's not quite time to do that. It would not safe yet. So th- this there's a big battle playing out, which we're going to also talk about later tonight. But okay. but uh, I I saw this coming a long time ago. I saw this yep. coming that this was going to be a huge battle that Vegas was not being a one note economy cannot stay yep. closed for months and months and months and months. So what happens by October? I don't know because what could happen is they can reopen. Then it can be a disaster that tons of people get sick and die, and they go crap. We do have to close this, and then that carry. And if this doesn't significantly get better by October, and we don't have a treatment by October, then they just may not be able to run it. So I I think if they can open it in any way that they feel they can do so and at least give the appearance of responsibility and run it, they will. The numbers are going to be way down. And as uh, I was having this discussion with uh, Cal Watt, who is a sometimes co-host of the show, that Cal Watt said to me, even if it goes and even if the numbers are reduced, it's not just fewer people. The tournaments are going to be very tough because it's going to be mostly pros showing up. <laughs> now, 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 yeah. Now, one, one of the things. Now, again, you'll forgive me if I wasn't able to to listen. To you, but these are usually really late for me, so I don't know what you've been talking about recently. I don't know what you have planned for later. Um, but you know, the, the big thing that's going on right now is 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 kind of the re, I don't want to say reemergence, but kind of the re explosion of online, right? And you being the poker fraud, you know, uh, alert show, or whatever. I was wondering if you had talked about, um, you know, the, the U.S. sites, you know, with, with, cause when, cause whenever you have a big explosion and anything gets, you know, bigger, then everything also naturally gets more scrutiny. So I, I'm just wondering if what, what your take was or if you guys have ever talked about what the impact of ACR and, and, and these poker bros places and, uh, you know, all these other new U.S. sites that are having this incredible rush of players um, is is how how does that end? Um, does it end? Is you have you heard anything like evil going on as far as that goes? Because it's um, uh, 
again, I didn't think about it because no one was playing for a while. But now, again, with like, you know, you have big charity events with Ben Affleck playing and Tom Brady playing on ACR yeah, yeah, and, well, yeah, and, and things like that. I, I was wondering what you guys have talked about as far as that goes. Yeah, we, we have talked about it. And so I, I don't want to repeat it all for the audience who's heard no, it. That's week, fine. But, but, but no, no, that's fine. I, I, I've, ACR and, and, and Bovada are ACR and Bovada. They're basically the same, but with more traffic. Uh, if not much has changed with them, they, they've each got their downsides. Neither is terrible. Neither is great. This is kind of like, uh, what we've got. They, they are the best two right now. If, if you're going to play anywhere, I've said that the, no, I don't, I don't even mean that. I mean, like, so like right now, I mean, I I mean, I went on ACR and, and, and not, not to brag, but like one in MTT and not having played in like forever for like 20,000. And I'm like, these freaking pools are just so enormous. And like all these people are playing and then these, these kind of like half shady, Home games that are being run on Poker Stars yeah. now, where people are just kind of like doing it for free, but like paying on the side and like, yeah, th- yes. and, 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 and all this other stuff going on. I, I just wonder where that, uh, where, where that, where that shakes down or whatever. Well, I'm there's just gonna kinda, be, there's gonna be a lot of fun skin. for me to play again a little bit, but, uh, it's, uh, I'm just a little nervous. You should be. There's gonna be a lot of scams yeah. that, that occur in these home yeah. games, the Poker Bros, the PP Pokers, uh, all of those private type sites or, or home games run on Poker Stars, uh, there will be scams and even unintentional scams where, where the person running it mismanages the money in some way. For example, I always give this example. Okay, you can have the most honest guy attempting to run one of these things and then lets a fish play on credit. The fish loses because he's a fish. Right. The fish decides incorrectly that he was cheated, and that's the only reason he lost, not because he sucks. And he says, you know what? I, I know I've, I've been playing on, uh, on $40,000 credit, but F you. I was cheated. I'm not paying anything. There's nothing you can do about right. it. And then how does the host of the game pay the 40000 Uh He'll say, sorry, guys, I don't have the 40000 to pay. Uh, you guys just don't get paid. So this is where nobody set out to scam anybody, but but everybody gets ripped off. So these type of well, things happen, and then there, you have people who actually do rip uh, – who actually are scamming. Then you have – so you have a lot of different problems where you have potential cheating and collusion. The security is very poor. I've said that as tempting as it is to play on those things – that uh, you should try to resist playing on these things because there's a decent chance you're going to get screwed or cheated in some way, and that uh, if that you really should try to stick to the big ones like like ACR and Bovada, which well are flawed, but well, well, well. With for me, I was thinking a little bit bigger as far as a problem goes. So let's say that I mean Poker Stars. I mean, God love them, man. They 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 were they were they had a really big problems back Black Friday, and they worked it out with the U.S. government. They made a deal with the U.S. government, saying, "Listen, we're going to close down the U.S. We're going to get our players paid back. You're going to let us make a fortune playing in Europe or whatever it is or whatever it was worked out." I'm just concerned that let's say that that there's so many of these like like I would say illegal call one of these kind of these shady home games that if the US government then like says, listen, poker stars, you knew that that your software was being used for illegal gambling, we'll shut you down as well. You know what I mean? Like so I think that even from a poker stars perspective, I, I think that they're that they're being stupid. They you know what I mean? Are. Like let, you're, you're actually right. happen. You're actually right. Uh I didn't think of this before. That's but that's a good point that they're not gaining from this. If people are because you can only play play money in these home games. So what people from the U.S. are doing is they're setting up these play money games on PokerStars.net, and then everybody settles afterwards. So yeah, and and so PokerStars, it's, like, it's not like they get rake from this; they get absolutely nothing out of it. So I, I PokerStars probably should try to clamp down on these, or maybe just close down these private games entirely while this is going on because it's too much risk. The problem with closing them down is people can just start them up again. It's a, it, it, they can't seize anything; they're seizing play chips. So right. so they, I think that uh, 
if they were smart, they'd just close these down for the time being because it's not gaining them anything. It might be it might be risking things. Uh, though maybe they think that it's, it's legally defensible because they can claim, well, look, we're not policing these things because these are, are play money games. So how do we know what people are doing behind the scenes? Uh, we hear rumors. We we can't tell who's who's playing for real play money and who's exchanging money behind the scenes. We're not facilitating it. This isn't. They can. I I, I don't picture they'll get in trouble. And this isn't super widespread at this point. This is, what's much more widespread is is uh, the the poker bros the po- and PP poker yeah. things and and also ACR and Bovada just getting much bigger and. and much more action, and uh, if, if if this does affect anything legally, I could see maybe the government will say, "Hey, you know what? You know what's gotten too big for us being comfortable now? ACR and Bovada. They know about ACR and Bovada. They've known about them for the whole time. They just have chosen not to go after them because they weren't big enough. But may, maybe now they're going to say, you know what? Uh, we're not leaving them alone anymore. That's it. When, they, when this, they're not going to do it during the coronavirus pandemic, but when this is all over, they may say, you know what? You know what's first on our list when this is all passed? Going after ACR and Bovada, so we may see that in the future, and and then it could also expose something like what was exposed with Full Tilt is that they're not holding all the money to pay everybody. So uh, that's that's a good reason not to keep a tremendous bankroll on these sites like ACR and Bovada when it seems like we're going to be coming out of this soon. I don't see I don't think, see them being shut down right now. This is believe me, the last thing the U.S. government is going to be focusing on right now is hey, let's shut down online poker that's uh, that's running on Bovada. They're, Believe me, they're not going to expend resources into that right now. And in fact, it would look bad that this is what they're worrying about. But but once this is all passed or mostly passed and then they want to clamp down on this, that might happen. And then these sites may not have the money to pay you. And it may be full tilt all over again, except there will be no one coming in to save you this time like PokerStars did. So th- that's, that is a good reason that if you have a lot of money on these sites – that uh, you may want to reduce the bankroll once it looks like that we're past this and the government can start wasting time on this. So that's but these are good points you brought up. Some of these I hadn't really uh, thought of before. I, I want to ask you, as uh, you say, you play some ACR. Are, are you running any kind of staking operation at all anymore, or, or is that all? I about? haven't. I know I haven't done that in a long time. I mean, I, I've really been kind of out of the poker business and community for like I would say solid. St- since we last spoke, maybe six, seven years. I mean, I really haven't, don't really stake anybody anymore. I really don't play, play anymore. I mean, I, I really only follow it when something, you know, during the World Series main event, you know, I'll just kind of sweat, you know, whoever I can, I recognize or something like that. And, you know, whenever something big happens, like the, um, like obviously when the postal thing happened, I was kind of, you know, interested in kind of following that along and things like that. And I guess one interesting, the last thing I did staking back and wise, I actually served as an uh, as an expert witness in a um, in a trial involving a, a backing arrangement. Actually, wow, um, yeah, which uh, involved um, what you call it? What's his name? Lee Childs, actually. Um, Oh, I, 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 right. I, ta- I, I talked, I talked like about that. this on this show. Yeah, I talked about that one. In fact, let me tell you something. You, you can talk about it, but I, I just want to tell you one thing before we get into that subject, that when I went over that topic, when I talked about that topic, for some reason, the audience hated that topic, and I got a lot of complaints that everybody found it boring. But nevertheless, I, I want to hear – that's what I remember most when I covered that topic. Um, in fact, we, we had the plaintiff on. And people kept telling me, in the segment, this is boring. We're tired of hearing about this. I'm like, I find it interesting. Oh, you had, you, oh, you had what's your name on? Whatever yeah. her name was. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't remember her name um, anymore. But, yes, I, I actually had her on, and people complained that they found the whole thing boring. 
Yeah, I mean, well, you know what? The law is boring. It is what it is. So, you know, but, and I remember, but David, David's island, he was the attorney from the other side. I know him from poker forever. He was telling me that he was defending Lee and, and he wanted, you know, see if I could, you know, be an expert witness on backing. I'm like, sure, you know, and, and for me, what was the interesting part about it was that, you know, they had me up in in court and I never actually got to testify in front of the jury but what was going to be interesting for me to have to explain but but from a legal perspective it was just kind of interesting that it was the last thing I kind of do, I kind of did I've just been focusing on my hedge fund which I've had since 2003 and the last like year or so I've been uh, doing more daily fantasy sports actually to kind of keep myself busy okay. I mean I used to yeah I used to do poker as kind of like my insomniac you know 10 p.m. to 3 in the morning activity but after you know I stopped doing poker I actually got really involved my my, my son was a basketball player, so I coached AAU basketball. I did all kind of analytics and, and, and videos and stuff like that. So that kind of kept me busy. And I got involved with, in, with daily fantasy sports in the last year or two. And, and as, as my unluck would have it, me and my, uh, my partner, Bobby Firestone, he played Bobby Fi online. He was kind of a, uh, a DFS expert. We were actually, you know, starting to produce content like for free and we were going to roll out our site and literally like we're right in the, the midst of being able to roll out our site for pay for you know, get paid for it when when sports shut down. Uh, so yeah, you know, it, it is it is what it is. Yeah. So I've been, I've been keeping myself kind of busy, but in the last like couple of weeks, I've kind of like you know I played a little more poker. I've got kind of re reacquainted myself. I did some hand history reviews, and I will tell you this that um I was expecting the play having me not played for a while. I was expecting to be just kind of owned by all these like young kids who are just going to be three and four betting me and doing whatever. And quite honestly, I'm not, I, I'm not particularly impressed with, with, with the play, but in, in fairness, I'm, I'm probably playing against a whole bunch of people that are just getting back into the game over the last couple of weeks anyway. So the pool of players that I'm playing against is probably, probably pretty, pretty, pretty light, I guess. Yeah, well, it's funny. It's, it sounds a little like what Phil Galfon said when uh, he was getting beat really badly by this Vinny Vitti guy, and then he turned it around. He claims that his turnaround is mainly because he stopped trying to play like the like he thought the new guys were playing, and just I'm just going to go back to myself. I'm going to go back to my 2010 self and play and use what worked and play with what worked, and then he starts winning. So, so maybe uh, that, that fits in with what you're saying here that that uh, some. Some of these strategies that, that some people think are so effective now that if, if you go back to what worked in the past to counter it, that it can actually uh, be effective. But you know what, poker? I'm still, I'm, st- you know, again, I hate to talk, make this all about you, but I, I am so, so glad that you continue to doing this because you know, poker. I still really think it's a great game, and and it, it needs kind of. I don't want to call you an ambassador. That's that's a little bit too much pressure. You know what I mean? But 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 people like like you and Joe Ingram and guys like that that are kind of like the voice of poker in at least one form. I think you keep it fresh. I think you keep people excited about it. I think you keep people smart about it. And and, and I, I do really still like it. You know what I mean? So so I, I am glad. I was very glad to see that you continue to do to do this. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay. So so here's a question I have from the forum. Go for it. The forum, uh, Daniel72 asked, are the poker X-Factor training videos saved somewhere or are they lost? It's, it's, okay, so I am, I'm so glad you mentioned it. So, Poker X-Factor as a site closed down, you know, within the last couple of years. And now again, I don't own the site. It was, um, it was owned by, uh, Scott Pendergrass, MindWise, who was, you know, it was his site. And we just, you know, Cliff and I just did a revenue share with him. So while it seemed like I own the site, I was just kind of like, you know, the main content provider or whatever. And within, actually within the past month or two, 
as this stuff was coming back, I said, I actually reached out to Scott and I said, Hey, listen, is this stuff stored somewhere? Some of these videos? And he's actually looking into it as we speak. I mean, yeah, it's obviously somewhere. Um, you know, he had to download everything from the servers before he shut the site down. So yeah, I mean, these hundreds and hundreds of hours of videos that are, that are out there. And, and quite honestly, it's a lot of hard work I put into it. So I would kind of like to, like to access those. So the answer to Daniel 72's question is yes, they are out there. You know, they're out there somewhere, like the, like the X Files. And you know, are you, are you, are you looking there. to put them but, back? And, and, and we'll we'll find it. <laughs> are, are you looking to just put them back? and People can get them for free, or have, where, where are they going like, to? I I have no idea. Okay. I, I, I was looking. I was I was trying to find them for my own my own uh, ego, my own benefit. Just kind of look at look at them again. You know what I mean? To see what I was doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, whatever. I. I I'd love to have people be able to look whatever I did for you know for free or for whatever it is. So yeah, I, I would just like to I would I would like Daniel seventy two's request to be answered in that I'd love to know if I can get those put up somewhere. Yeah, because there's others who like the Poker X Factor as well on this site, like uh, Saw twenty four. Yeah. Said I I agree. I learned a lot from Poker X Factor. So it seems like this is a popular uh, series here. Well, well, you know what you know what else about the PXF again? Like and again, Bobby and I are talking about this. We're talking about our new site or whatever. Is what I think made it made it great. It's look, you know, we just did MTT videos. You know, we didn't do any cash, and the reason for that is because you know. We all sucked at it, so we didn't really know how to teach it, right? So all we know was was, was tournament stuff. So, and the, I thought that the information we gave was really good, but a, a lot of what was really cool was kind of like the community aspect of it. Like I would do these live chats where I would like I would show my screen. This is like long before Twitch ever existed, right? And I, I and people would come on and they would sweat me. We would we would bullshit about stuff. And this is kind of you know call this kind of like overly sentimental, but I got a free, I got a Facebook message about a year ago. From this guy who told me that he actually got married to someone who he met on the Poker X Factor chat, which is kind of bizarre, right? When you think about it. So, so that, that was what I miss about the Poker X Factor was the teaching and just kind of the community of, of just kind of the people that were just kind of into it. Okay. Well, all right. So, uh, th- thank you for appearing on the show. Is there anything you'd like to, uh, promote or anything that you'd like the listeners to know about before we move on here? Well, I, just want to give that I, I, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll, for Bobby's sake, I'll promote this. So again, you know, Bobby Firestone and I are going to be launching a, a DFS site, um, within the next couple of weeks, hopefully, whenever sports comes back. Uh, it's going to be called True DFS and you'll get, you know, we'll, We'll tweet nonstop and bother people about it when it's when it's time, but it's just not kind of time yet. Uh, but I guess that's I, I, I guess I'm, I just want to promote everybody, just kind of trying to keep your kind of see, keep your sense of humor during this time. I mean, it look it sucks, but I will I will tell you this that that I am like literally in the middle of the freaking of of the of the of the of the hurricane. You know what I mean? So so it's 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 tough for everybody i know economically it's tough for a lot of people and psychologically it really screws at people's heads really try to try to try to keep your sense of humor and 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 hang in there yeah that's that's a a good way to look at it and i I hope that uh everything's good i'm glad that your mother got through this and and that uh everything else is okay and that you got out of singapore in time and you're you're back in the u.s and uh, good having you on here, and uh, always happy to hear from you. All right. Uh, take care, Todd. All right. Good night. So that was uh, was Sheets. That was Sheets. He's still here. No, Sheets is ha- trying to hang up. Uh, I, I tried to figure out how to hang up on you. The, oh. Uh, oh, boy, you're, you're stuck with me forever. Oh, no, no. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna figure this out. Oh, there <laughs> it is. Wait, so Todd. And there it is. Ready? Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye. We're going to move on to the next topic. 
now that we are done with our Sheets interview, we talked about a bunch of random things. We're going to talk about the World Series of Poker and their announcement. I know you guys are shocked, but the World Series of Poker is not going to take place in May of 2020. We knew this announcement was coming. It was just a matter of when. I had said it's going to happen in early May. I look like a genius when they went in the Las Vegas Review Journal and announced that they are going to make a decision in early May. And then I didn't look like quite such a genius when they made the announcement before early May. Specifically, they made the announcement on April 20th. So this is the press release from the World Series of Poker. The 51st running of the World Series of Poker, set to begin May 26th at the Rio, is officially being postponed as a result of the public health emergency involving COVID-19. It is now targeted for the fall of 2020 with exact dates and events to be determined. We are committed to running the World Series of Poker this year, but need additional time to proceed on our traditional scale while prioritizing guest and staff well-being, said Ty Stewart, executive director of the World Series of Poker. In the interim, official World Series of Poker competitions are expected to be played online this summer, and we will soon announce details of an expanded t- uh, series of tournaments to be played on WSOP.com and through partnership with the international operators, which will allow players to chase WSOP glory from their homes. Now, they already announced that part with a GG Poker. The 2020 schedule will be revisited as a result of the postponement and changes are anticipated. When this year's edition does run, it will include Poker's World Championship, the $10,000 Main Event Championship, the richest prize pool on the poker calendar each year. Once details for the revised 2020 World Series are finalized, plans will be communicated. The next live event on the WSOP calendar remains the Global Casino Championship scheduled for August 11, 2020 at Harris Cherokee in North Carolina. This is invitation only, open only to those who have qualified. I doubt that'll take place also. They, they just said it's the next one. They don't say it's happening or not happening. They just go, well, that's the next event. They also have one for the fall of 2020 at King's Resort in Razvadov, Czech Republic, which I have a feeling will also be canceled. Well, let's talk about this here. We talked a little already with Sheets about this, but I I want to expand upon it. I don't think this is happening in 2020. I believe for this to be able to occur, that they are going to need a treatment for COVID-19 that is effective. A treatment which you can take that will stop these symptoms from getting very severe that will work for the vast majority of people and does not have any kind of uh, terrible danger or side effects. A treatment so good that your fear of getting COVID-19 will be fairly low. That's what would be needed to where, yeah, at that point you can still take precautions, but one of these things like, okay, I don't want to get this, but if I do, it's not a tragedy. I can stop it. It'll pro- This treatment will probably work on me. Once we're to that point, that's a huge game changer, and then they can hold events like the World Series of Poker, and a lot of people will be willing to show up. I might even be willing to show up under those circumstances if I really think the treatment is good to where I have a very high expectation that it will work. If it works on like 70%, no, I'm still not doing it because uh, I think there's a very high chance of catching the coronavirus at something like the World Series of Poker, definitely higher than anything else I would do. 
and if there's like a 30% chance that the treatment won't work and that I could get all the, the terrible symptoms of it, maybe even death, it would not be worth playing. If the treatment works on uh, a very, very high percentage, like 98% of the people, then then I would probably do it. So that's what I would believe would have to happen for them to run the World Series. And I know people are saying, well, what if everybody wears masks? What if everybody sits a certain number of feet apart? What if all games are six-handed? What if uh, they have a limit on how many people can be in one room? What if they wash the chips off? And it doesn't matter. There is no way to play live poker, especially in a tournament setting, and not have the chips touched by a very large number of people. There's just no way. Maybe cash games where you make sure all the chips stay on the same table and don't leave the same table, and then you eventually wash them every night and it starts fresh the next day, something like that, or maybe even they change out the chips a few times a day. Whatever, something along those lines where they say you're not exposing yourself to that many people. But at a tournament, you're being moved all over the place. Tables have to break in a tournament. There's no such thing as a, a tournament where tables don't break and people don't get moved. People are moving constantly. There's no way to prevent the chips from moving around everywhere. And that automatically is a risk. It doesn't matter if you socially distance. doesn't matter if you wear masks. The only way this will be safe is if it is proven that you don't get it from surfaces. And I don't believe that's going to be proven. I think you do get it from surfaces and the air. That's that's my guess, much like uh, it is with, with colds, much like it is with the flu, that you can get it from both sources. So I think it's a very bad idea to go play live poker if there is not a game changer as far as progress against this or unless this thing just dies out surprisingly and disappears which I don't think will happen by October. We have each year if it mutates enough. That's why the flu never dies out. Do, do we have the flu just disappear? No, there's a different strain each year. So that may be the thing with the coronavirus. There, there may be a new strain each year. They may have a vaccine against it, but there may be a new strain each year, maybe something that, that just never dies out and kills people each year like the flu does. This may be a new threat to humanity that we just have to live with. And that while it's kind of shocks to the system now, that uh, eventually people get used to it. Eventually people go, okay, well, yeah, this may die of the flu this year, this may people die of the coronavirus this year, and it's just something you accept. And in fact, kids, except for like very little kids who, who aren't really conscious of what's going on, will grow up just seeing it as a normal part of life, which, as strange as it sounds, might end up being true. But even without that being the case, I don't think it's going to just vanish on its own so much during the summer or from herd immunity that by October it's just going to be all but gone and we can just uh, go completely back to normal and do things like play live poker without a care in the world. So I think that in October it's probably not going to happen. And if it does happen, that it would be a very reduced field it's going to be a crappy field and that it'll be mostly poker diehards that play. And I don't think it's a very safe thing to do unless you are pretty sure you're not going to get it again, meaning that, number one, you've already had it. 
And number two, that it's shown by then that you can't catch it a second time, or at least in that period of time since last having it. Or that there's a, a treatment that's in place that is so effective that it's not a big concern anymore. Other than that, I'm not going to be there and it probably won't run. And they're even cautiously stating that it's been loosely postponed until the fall. They're not even saying October. I'm not, I'm just saying October. But they're just saying that the fall. That's what they're hoping for. Why the fall? Because they know the summer's unrealistic. And if it's the winter, it's getting too close to the next year's World Series. I don't think they want to hold a makeup World Series in February, for example. That's that's too close to May. So at that point, they might as well just wait to 2021. I just think there's a good chance there'll be no 2020 World Series of poker. And depending upon what happens with this whole thing, 2021 might be in danger, as strange as that might sound. There probably will not be a vaccine ready to use by the time the 2021 World Series comes around. So I think there's a decent chance that I won't play that one either. And a lot of you won't play that one either when you otherwise would have if this was not going on. So the World Series of Poker announcing this is not really that big of news. People were waiting for it to be announced, but by the time they announced it, just about everybody admitted that the chance of this running is just about zero. I thought it actually was zero. It just it didn't look like it was possible because it really is the highest risk activity you can do. I don't know what would be a higher risk activity. Playing in several days worth of poker tournaments or spending a week on a cruise ship. It's close. Another one that would be very high risk would be uh, something like Coachella with 120,000 people all closely packed together and moving around to where you're encountering a lot of them. But at least that's outdoors. At least that's one advantage there. It's outdoors and the sun's beating down and the sun, the sun is known to kill it. So at least that's one advantage. This is indoors. <laughs> and uh, and people are trading chips everywhere. It, it's, and people are moving seats where people previously sat. The, the whole thing is, is tailor-made to spread this thing, as, as Sheets said earlier in this show. So I'm definitely not playing. It is possible that the next World Series I go to I'll be eligible to play the seniors event. I'll actually be 50 years old by that point in 2022. Now, do I think it's possible that I won't even return in 2022? Answer, yes. It is possible that if, let's look at this. Let's say they can't get a vaccine by May of 2022. And don't say that's not possible. It, It may very well occur that they can't get an effective vaccine. They can't just snap their fingers and and a vaccine appears. This is a very difficult thing to do, to create vaccines for viruses. And and then, of course, there's a lengthy testing process, which, number one, they have to prove that it's effective, and number two, have have to prove it's safe. And this requires a lot of extensive testing. So, yes, it could it could take more than two years. Just because they say 12 to 18 months, that's kind of saying that's our guess and don't expect it before then. That's a minimum. But there's no maximum. There's even there's even an acceptance that's starting to come within the medical community 
that there is a chance there will never be a vaccine for COVID-19. So don't count on the vaccine. So if I don't have it, if I don't get it, and we're in 2022, and it's still out there, and it's still a threat, and there's no vaccine, and there's no good treatment, I may not play that or live poker ever again. And if I don't, I don't. And that's it. And if I don't like the online options anymore, then I'll quit poker entirely. Sometimes things end. Sometimes uh, circumstances change. I I don't want to be too negative here. I don't want to predict the very worst, but I'm just throwing out there that it's very optimistic to think that October is going to come. This is all going to be passed. It's going to be a good World Series. It's just going to be moved. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. So we'll have to see. But I would believe this is probably not taking place. And if it does take place, it's probably not going to be safe. It's probably going to take place in reckless fashion where there's going to be the illusion of cautiousness and the illusion of safety. When in reality, there's a very good chance that uh, it will be transmitted that way. In fact, I would say 100% chance it gets transmitted. The question is, who will get it? Not 100% chance you'll get it if you go out and play, but it's a 100% chance that if this virus is still around in October, that it will be transmitted there at the World Series to some people. So that's something you should think about if you consider playing there. What about online? Some people say, okay, well, now they've canceled this. What, what about their plans to move this online? Well, I already talked about this circuit event last week that they're going to be having on GG Poker that is not open to U.S. players. What about ones open to U.S. players? Well, if they hold bracelet events open to U.S. players, I'm going to be very disappointed. If they do hold such events, I hope they are just considered circuit events for rings. I, I'm not bothered by rings being awarded, but circuit, but, but bracelets... They've already devalued the bracelets somewhat by holding like $360 buy-in events, by holding other online events in previous years. I've had a big problem with all of that. I've always believed the World Series of Poker should be a $1,000 minimum buy-in for all the events and that it should be all live, nothing online. And I've given my reasoning before. I won't go into it again, but I'm not a fan of the online bracelet anyway. But at least the online bracelet, everybody who was there already to play regular events could play the online events. So it wasn't just restricted to people living in Nevada and Delaware and New Jersey. It was open to anybody who was there in Las Vegas for the World Series of Poker who wanted to play on their computer instead of playing live. I could have played some of these online events. I chose not to because I don't like them. But I could have. But what about if they hold it this year? You're not going to have people traveling to Vegas, at least not very many, just to play online World Series of Poker events. When all the regular events are closed, only the online ones. So it's mainly going to be a competition among locals. And how can you give out a World Series of Poker bracelet where it's only a competition among locals and everybody who would have come from out of the area to play the World Series in a normal year will not be there. So that really, really cheapens the bracelet. It's bad enough to have an online bracelet. I think there's all kinds of problems with an online bracelet. But this would be an online bracelet where a lot of people who would have played it 
can't play it. So that really waters down what it means. So I hope they don't give away online bracelets just because they think, well, we have to give away bracelets in 2020. This is the only way. No, you don't. Just just don't give away bracelets in 2020. You've given away a ton of bracelets in the lifetime of the World Series, especially in the 2010s, especially going forward in the 2020s when this is all past. So just, just don't hold it in 2020. It happens. Sometimes things don't take place. There was no Baseball World Series in 94. Baseball survived. People don't think about that much anymore. So just just skip it. It's not a tragedy. It's not even like it's Caesar's fault. It's not like people are going to be mad about it. What happened to the 2020 bracelets? No one's going to care. You'll just skip this year, pretend it didn't happen. So that's what they should do. I, I don't know what they're going to do, but I really hope they don't use WSOP.com to give out bracelets this year. That would be dumb, but we will see. Trader Risky, how do you feel about this? Would you like it if they're giving out online bracelets this year, knowing that most people playing these events are only going to be people who live in the States? No, they definitely shouldn't. I mean, unless they set something up where, like, people can... I, I don't think there's a way to do it. No. Um, I mean, online draft, if they did, what about, remember those machines they had at HP for a while where you could play, but it wouldn't be chips and it was electronic? Yeah. Did those ever do anything? I mean, they're still technically around. He's talking about the electronic poker machines where, uh, in fact, as I've talked to how Benjamin played one once on a cruise ship when he was uh, one year old, uh, but it's where you're playing live poker, except instead of using chips, you're actually uh, playing on an electronic machine. And uh, they have those on cruise ships often. But they have been in some brick-and-mortar casinos too, especially in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Uh, those could make a comeback. Uh, I don't know. I don't think they've ever been programmed to do tournaments, but they technically could be. It would bring some ability to play more safely because there's no chips going around and theoretically everybody could stay in the same seats so even uh, they would also have to the problem is they'd have to program it see people are, are still physically sitting at the same table when they're at the same virtual table so they'd have to find a way around that too which is a problem yeah. uh, so they still have people moving seats which could be an issue so I, it, it would still be a challenge. It would take the chips out, at least, from the whole thing. And these are a lot more expensive to place down than regular poker tables, which are not that expensive. So I, I don't know. Maybe that could be a solution if this just absolutely doesn't go away and they have to find a, a safer way for people to play poker with one another. It's not a bad thought. I just I don't see it being part of the World Series this year. But whatever it is, whatever they do, I just really hope there's no online bracelets this year because people just aren't going to be there to play these bracelet events where they normally would be. And that's just, that's just not what a bracelet should be about. So I, I also, yeah. I mean, and I agree with you, Jeff. I think just this year didn't happen. Move everything to next year to try to cram it in in the fall or the spring. They could maybe have a different series or something. But I think the true bracelet events have to stay next May and June. Yeah, that's what I think too. And also, I think the latest they can do it 
before just saying, look, this is too close to 2021 is November. I think November is once they don't, if November passes and they don't do it, they're going to just say, screw it. Next World Series is in 2021. And that's going to be that. I, I think that's why they're even saying the falls because they don't want to do it later in the fall. But they know they probably can't do it earlier, so that's, that's their shot. If they can get it done sometime in the fall, like October, November, they'll do it. Otherwise, it's too close to the next year. We'll just let the next year go. And that's what I see happening, and I, I think it's just not going to happen at all. And we will see what happens from that point forward. Okay, next topic. I want to talk some about Christopher Mitchell before we get Robbie Straczynski on here in half an hour. So if you remember last week, we had a two-hour segment about uh, professional gambling coach Christopher Mitchell, who, I mean, let's just be honest here. He's, it's a scam. He's a scammer. He's, he's selling something which doesn't work, which I believe he knows does not work. Possibly he's delusional and thinks it does, and I'll, I'll tell you shortly why that's possible. But even if he does think it works, he's covering up uh, the truth about its results. He's lying about his own net worth. He's lying about the results. He's lying about how he makes his money. So even if he's delusional and thinks that this will work eventually, even if it's not working great for him, uh, he's either lying directly about the whole thing being effective or he should know by now and should know that it's not working for him and he's definitely lying about his results. So it's a scam. It is a scam. Okay, now... There has been a thorn in Christopher Mitchell's side. I mentioned this last week, and I want to mention it again. In fact, the guy was nice enough, this thorn in Christopher Mitchell's side was nice enough to to grab the two-hour segment we did on Christopher Mitchell and post it on his YouTube channel. And I'm like, uh-oh, we're going to have new listeners to a segment from the show, people who aren't familiar with the show. I, I hope they don't bash me. Well, it turned out they liked it. We I got very, very good reviews from the people hearing the two-hour segment I did who uh, who were following this uh, this other channel. See, this is a channel called uh, YouTube Scam Exposers, and it's pretty much dedicated to exposing Christopher Mitchell. And this guy, Kevin Davis, who runs it, YouTube Scam Exposers, has just been a tremendous thorn in Mitchell's side. And you, you can tell that Christopher Mitchell is exasperated by this whole thing. Like, he is so fresh. He just wants to run his little scam and, and be left alone, which he shouldn't be. I'm not saying he, that he should be left alone, but that's what he wants. Or, yeah, he knows he'll probably get some people complaining or he'll get a scam, but I'm sure he did not picture something like this, that there's going to be this one really dedicated guy to exposing him that has a YouTube channel just to expose him and that's gotten people together to do research on him and has found all this stuff in his past about his, his gay porn life. And, I mean, this Kevin Davis guy has been relentless. And you can tell in a lot of these now-deleted uh, Christopher Mitchell responses, which I talked about last week, that he is so frustrated by the whole thing. And boy, does he wish this wasn't happening. But it's actually a good thing here. This is a good thing that someone like this has attracted the attention of someone who is very relentless and dedicated to exposing them and just keeps hitting them super, super hard day after day after day with new videos on his own channel. Uh, exposing what Christopher Mitchell's doing and also getting people's attention uh, in the gambling community about this whole thing. So 
I, I've been observing this whole thing, and that's kind of a side story, not just the, that Christopher Mitchell is a scammer, but that uh, there's a movement to expose him that's being led by this uh, Kevin Davis, who, as I said, actually put uh, two hours of the show up on his own channel, which is fine. I don't mind that he did that, and it gives the show more exposure, and uh, it showed that he liked what we did here, and, and the followers of his channel enjoy what I did, so, so great. And I, I stand by everything I said last week. So if you've tried to follow this at all, because there's a lot more to the story than what I put out in the two hours last week or what I'm going to put out this week, I really suggest you take a look at Christopher Mitchell's videos, and his channel is called, uh, uh, I think, Change Your Life. Uh, so change your, I, I can find it here. Let me, I, change Your Life something. Let me see here. It is called Change Your Life Vlog. That's what it's called. And there's so many videos that are that have been posted already and that continue to be posted by Christopher Mitchell of uh, his gambling system, which we debunked last week. But I found some more stuff since then, and I want to share this with some of you because some of these videos are just hilarious, and I feel I have to bring them here. Even though I did a two-hour segment last week, which I won't do this week, I still feel you guys have to hear some of this because it's, it's just so cringeworthy and so bad. And I want you guys to hear. I'm sorry. I can't keep this to myself. I know Jeff Dime, who brought this to me, who's a listener to this show, he loves it. I know The Shrink, who's in uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, he's enjoying this very much. He's, he's actually uh, – he actually really is a shrink, so he enjoys this type of thing, <laughs> watching these uh, deviant characters and delving into all this. But really, if you're bored, if you want some drama to follow – Check out Christopher Mitchell's channel of Change Your Life Vlog and check out the channel exposing him, YouTube Scam Exposers, run by Kevin Davis. The whole thing is very entertaining, very amusing. And, and props to Kevin Davis for staying on this guy. I mean, th- this is, I wish this happened to all scammers. I, I wish that all scammers had someone as relentless as Kevin Davis just like, just hammering them day after day after day to where I, I, I imagine the Christopher Mitchell like wakes up and the first thing he, on his mind is like, oh, crap, I wonder what this Kevin Davis put out about me today. I, I wonder what he's doing to me today. I wonder what he's searching about me today. I mean, he's got to be constantly worried. You could tell. You could tell in his like in his response videos how how frustrated he is. And I, I wish this happened to more scammers because it's it's very satisfying to watch. Okay, so I'm going to play this Martingale betting strategy video. And if you want to hear all about Martingale, listen to last week's show where I talk about what Christopher Mitchell's doing. I'm not going to talk about now the Martingale strategy itself, but good news. If you don't know what that is, you'll hear it being described by Christopher Mitchell in this cringeworthy video that was actually posted on the day of radio last week. I had not noticed it yet when I was preparing the show. It was posted April 18th, 2020. Hey YouTube, Christopher Mitchell here from Change Your Life Vlog. And in this video, I want to talk to you about the Martingale betting strategy. If this is the first time you've been to my channel, I want to welcome you. If you have no idea who I am, like I said, my name is Christopher Mitchell. And I'm a professional gambler. And yes, I use the Martingale betting strategy every single time I go into a casino. And that's how I make so much money. So this is real money. It's um, $50,000 in cash. And um, you're not going to see probably anyone on YouTube showing you this kind of cash. He's showing cash here. 
very few people on YouTube have this kind of cash. Now, this is something he always does. He always has a big stack of cash he's, hope, he's holding, which may be real or fake. There's been some debate about this. I won't go into that again. But he's holding a big stack of cash, and he holds it at the beginning of every video. He likes to flash it. He likes to quickly run his fingers through it and then loves to throw in your face that most Americans uh, aren't holding this type of cash, and he is, and therefore you should listen to him. It's definitely a prop to give himself credibility, credibility which, of course, he doesn't deserve. And I'm not showing you this kind of cash to brag. I'm yeah, sure showing you're not. you this kind of cash to prove a point. So having said <laughs> that, if you like this video and you like my channel, make sure you subscribe and hit that thumbs up button. And if you don't like me, you don't like my channel, and you don't like this video, feel free to hit that thumbs down button. You're not going to hurt my feelings either way. But I always encourage people to speak their mind and take action. So no, you don't. That's such a lie. He deletes every single negative comment. I mean, you can thumbs down it, but he deletes every single negative comment on there about it being a scam or it not working. How can he even say that? That's just such a blatant lie. Why even say that? Why even say I encourage you guys to be truthful and then you delete anyone telling the truth? I can't believe he's even – even Christopher Mitchell surprises me saying that. Wow, I can't believe that came out of his mouth, but I don't know. Maybe I can. So having said that, in this video, I'm going to give you my own personal opinion, and it's based on facts about why the Martingale betting strategy works for me, why it's made me so much money but why it hasn't worked for you if you've used it before and how it can start working for you. So everything in this video is going to be about the Martingale betting strategy. And the Martingale betting strategy can work for craps. It can work for roulette. It can work for Baccarat. It can work for blackjack. I personally play Baccarat and blackjack and I make thousands and thousands of dollars a week. So having said that, I'm going to assume you're brand new to the gambling world and you might not know what the Martingale betting strategy is. Okay, tell us. What so is it? Let me first share with you what it is and how it works. All so right. the Martingale betting strategy states this. If you place a bet in whatever game it is you're playing and you lose that bet, you're going to double the size of your next bet. So when you do win, you recoup your losses from the previous bets plus profit. So let me show you with actual money. We go into a casino and let's say we're playing blackjack. I put $100 down on my bet and I lose the bet. So my next bet, I'm going to double it to $200. If I win the $200 bet, I recouped my previous loss of $100 and now just gained another $100 in profit. Folks, Quite simply, that's how the Martingale betting strategy works. It's very simple to understand. It's not complicated. However, this is why it doesn't work for most people. Okay, before we get to why it doesn't work for most people, which, which is a, a funny explanation, why does anyone pay him from coaching, for coaching if they believe this works? He just gave you the strategy. Why do you need him? He's right. It's very simple. It's very simple. Just go there, bet. If it loses, double your bet. If it loses, double that bet. If it loses, double that bet. And keep doing that. So if he believes this is the way to make money at the casino, and he's telling you this right here, 
what more is there? Shouldn't you just be able to go do it yourself? You don't pay him the $2,500. You don't pay him half your winnings like he suggested last week. Why even go with him? Now, I know he has these additional parts to the strategy, which basically say don't lay down any other money in the same bet for any reason. So if you're playing blackjack, don't double down, don't split, which, of course, is horrible advice. Uh, don't surrender. Just always keep the same bet out there, and then when it loses, double. And if it wins, then just make the original bet again. That's, that's the whole strategy. Even if you believe him, which you'd be a fool to believe him, but even if you believe him, why do you even need him at this point? He's told you the whole thing. But let's hear his explanation for why it doesn't work. Now, as I mentioned last week, the real reason it doesn't work is that eventually you go on a brutal streak and it kills you. That the only possible way Martingale can work is if you have literally unlimited funds. And when I say literally, I mean actual unlimited funds and an unlimited table max to where you can just keep doubling, 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 doubling until finally you win one. Even if it takes you 200 bets in a row, you finally win one. And, and, and you can double your bet each time. You have enough money to double your bet each time. And the casino will let you double your bet each time. And you don't bump against any maximum. That's the only way it can work, which, of course, none of this is possible. No maximum is ever high enough for that. And nobody, even the richest man in the world, has the bankroll for that. So it can't work. Eventually, a losing streak will come around, which I'll explain mathematically very shortly, that will decimate you and will bust your whole bankroll. So this Martingale strategy is both negative expectation and very, very high variance to where you'll bust. But he's going to explain why most people lose with it. So this I want to hear. Number one, most people, they live and they gamble in complete and utter fear. F-E-A-R. It's an acronym that I've talked about in several of my videos before, and it stands for false expectations appearing real. That's, that's not an acronym. Fear is a word. You made the acronym from the word. What are you expecting when you walk into the casino? Are you expecting to lose like 99% of the population does? Well, guess what? If that's what you're expecting, then that's what's going to happen. You're going to lose. What? All right. Reason number two why the Martingale betting strategy hasn't worked for you up to this point is because... You don't have a big enough bankroll. See, most people who go into a casino, they have a poverty, a lottery mindset. And what I mean by that is they go in way underprepared. So they'll walk in with $500 and they'll hope to walk out with $5,000. But folks, you need to retrain your brain. It's the exact opposite. You need to walk in with $5,000 and set a goal to make $500 in profit. That's why I'm successful. Number one, I have a massive bankroll. I can cover as many losses that I need to. No, you can't. And we're going to explain shortly why you absolutely can't. With this $50,000 he claims he's holding, we're going to, we're going to forget the doubters for the moment and, and at least say for argument's sake it's a real 50 k I'm going to explain very shortly why that is nothing for a Martingale strategy. And then I don't set my goals so big that are unrealistic for me to make a profit every single day. Folks, that, that doesn't matter. I never need $50,000, but that's a pretty big bankroll. Yes, you Let do. Let me just ask you a question. Oh, yes, you do, and yes, you did. Yes, you did. See, this actually happened to him recently, and he admitted it. He loves to contradict himself. So this is on April 18th. Two months earlier, he really did bust most of the role he brought to a casino because he had a bad run Martin Galing and then didn't know what to do. 
but let's let him go on. If I gave this $50,000 to you right now, you took it into a casino, do you think you would have a 99.99% chance of making at least $500 profit? No. Even if you didn't have my own personal winning tips and strategies, don't you think you would feel very confident of making profit if you had a bankroll this big? No. I'm going to go ahead and answer that for you and say yes. Wrong. But see, folks, what most people do... <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what your bankroll is. If it's a, if it's negative expectation, your bankroll could be a billion dollars and you're still going to be negative expectation. Now, you can do the betting style to where you're either going to win very little or lose an absolute fortune, which is what he's doing here. But you can't just say, well, if I have a bankroll this big, can't you think I'm going to win this little every time? No. If it's negative expectation, it's negative expectation. Of making at least $500 profit, even if you didn't have my own personal winning tips and strategies, don't you think you would feel very confident of making profit if you had a bankroll this big? I'm going to go ahead and answer that for you and say yes. But see, folks, what most people do, they'll go in with 500 bucks, and this money is for their bills. They can't even afford to lose it. They shouldn't be going into a casino in the first place. But they'll take $500, and they'll set a goal to make $5,000. So, folks, in order to make that happen... They're going to be in the casino for hours. And the longer you're in the casino, guess what? The more money you're going to lose. So in no time at all, they lose their 500 bucks, and then they blame whatever system or strategy it is that they probably weren't even using in the first place. And then they go home frustrated, stressed out, and depressed because now they can't even pay their bills because this was money that was supposed to be used to pay their bills. So, folks, the reason number two why Martingale betting strategy isn't working for you, your bankroll is too small. Reason number three why the Martingale betting strategy hasn't worked for you up to this point, you go into a casino with no proven game plan whatsoever. You don't what have that any mean? winning tips. You don't have a <laughs> winning, winning system. You don't have any specific strategies that you're following. You cross your fingers you walk into a casino and you hope and pray that you win. Folks, you're never going to become profitable in a casino, especially day in and day out like I am, if you walk in and hope and pray. Folks, you need to have a specific winning strategy that you follow every single time you walk into a casino, no matter what. See, the last thing is actually true. But it's not true like he's saying. It, it is true that before you sit down at any game in a casino, you have to know why the odds are in your favor. Not just hope they are, but you have to know that they are for this reason. Like if you're sitting at a poker table, I know I'm better than the average player at this table at this limit, so I'm positive expectation to win. You may not win that session, but at least you know you're positive. Or I know how to count cards in blackjack. And I know how to do it right, therefore I'm positive expectation. And and the game is good enough with the right rules to where I'm positive expectation. Or uh, or this I'm doing this particular slot play that I know for this mathematical reason is positive expectation if I play these slots under these specific circumstances. And this type of stuff all exists, and people do it profitably. There's variance to it. You have to have the right bankroll, but these can all be done profitably. 
But he's not talking about that. He's just talking about just go in with a strategy, with a betting strategy, play negative expectation games, and somehow you can turn to positive. It never works that way. Now, let me explain to you how simple it is to bust and and why it's so reckless what he's doing and what he's having his students do. Because I realized something with him holding up all these hundreds, that he actually recommends that people bet $100 as a base bet, which is crazy. So if you bet $100 as a base bet and then double it every time you lose, let me show you how quickly it can go wrong. If you lose six times in a row in a 50-50 type game, like say uh, Baccarat or Blackjack, something where you're winning roughly half the hands, and I know it's not exactly half, but roughly half the hands, if you play just 50 hands, the chance is that you are probably going to lose six times in a row at some point during those 50 hands. And losing those six times in a row, if your base bet is 100, would cost you $6,300. If you were to lose nine times in a row, it would cost you $51,000. Wow. So that is a big problem if you're trying to win 100 bucks at a time. So here, if you play just 50 hands, your most likely worst losing streak is going to be six. When I say most likely worst, I mean in a typical stream of 50 hands, if you look at what is my worst point of those 50 hands, how many am I going to lose in a row at the worst, it's probably going to be six. There's variance to that. It might be seven, it might be five, it might be four, it might be eight. But six is the most likely number of a losing streak you're going to have in 50 hands. In 500 hands, that number grows to nine, which doesn't sound that bad, but nine and six are hugely different. Now, six is bad enough. When you lose six in a row using that Martingale strategy, you've lost $6,300. So that means all those individual hundreds you've won, even if you've done that 63 times, now you're back to even. If you've done it 30 times, you're way down. But if you lose nine times in a row which is expected to happen if you play just 500 hands, you will be down $51,000. If you play 1,000 hands and you lose, you're expected to lose 10 times in a row, and that would cost you over $100,000. So you see why his $50,000 bankroll isn't that great. Also, when I talk about how many hands you're playing, I'm talking about you not just playing that many hands. You see, you like let's take 50 hands. That's just if you were to play 50 hands and stop. But uh, let's say you were to play 50 hands multiple times, well, then, then it becomes uh, a higher chance that you're going to lose uh, a lot more in a row. As I said, 500, the most likely losing streak you're going to have at one point is 9, which would cost you over 50K. If you do 1,000 in a row, most likely is 10, which costs you over 100K. So if you're losing 50K, 100K from individual streaks while you're playing, how are all these individual hundreds you're winning going to help you? The answer is they're not going to. The answer is this is going to decimate you. The answer is you're going to be up for a while. Then eventually the martingale devil will come for you and you are going to lose not just what you won, but the entire role you brought with you because these streaks will come. And the only way to stop it is if you have an unlimited bankroll, not just big, unlimited, and the casino will take unlimited action from you, even with billions of dollars. It just moves up so fast 
especially if you start at a $100 base bet. Now, if you were to start at a $5 base bet, then you're only going to be making 5 bucks at a time, so you're going to barely make any money. But at least there, if you set a top stop loss where if, if you lose this many times in a row, you just quit, then at least you're not going to get decimated. So, for example, losing 10 times in a row trying to martingale with a base of $5 per hand, you're going to lose a little over $5,100. Now, that sucks if you're making $5 each time to lose 5100 but at least there I could see the reason to do this if you're just doing it for fun. That, that's at least, if, if there is a, a spread in the limit allowed to do that, it's still negative expectation, but at least um, it's something you can do for fun without decimating yourself because the the you're starting at a low base. Now, you're never going to make that much from doing it. That's the, you still have the problem of only making making a little versus losing a whole lot. But uh, at least the whole lot's not going to be huge. But you started something like 100 in an attempt to make real money because if you notice in his previous videos, he talked about how these people are winning $1,000, $1,500 in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. The only way you can do that is if you're martingaling with a base of $100. So this shows you how quickly you can lose. This shows you in 50 hands, you're expected to lose six in a row, which is over $6,000, and you may very well lose seven or eight times in a row, which is over $12,000 or over $25,000. So it will decimate most bankrolls that show up there, all in an attempt to make low four figures. So you see how terrible this strategy really is. Now, this really happened to him because he made a video that you can find on the Poker Fraud Alert forum or on uh, Christopher Mitchell's channel where he talked about this session he had in Biloxi where he lost $36,000. And he tried to rationalize it about, well, this needed to happen. This needed to humble me. I've been so successful. I've done so well all this time so fast. I've made so much money so fast. Just everything's gone right. I needed this to happen to show me that it's not that easy. So this is a good thing. It was all BS. What really happened is he, he showed up to Biloxi. He had $60,000 on him, and, and he had a few students with him, so he couldn't cover up that this happened. Enough people saw it to where he had to address it, and he lost $36,000. He lost like 19 at one casino and 17 at the other, but, but what, what happened was that he lost enough times in a row to where he got scared. That fear he was talking about, the F-E-A-R acronym, he got afraid. He had the fear. He didn't want to keep betting and bust his role if he loses two more hands. So this is what a lot of people do when they're martingaling, is everything seems fine until they get to an amount that they're uncomfortable to bet because they realize if they just lose two more hands, they're done, and they're busted. So then they go, well, maybe I shouldn't continue doubling. I'll just go back and repeating my last bet. And then they'll go to a, a, just a large flat betting strategy, <laughs> and, uh, and that's what he did. He got scared to continue progressing it, so he just started you know, betting 5K, 10K, 5K, 10K sort of, sort of bets, uh, lost some more, and then finally quit 36K down. That's basically what happened, and it's obvious. Even he admitted in a later video that the mistake he made was flat betting at one point. Well, he flat bet at one point because the Martingale system stopped working for him, as it will always stop, especially if your base bet is $100. And that is the big flaw with the Martingale system, is that you're either going to win a little or lose a ton. So even though you're going to win a little most of the time, you're going to lose a ton every once in a while that wipes all that out and more. And that is the reason. You just, no matter what your role is, you can't play for money meaningful to you without putting yourself at huge risk. So there's no upside. 
Either you play so small that you're, you're unlikely to hit a terrible streak that can bust you, but you're going to win pennies each time, or you're, you're playing uh, large enough to make some money, but uh, it, it's going to bust you because uh, it goes up so quickly. So either way, you're screwed. Also, apparent, there's some more information that's come out about his gay porn life that I want to share with you guys before we call up uh, Robbie Straczynski. Kevin Davis found for Christopher Mitchell, there is a 2010 tweet because Christopher Mitchell has claimed in a response video that he did gay porn only as like a desperate 18, 19 year old when basically he had no other choice. But I picked up in LA Weekly and I was looking in the classified section because I'm thinking, what do I do? I need to get a job or something. And in the classified section, I see an ad and it says this, muscle guys wanted. I'm like, hmm, muscle guys wanted. Well, I don't know how big of a muscle guy is wanted, but I've got some muscles. And the little classified ad said, muscle guys wanted $2,000 for one hour. Folks, are you listening to what I'm saying right now? I'm living in my beat up car. So I called the number and I said, hi, I'm calling about the muscle guys wanted. I'm a young bodybuilder. I've got some muscles. What's this about? And the voice on the other end, here's what the voice said. I'll pay you $2,000 for an hour to pose nude and to masturbate. And I'm like, really? I'm like, that's it? Like, I'm by myself and I got to pose nude and I got to masturbate. That's it. And the voice said, yeah. I said, done deal. Where do I sign? I didn't have sex with another man, which would be considered gay and homosexual. Because I have people out there saying I'm a gay porn star. A gay porn star. Well, let's break that down. What is a gay porn star? What is gay? Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't gay when a person has sex with another person of the same gender, like two females having sex, that's gay, or two males having sex, that's gay. That is what gay is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, true or false. Because people are saying I'm a gay porn star. But when I put my hand on the Holy Bible and swore that I've never done gay porn before, and I swore that I've never had sex with another man before, and people are calling me a liar, where did I lie? Because I didn't lie. I've never lied. I've never done gay porn, which is having sex with another man on camera. And I've never had sex with a man off the camera. It seems that that's not true, that he actually did it in 2010 when he was 31 years old. So that whole story is completely false. But I said last week, well, I guess there's a possibility that he made the porn in the late 90s and they ended up using the footage in 2010. Well, now I think that's even less likely because a tweet, August 6th, 2010. I think this is the earliest tweet I've ever read on this show. A tweet from August 6th, 2010. This is from at Queer Porn Nation. <laughs> it says, Chris Mitchell becomes Kyle Prescott at Colt. And then has a link to QueerPornNation.com and an article all about how he's become Kyle Prescott, the masturbating gay porn star. So, again, this is not about, uh, like, just 
a movie that happens to feature him. This is that uh, this is something he's doing now. And it was also pretty clear that if you look at the pictures of him in the porn film, even just the still photos of him, and if you look at the pictures of him when he was much younger into the uh, the bodybuilding scene, you can see that he aged between the two. You could see that the guy in porn was not an 18-year-old. You could see it, it was a guy in his early 30s. So the whole thing about, oh, I did this in 97 is not true. Anyway, I I tried to go to this link, which it was funny. This is such an old tweet that uh, now on Twitter, if you put up a link, Twitter will automatically convert the link into like a Twitter link where you click on and – uh, Twitter processes the link and and brings you to the site. Well, back in 2010, if you posted a link, it just appeared as text, like you couldn't click on it. You'd actually have to copy and paste it. That's how that's how amateurish Twitter was back in 2010, even though it had been around for a little while. But uh, anyway, first I try to click on it, it doesn't work. Then I so I copy and paste it. This queerpornation.com 2010 slash 08 blah blah blah. So obviously, this is written in August 2010. I tried to copy and paste it, and Queer Porn Nation, I sadly found that uh, it doesn't work anymore. The The site just hangs. It just sits and sits and sits and sits and, and never goes to any web page. So it just doesn't load. So it, it's interesting. It's not like it's been shut down completely, but it, it's broken. There's no way to loan it. So I had to consult archive.org where they have kept – a whole lot of web pages and preserve them as they were on various dates through history. And I was able to find this page and I went to go look at it. And let me tell you, it was comedy. So, so uh, let me tell you what I found there. It says Chris Mitchell becomes Kyle Prescott at Colt. The transfer, and by the way, if you go to this, you can see the link on Poker Fraud Alerts, uh, Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum in that Christopher Mitchell thread. But beware when you click on it, you're, you're going to see uh, Christopher Mitchell's penis. It's going to be right there in your face. So just be, just beware, okay? I, I don't want to traumatize you. You're going to see an older picture of him from when he was younger and had more hair. Uh, currently has no hair. But you're going to see an old picture of him when he's pretty muscular and, and in his 20s. You're going to see a picture of him in his early 30s when he's actually in the porn and you you get to see uh, him naked with with his penis. It looks like uh, I guess it's hard. I'm, I'm trying not to study it too closely. <laughs> and it's clearly him older. Like it's clearly him in his early 30s. This is not him as an 18 year old. There's no way that picture is of an 18 year old. And then there's an article. So so you read the article. It says the transformation of porn stars continues to amaze me. Chris Mitchell, a young bodybuilder in the late 1990s, went from fit to flab. When he, post, when he posed for chaosmen.com, is back in top shape as Kyle Prescott for cult. So it's interesting. They're, they're claiming that he actually lost his nice body that he had in, in the 90s to pose for something called chaosmen.com, which I haven't even bothered to click on, but I guess he didn't look uh, that good anymore. <laughs> and uh, he went from fit to flab. But uh, now, supposedly, now being uh, August 2010... He's back in top shape for for this uh, gay porn film he did at the time. <laughs> in the third scene of Minuteman Big Load, which we discussed last week, Kyle Prescott, which is his stage name, awakens rock hard and ready to greet the day, stroking and squeezing his dick, 
probing and spreading his ass and moans, I want to come so bad because he has so much cum stored in him. <laughs> Imagine having this up there about you. <laughs> He's trying to posture as this, uh, this Christian uh, professional gambler who loves his life so much. And, and, and here he was at, at age 31 doing this. And he totally denies that he's gay or bi. So, okay. So then if you scroll down here, there's also comments at the end. This is from a guy named Jumper. Now, remember, this is all back in 2010, but it's still just as funny today. Jumper said, he used to look hot with an amazing body. Now he looks just like Sean Hayes on the gym for a year. Not too bad, but compared to his old look, he looks really skinny. I hope he knows how to fuck and get fucked by a guy, because if he claimed he's straight, I'm going to shoot myself. <laughs> okay, let's go on to the next review. Topsy Turvy writes, he also did a couple of Fratman videos a few years back as Kyle. He's not as bulked up in those and pretty fucking hot, so Topsy Turvy's a fan. I'd like to know about these Fratman videos. I hate, well, actually, I don't think I want to know. Uh, maybe Kevin Davis can research this if he hasn't already uh splines or spleens s-p-l-i-n-e-s he also did the softcore video for sharpshooter called college swim team billed as kyle adams boy he's really been prolific he also did some other solo soft work to around that time early 2000s and i'm sure he used the name kyle prescott i used to think he was hot now with those precious plucked eyebrows he does look just like sean hayes from will and grace I thought he was strictly straight trade, but these picks, especially the ones from side, fairly squeen, scream queen. A bad case of gay face. He should quit plucking the brows and give his still uh, and give up his still sweet and ample ass. <laughs> I don't quite understand that review, but it's still funny. I, I think the person's complaining about the way he does his eyebrows and that. His face looks too gay. He should just let his face go the way it is and then give up his ass. I don't know. Jason wrote, so he seems to go by Kyle a lot. The guy is in better shape than last year when he posed for Chaos Men, but a far cry from his bodybuilding days a decade ago. What shows his age is his overprimped eyebrows and receding hairline. Does not look the same. What happened to his muscles? I also believe he used to have blonde hair. What happened? So Jason is very disappointed. Jason was really hoping to, to jerk off to the 90s version of Kyle Prescott and got the the 2010s version. And I, I don't think Jason was impressed. I don't think Jason got what he was looking for. Now, Phil, not Phil Galfond, by the way, not Phil Helmuth, not Phil Galfond, not Phil Ivy, just just Phil. At least I assume it's not one of them. Phil was not very happy with the critical responses above. He wrote, God, G-A-W-D, you queens are vapid. Man still looks great and has a killer smile. A lot of blondes naturally get darker hair with age. My best friend was very fair in his teens and 20s and now is quite dark, almost brunette. How many of us look half as good? (laughs) (laughs) So Phil jumped to his defense. Phil's like, wait a minute, guys, come on. He's still hot. How can you say these bad things about him just because he's not as hot as he was in the 90s? So th- those are some critical reviews of uh, of his appearance in Minuteman Big Load. I hope you enjoyed them. That is funny. So it sounds like he's been in like a lot of gay porn. 
And it sounds like it wasn't just solo stuff where he can rationalize, well, you know, maybe guys buying this, but I'm not doing anything with men. No, it, it sounds like he's spending more than that. <laughs> so it's hard for me to believe he's straight. It sounds like he might be bisexual, which if he is fine, he should admit to it, though. He he has been vehemently denying he was ever even in gay born, he even held up a Bible at one point, swearing that he wasn't. But I, I think we've... Uh, We've learned the truth here. And, and the fact that he, he has this whole Christian angle to it, yet he's a gay porn star, is uh, unfortunately uh, pretty hypocritical. But uh, at least uh, in the defense of Christians, I don't believe he's a real Christian. I believe the Christianity is being used as a, uh, a way to, to scam people. Now, I want to read something else to you. Related to Christopher Mitchell On that video that Kevin Davis posted Of me doing Poker Fraud Alert Radio Of the clip from last week It spawned an interesting conversation In the comments Which you may want to go take a look at And in that conversation One of the victims Of Christopher Mitchell Showed up And uh, started going back and forth with people who were commenting. Now, the reason that guy started going back and forth with people was because he was one of the staunch believers of Christopher Mitchell, hence why he was one of Christopher Mitchell's customers. So when people kept saying Christopher Mitchell was a scammer, this guy was uh, defending him. And now this guy basically admits that Christopher Mitchell's a scammer. So a lot of people are angry that this guy had previously defended him when they were trying to warn him. It's, it's one thing not to heed the warnings, but he's saying, no, you guys are wrong. He's a great guy. And then he later learned that he wasn't. So there's some bitterness and understandably so. Anyway, this guy's name is Rick Lee. And you can actually see him in uh, a few of these videos. One specifically featuring him. Uh, and he was actually present for that Biloxi session, which, which I was talking about earlier. But the, the one that most prominently features Rick Lee is actually involving the Commerce Casino, where they went to Commerce and uh, Rick Lee allegedly made $5,200. And it's called uh, Baccarat Strategy Wins. And this is actually the first time that Christopher Mitchell featured some, one of his, quote, students in the video. This is when he had that brilliant idea in February. Hey, not only should I make them pay me for coaching, but I make them agree to appear in videos with me. So this way, if they win which since it's Martingale is going to be most of the time, uh, I'm going to put them on here as giving testimonials that makes me look more legit. So Rick appeared in these vid- in this video, which you can also find uh, on that same thread. And uh, now, of course, he regrets it, but it's too late for him. So this is what he wrote as a comment in the video with a poker fraud alert clip. Rick wrote, his money is real, referring to the money he's holding up. Because I saw it, he went into the casino to play. He had a lot of people pay him $750, but he don't win all the times like he tells. His, his, Baccarat, his Baccarat system is simple. He bets the banker 90% of the time and uses Martingale when he loses, then hopes and pray a banker streak will come. That's because on, on Baccarat, you're usually betting either for the banker or the player, and you just kind of passively watch as, as cards are dealt. That's how Baccarat works. Uh, then when 500 to $1,000 per table, he uses a gre- aggressive martingale to win one to $2,000 in 15 to 30 minutes, but he has lost 30 to 36K in 15 to 30 minutes also. I was there and two other people, friends, were there to witness it. 
Also, I didn't pay him $2,500 when I was with him. I paid one k and if he made me ten k then I had to pay him another 1500 But in Biloxi, we all lost a lot, and he didn't collect money. He lost 36 k and I lost 15 k in 20 minutes. Now, apparently, Rick Lee is already a degenerate gambler anyway. He revealed in a video, in that video I was talking about when he was in with Christopher Mitchell, that he had lost $40,000 in his previous gambling session without Christopher Mitchell's help or advice, just when he was by himself. So this is a, a, a big-time gambler, I don't know where he gets his money, who was tired of losing like this and was a sucker and went to Christopher Mitchell for help for his winning system – and then he lost there, too, because uh, the, the Martin Gill system bit them in the ass. So they went back and forth in the comments section. And as I said, I understand why people were annoyed with Rick Lee, who was previously trying to validate everything Christopher Mitchell was doing. But I thought his appearance there was interesting. It's the first comment I've seen anywhere from someone who was a student who is now regretting it. And what happens is... He actually has a private Facebook group, uh, Christopher Mitchell, where you're only allowed in if you're one of the people who's paid him. And if you co- if you come to the group and say anything critical, even if you have paid him, he throws you out. So it, it really is a group for yes men. And anyone who says anything that's not along the lines of a yes man, their comment will be deleted and they'll be kicked from the group. So that's why it's so funny that he likes to say that he takes negative comments from anybody. I see what he's doing with the scam is he's just insulating himself from any negative comments and he's creating a little group that is in their own bubble where everybody's acting happy and the second there's someone who's unhappy because they lost money with his BS system, then he throws them out. It's it's almost like a cult. Except it's a cult where... He's getting all the money. Actually, it is kind of like a cult. (laughs) The cult leader often does get all the money. This is really bad, and while you you can watch what this Kevin Davis is doing and say, oh, this Kevin Davis guy, boy, is he kind of obsessive, but this is actually good. This, because if you just have people saying, oh, this guy's a scammer, he's going to say, well, you know, I have haters out there. They're just jealous of me. You need someone like really relentless on scammers like this that are just so dedicated to putting out the truth that uh, the scammer can't hide from it. So that's occurring here. As I said, I wish this occurred to all scammers. Then we'd have a lot fewer successful scammers out there. And and this is ongoing. And, and I don't think Christopher Mitchell can fade this for too long. I, I think there's just too much organized opposition at this point that he's going to run out of suckers to, to trick here. He can delete his comments. He can try to hide. Just Googling him is going to lose a lot of people. And that's very important these days, by the way, is for scammers that there's some Google results for them that are convincing. Because a lot of times scam victims will try to Google the scheme or the person that they're involved with. And if they can't come up with anything negative, they go, okay, well, I probably would have heard by now through Google if this was a scam. Since nobody else is saying it's a scam, it's, it's got to be legit. Otherwise, there'd be others complaining. The second you see even one thing up there that's calling it into question that seems like it might have some credibility or that explains it well, 
then you go, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't. Like, I, I guarantee anybody with even half a brain who listens to the coverage I did last week on Christopher Mitchell, where I, I break it down in a, in a very simple and straightforward manner to where you don't have to be uh, very experienced in gambling to, to understand it, you, you'd have to be a moron by that point to have heard that whole thing and still think he has a system that works. And that's why I did it. Because what he's doing not only is a negative expectation, but it has tremendous variance that that's going to bust just about any bankroll. It's worse than I thought. When I, 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 I thought about it, and I go, wait a minute. He's really starting with a $100 base bet and martingaling it? Wow. That is just asking to get destroyed, a $100 base bet. Because as I said, starting with a $5 base bet and martingaling can, get, can start to get hairy at, at some points. $100, it's just multiplying that by 20. That is just really leading all the lambs to the slaughter. So anyway, just wanted to update that story. I could play more videos, but I'm not going to. You can go play them for yourself. But it's entertaining. You'll like put it on in the background when you're doing something else. That's that's what I've been doing. Let's find Robbie Straczynski and now have our second interview of the night. Hello? Robbie Straczynski, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. How you guys doing? Good to hear you. So, Robbie, my first question to you: Since you're you're in Israel, have you always lived yes. in Israel, or have, have were you? When did you move there? Why are you in Israel? You cannot hear the Israeli accent when I speak to you. <laughs> it's uh, so it's nine o'clock in the morning here, um, and uh, I moved here when uh, in 1998. I was born in Los Angeles, so I've been here for I guess a little over 21 years, um, and you know, finished high school in LA. Uh, moved here with my family. Uh, eventually, you know, so a couple of my, my brothers moved back. My dad's still here, and uh, yeah, I made, made myself a life here. Found uh, you know, found a great wife. Got married, kids, the whole deal. Okay, so so you so you found the wife there in Israel? Yeah, actually, three weeks after I got here, uh, we were both sixteen. Uh, we started dating, and we got married at twenty. It was an amazing. Oh wow! Thing. Yeah. Okay. You you're, you actually did the reverse of what my father did. My father was born in Israel, and then uh, uh-huh. moved to the United States and found a wife there. And then uh, oh, how about that? Yeah, that's, <laughs> the that's world the, works in mysterious ways. That's, huh? the, that's the only reason you're on this show now. Otherwise, this show would not exist uh, at all in any way, shape, or form. So there you go. <laughs> so 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 you're a little. I guess you're a little bit younger than me. Then so you said you you, you were uh, sixteen and ninety eight. Yes, I'm. I'm 38 years old. Oh, okay, you're a lot younger than me. Ah, damn it. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least at least the, the previous guy I had, I had uh, Eric Sheets uh, Haber on here uh, earlier. He's older than me, so I I can feel good about that. So there you go. Uh, okay. Anyway, when your uh, site first started, Card Player Lifestyle, when it first uh-huh. started, I I said, what is? I at first I really thought it was Card Player Magazine, like some offshoot of Card right. Player Magazine, and, and I clicked through to it. And I go. Okay, how come how come it's a separate site from Main Car Player Magazine? I wasn't understanding uh-huh. it. Uh, then I realized it was a separate thing. Now I'm no fan of Car Player Magazine. I once was. I once was a big fan of it. I when I first started playing uh, poker and I would pick up Car Player Magazine in Commerce, and and I would read it while I was playing. I, I thought uh-huh. maybe one day I will be good enough to write a column here, and I, I thought that would be like a <laughs> poker goal for me. Uh, sure. So, so I respected them. I actually almost did write for them at one point, but uh, huh. la- later, later on, I actually lost a lot of respect for them when they were taking ads for Lock Poker long after they knew it was a scam. And I even 
directly mm-hmm. told Jeff Shulman that I know it's a scam. I had a conversation with him and told him how to look it up. And they still ran the ads until the bitter end, which really uh, disappointed me big time. So I, at that point, I was very glad you were not associated with Card Player uh, Magazine. But uh, mm-hmm. when you started that, when you started Card Player Lifestyle, uh, was there any concern from them about it? Did they give you a hard time that there's a similar uh, name? It's funny, you know, I was, uh, I'm not going to plead innocence or anything like that. I was, you know, 28 years old. It was sort of started on a whim. My my friend and I were like, hey, let's start a poker blog. Cardplayerlifestyle.com is free. You want to take it? We're like, okay. We didn't really have any particular business goals in mind or anything like that. Didn't, you know, thinking for the slightest bit about, uh, you know, Card Player Magazine. We're like, oh, okay, maybe people will recognize it. And, you know, I, I did always, to whatever extent I was, a bit, you know, able to um, make the, the clear differentiation that we're not them, we're not associated with them. You know, I don't want to have, you know, anything bad to say about them, but it was much more... Uh, doing the best I could to make ours a distinct entity, you know, a distinct look and a distinct writing style and, uh, you know, trying to do other things. We're obviously not uh, a print publication like they are um, or anything like that. Um, so, no, it was never really that anything like that. I have met uh, Alan Shulman uh, once, a very nice lady. Uh, someone introduced me to her uh, at, a, at a poker table. Seems really nice. And, uh, you know, they've never had anything negative or, or positive to do with me or and vice versa. They sort of do their thing and, and I've sort of done my thing. And, and thankfully, over the last 10 years, uh, managed to build Card Player Lifestyle from a, you know, hey, let's start a blog to something that people are somewhat familiar with in the poker world, which is really nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, yeah, I saw it grow over the years and, and saw people going to it more often and that, that it became more, mm-hmm. re- more relevant over time. Uh, at at yeah. the beginning, I thought it was just some ripoff of Car Player Magazine, but uh, but I, I know it, it, became, uh, it became more than that. And uh, so are, are you also a poker player or just more of like a, a, a poker journalist type? Um, I would, well, professionally speaking, it's much, it's only the latter. Uh, I play for fun. I've always played ever since I was a kid. I was, you know, my dad introduced me to the game when I was eight years old. I had one of those little video poker machines. I always played any, every Nintendo Caesar's Palace game that came out, you know, anything to be close. You know, I grew up in LA, um, you know, and, and went four or five times a year to Vegas. It was much more family friendly in the nineties. And my dad always played, he used to come and show me his wallet full of hundred dollar bills. Like, hey, look what I want. Uh, that sort of thing. And, you know, since I guess I was somewhat, you know, on my own, like in the moneymaker boom era, you know, I was 21, uh, in 2003 when moneymaker won. And that's like the perfect age to start, you know, getting involved and, and playing with friends. And I've basically been, uh, primarily a home game player, um, you know, here in Israel with my friends, with my dad's group as well. And part of the reason for that, you know, I just love the home games. I love, you know, the camaraderie, the social activity. Um, but we don't have any casinos or poker rooms here. And you can't really play online poker from here either. Uh, you know, and that's not like a licensed, legal, reg- you know, re- regulated uh, destination. Um, so uh, I can't really do that. So I find I, I scratch the itch home game wise. And, you know, I, I can definitely say I'm a winning player. I've got the notes and the bankroll to prove it. So okay, that, good. but not a professional. Okay. So <laughs> professional. Um, what we are going to talk about tonight, uh, we have a specific mm-hmm. topic in mind here. See, I, I know people are fearing, oh, this is an infomercial. Don't worry. I'm not, this is not an infomercial. There's no infomercials ever on this show. So uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't know who you're talking to, so that's all. <laughs> <laughs> so I, we actually have a, a real topic to talk about here. Sure. And, and it's, mm-hmm. I, I, so I've, one of the articles I saw from you a, a few years back, and I, I took an interest especially in reading it, was about Jews and poker. 
And I was, yes. thinking, I was thinking, oh, am I going to be mentioned? Am I going to be mentioned? Oh, I'm not mentioned. But I understood. I saw the, I saw the people who were mentioned. They were, they were better known names than me. But uh, anyway, the when you wrote about that, that was the first article I had seen where this was uh-huh. being discussed at all. And it's something I have thought about as a Jew for a long time because I'm at a live poker table and I look at the white people at the table and, and the reason I say the white mm-hmm. people, the Asians are usually not Jewish. Occasionally they are, but usually right. the, the Asian people at the table are not. It's just the demographic sure. the way it is. So I look at the white people at the table, and, and, and I think, is that guy a Jew? Is that guy a Jew? And like I, I start to pick up Jewish mannerisms or, or, or that some have a Jewish look to them, or, or I, I know their, na- their name ends with, with Berg or Stein, and I know it does. So, right. so like I, I start going, I bet that guy's a Jew. So then like sometimes I'll even bring it up, uh, like, like oh, who's Jewish at this table? And a surprising number are. And, and it, or, it really is unbelievable. I find the same. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so there's a lot of Jews in poker, and it's not discussed all that much, and especially when you consider that the, the Jewish population in the U.S., I think it's like one point something percent. Uh, maybe. And, <laughs> On a good day, maybe. And, 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 and so that's – now, yes, I know it's, it's higher in, in some of the areas where, where poker is popular, like uh, sure. in, Los, in Los Angeles, of course, it's higher than that. And in, uh, in, in the New York area, it's higher, way higher. But, uh, but still, uh, there, there's far more non-Jews. I mean way, way more non-Jews in, in the population of, uh, of Caucasian men in poker, mm-hmm. uh, sure. Caucasian men. And yet in poker, you find so many of the people who are Caucasian are, are also Jewish. And I thought, so what is mm-hmm. it? What is it that's, that's attracting all these uh, Jews to poker? And and also what I, what I've seen is uh, often the Jews at the poker player uh, at the poker table uh, tend to be the better players. Now, yes, you have some recreational uh, Jewish businessmen type or uh, or Jewish mm-hmm. doctors, Jewish lawyers who are who are often not the better players at the table. But but the ones who actually uh, really put their mind to trying to become uh, a really good poker player uh, tend mm-hmm. to actually mm-hmm. rise up to be very good. And uh, and then I'll sometimes find out much later, like like Eric Haber, we just had here on had on before here. He's a Jew. Mm-hmm. There's so many sure. Jews in in poker, and uh, so why do you think that Jews are so overrepresented in poker? Well, it's a good question, and I'll have to start off like in every good Jewish lecture or sermon with a joke, because you reminded me about something that Jerry Seinfeld once said, another good member of the tribe. He was like, we're the only religion haughty enough or self-absorbed enough to say that there are Jews and there are non-Jews. Like you said, it's like, no, you don't say Christians and non-Christians, because we're like, what, five people in the world compared to the billions and billions? Like, there's a lot of non-Jews. Anyway, which is a very funny joke that you reminded me. Um, but it's the truth. Um, so, yeah, why? I don't know. I, I can't, you know, give you the reason or a reason, but a, an educated guess would sort of be that, you know, throughout the years, throughout our history, really, you know, since the founding of the nation, um, you know, the Jewish people, education has always been very, very important. Of course, you've got like the Jewish mother stereotype and, you know, they want their kids to be doctors and lawyers and and well-educated. So, you know, part and parcel of that, you know, like, you know, always you teach your Jewish history and, you know, the importance of of learning uh, and obviously the Torah, all that other sort of stuff. But, you know, very much in line with that is the idea of studying and, you know, using your brain actively. 
And, you know, when Jews, if they, for whatever reason, would go ahead and get attracted to a game like poker, it sort of makes sense, you know, in line with that idea of education and and learning to not just, okay, let's, you know, play it like a tic-tac-toe game or something, but let's study it, let's try to get better, let's treat it seriously. And perhaps that may be uh, one of the attractions to the game of poker, like, hey, I can get good at this, I can win money, and, you know, who doesn't want to win money? So maybe that's one of the reasons. Yeah, I think that is one of the reasons. I, I think another one is that uh, – so if you look at the stereotype about Jews being cheap and, and being uh, obsessed with money, okay? And, <laughs> yes. and so so, uh, so, so yeah, me too. So, so in some ways uh, – I know you haven't met me. In some ways, it can be hard to tell that I'm a Jew because I'm tall. Uh, I don't have a last name that's obviously Jewish. And, mm-hmm. uh, and my, yeah, I don't even have a big nose. I have like an average size nose. So it, 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 <laughs> it is hard. You know, people can't just look at me and pick out that I'm a Jew. I don't look like the stereotypical Jew. I don't look like I'm not a Jew. You wouldn't look at me and say, oh, wow, I can't believe he's Jewish. But uh, it doesn't jump out at you, especially for my height and a number right. of things that are not uh, typical of, of most Jews. But one, where, one place I fit in is, is the way uh, that I've treated money. And it's not just uh-huh. about being cheap. It's about having value for it or wanting to always uh, get good value on what I spend and never get ripped off. Sure. And, there's a, and there's a whole – and I, I think it's – it really is kind of in the uh, Jewish culture to be like that. So I think when you get to poker where, where you're playing for money – that I think Jews are less likely to want to just sit down and lose it, that they're saying, well, if I'm going to play this game, I'm going to win. I'm wa- I want to walk away with, with extra money here. I don't want my hard-earned money to disappear. And I think sure. that, that drives them to do the learning of the game and to, and to do the adjustments uh, to, to when, when things aren't working to, to then put a lot of effort into winning. And we're, now it's not to say that uh, there aren't Jews who lose their entire bankroll playing, who are who yeah, aren't uh, irresponsible Absolutely. with money. Uh, look at Mike Matisau. He is a Jew. He is not someone who's known to be responsible with money. Even even he will Correct. admit that. But uh, so there's there's plenty of Jews who defy that stra- that stereotype. But but interestingly enough, uh, even despite his poor management of money, there, there's little doubt that that he's an excellent poker player. So sure. he, so he still did have the the aspect of of learning the game well. And, uh, and and putting the the effort into that. So, but I, I think it's it's kind of the combination of those two factors that you mentioned, and, and also I think that uh, the the education part is big too. And that you may already have the basis, kind of like the the mathematical basis mm-hmm. from, from your education that you can start applying to the game. I know there are some people who are excellent poker players who are not good at math and and were never uh, good at that sort of thing and didn't formally study that and just have a very good feel for the game but mm-hmm. but there there's others who aren't there's others who who don't have as good of a feel as those players but who who learn it from a a, a just more of an analytical standpoint and mm-hmm. uh, right even if even if they're you know want to go ahead and say cheap oh I would never play for money or anything like that but they like the academic and mathematical aspects of the game, they may be the ones who, you know, program like the Libratus computer or something like that, um, you know, to sort of like gain that that mathematical edge or you know take take a more of an intellectual interest in it than than necessarily winning money sometimes. Yeah, and 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 also there are crossovers in poker with with other communities, like uh, not mm-hmm. not necessarily about a religion or but they're like the Magic the Gathering community. Uh, mm-hmm. A sure. lot of them went into playing poker uh, and, and a lot of them are very good players like Justin Bonomo he was he was a, a big magic player at one point uh, mm-hmm. uh, David Williams was was a big magic player so, uh, uh, 
Ben Yu, a big Magic player. So many of these Magic guys who have been very successful in poker, and mm-hmm. and there there's there seems to be some crossover in the skills. But a lot of thing that's that something that's common about these Magic players. Uh, I'm too old to have been into Magic. That that came that became popular in high school age mm-hmm. kids after long after I was out of high school, so I never got into it. But uh, I, I think it's more people kind of around your age. But uh, mm-hmm. so the I think that. The, if, if you think about who were the magic players in those days, it was kind of like yeah, the geeks and the nerds in the, in the school. That, that's that's who played it. Who, who, what do these guys have in common? They, they were smart. They were probably studious. They were probably uh, good at learning things, picking up on things. So I think that that's a lot like where a lot of the crossover is. And and uh, so so you have someone you, you have people like that, and a lot of times there's a crossover between that and, and Jews who who do have the the big uh, the stress on education. And, and and learning and all that, so so it all it all kind of makes sense. It, it all makes sense. Yeah. You, you you can kind of uh, feel that. Now, now aside from Madison, who who are some other prominent Jews you can think of in, in poker? Okay, well, I didn't I didn't prepare a list, but you know, off the top of my head, you know, some of them are pretty easy. There's uh, Ari Engel. Yes, you can't forget Ari he, he Engel. He listens There's, to the show. Uh, you know, the the of course the the late Stu Unger. You can't forget about him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, Ellie Elezra. And I, I will a tiny little quick plug. I translated his autobiography, pulling the trigger. But uh, Eli Elezra, he's Israeli. Um, Mike Mizraki, and of course all the Mizraki brothers. Yeah, true. Um, who else uh, can I think? Well, Gabe Kaplan. You know, he's not really as famous for being a player, but of course legendary commentator. Um, Eric Seidel, uh, Barry Greenstein, um, uh, Yuval Bronstein. You know, won, won a bracelet last year, I believe, at the World Series. Um, there's a lot of Israelis actually who have come up over in, in recent years and, uh, um, oh, what are their names? Uh, there's a guy named Shai Tsur. They're not as necessarily a well-known, but uh, a guy named Asi Moshe, a guy named Timur Margolin. These are guys who have found success specifically in tournaments and have studied really, really hard and hold them. Um, you know, not necessarily as much of the, the, the big names as, uh, the, the first names that I've mentioned. Phil Galfond, you know, that's a huge name oh, for yeah. you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, if you just go, it's the kind of thing of, like, you do, like, sort of a Rorschach text, you throw out a name there, and there's a good chance that they might be. Yeah, really, you know? it really <laughs> is, like, 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 if you guys think about it, it's true Negreanu is, and Phil Helmuth isn't, but, but really, if you think about uh, these uh, white poker players who are well-known, mm-hmm. you go, you know, there's a good chance he's Jewish, and, and you know, I, yeah. I remember, I, I tell the story to people, one time at the Commerce uh, 400, 800 uh, Limit Hold'em game, when that used to go, Okay, I, I mm-hmm. noticed that there were a lot of people at the table who I either knew were Jewish or thought might be. So I asked at uh-huh. the table, I said, I think, I think we actually might have like a majority or by far a majority of Jews here at this table. It turned out that seven yep. of the nine people in the 400, 800 limit hold'em game were Jewish. <laughs> actually, I, I think it was seven, you know, I think it was actually seven and a half. I think Mark Newhouse was the eighth one, but he's half Jewish. So, so uh-huh. it was, it, it was like some of them, some of them, like I, I knew, but some of them I didn't like Jesse Martin. I remember he was in the game. I didn't know he was Jewish, but I learned he was Jewish. So, uh-huh. so, so there's, there's people that, uh, you learn about in, in the game that, that are Jewish and, and you don't even know. And, um, so it's, it's, it really is amazing how many Jews there are in poker and, uh, uh, and I, even I don't think about it sometimes, even I'm like. Like, like for a long time, I didn't know that Phil Galfond was Jewish. Like, there's there's like a lot of sure. people I just kind of don't think about being Jewish, and then I learned they are, and they go, yeah, why didn't I think right. of that? Why, why didn't I consider that they might be? 
It is fascinating. You had asked me before, like, you know, what do I do, player or, or, or journalism? And I really do the journalism part. But, you know, there's, of course, you know, these big names that we throw out. But just from my own personal experience, while I'm doing work in poker media, I wear my yarmulke. I'm an observant uh, Jewish person. So I, you know, frankly, stick out, you know, in the crowd of thousands, like, for example, at the World Series of Poker. And what I do, you know, for the last three years, during the main event, I have been um, on the team responsible for uh, collecting player bios for what you see on television. We, you know, we, we gather the information, we pass it along. And inevitably, I will go to tables and have to get information on certain players. They'll notice my keeper and they'll say a word or two to me in Hebrew. I have no idea who they are, <laughs> but like they go ahead and identify as Jewish when they go ahead and see it themselves, which is very you, fascinating. You know what? You, and you it's may have, happened so many times. You may have collected it for me. See, I, I, I obviously didn't think much about the person collecting it from me, but I was briefly on the uh, the third uh, TV table at the main event <laughs> on, on, on day four. Uh, you are and, correct. We have met once in person. <laughs> okay. So, so, so now do you actually remember getting it from me? Okay. I rem- well, I remember the clipboard. I remember seeing the name. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember him. I know him from somewhere. Okay. Because like the- uh, when I go to the table, I don't really know anyone. They say, go to table so-and-so, and, and then we just take the names and start doing data crunching. Right. Well, like The only thing I was paying attention to at that table was just, number one, like – I knew I knew it wasn't going to be on TV a lot, but I'm like, I hope I don't make a mistake on TV and look like a donkey. Like, I actually preferred not to be on it because it's the main event and I don't want to – like, I, it's deep in the main event. I don't want to have that additional stress of worrying about how it looks sure. on the table if I uh, screw something up. But uh, but I – so I thought about that and I also thought about, boy, I have a freaking hard ta- – I had like the, the – such a tough table, that, that one that got moved there. It was just mm-hmm. an incredibly – Tough table. Uh, some some were known players, some were not known players, but just about everybody there was very good. And uh, mm-hmm. and and like the day five table that I busted from, even though the eventual mm-hmm. winner was right next to me, that table was much easier than than the one I had on, on, on late day four, where I ended up in that TV table. So so I I wasn't paying attention to who was collecting that clipboard for me, but I, I did remember I gave it to some guy. <laughs> like I wonder if that was him. I. <laughs> Uh, hey, that's my claim to fame. So, being so I, some guy. So, yeah. Okay, so I, so I did. So I did have. That's that's interesting. Okay, so we actually have uh, met in a way, even though we didn't. Uh, we yes, didn't in talk. a way. <laughs> so yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, so so you go out there every uh, every year to work in that job. Uh, yeah. So it, it it sort of just happened. Um, I got to give a big shout out to Remco Rinkema of uh, Poker Central, Poker Go. He sort of like introduced me and opened the door of like to to apply for this sort of position um, in 2017 uh, for the first time. Uh, Poker Go was you know starting to do additional coverage starting from day one. Uh, it didn't used to be like that in terms of what we were seeing on the broadcast. But when you start having additional coverage, they needed additional people on the scene to collect additional information for the broadcasters. You're going to see a lot of live streams. Um, so a position opened up. I wasn't aware of it. Remco told me about it. Say, hey, maybe you want to give this a try. Um, I had literally only the year before been to the World Series for the first time. I was 34, I guess, the first time I ever went there because it's just kind of far to travel from Israel. Um, yeah, very far. And yeah, it's uh, I think 7,500 miles or so. It's yeah. a long swim, as we say. Um, but um, yeah, you know, basically since then, this uh, was 
supposed to have been and hopefully will continue to be, uh, you know, when the main event eventually happens, uh, my fourth year doing that job. It's uh, not what I do all year round, but uh, for two weeks uh, during the main event, I work with the productions team. Uh, and it's just a great, wonderful team and uh, happy to play my little part in uh, collecting the uh, the bio information for the broadcast. So, so now this this doesn't sound like it's like a lucrative thing after you spend all the money to get over the, you know, there and back and, and take a long flight. You just go you like just enjoy being there at the World Series for this you don't, for only a two week job to fly all that way and back. It doesn't sound like it's uh, worth a whole lot of money. Well, I'll be honest. Yeah, it is very much a lot. I mean, it's not going to I'm not losing money from it. I'll say I'll tell you that. But um, frankly, it's just an opportunity to be there. Like you said, you know, if, if I had to go ahead and, you know, be on my own dime just to be there, that would obviously be a cost and hotel and all that other sort of stuff. But this allows me to sort of be there. And, you know, during my off time, I can always, you know, meet up with people and and, and do whatever sort of, you know, media work, media work of my own. But to be front and center you know, also, you know, backstage, all that other sort of stuff while the main event is going on. It's incredibly exciting. Uh, you know, it's it's very, you know, it's a great experience. And uh, to have the opportunity is something I'm really grateful for. It's, you know, nice to work with uh, really wonderful people. This is, you know, Morius Kandani's company. So to learn from them, even just sort of be part of a, you know, production meeting, that sort of a thing. It's it's a, a wonderful experience. I'm happy to be a part of it. Uh, and like I said, I don't lose money from it. It's nice uh, to be there. And also during my time off, it's an opportunity to play. Like I said, we don't have the time. We don't have the ability to play. There's no rooms here. So, yeah. you know, often you'll find me at, you know, between midnight and three o'clock in the morning getting a quick cash game session in, which is very fun. Okay. I, you know, for people who don't know, the, the, the trip between uh, the Western U.S. and Israel, it, it's, it's a tough one. It's a, it's a lot mm-hmm. of hours. Uh, I just I had flights booked for that for April of 2020, mm-hmm. which obviously didn't happen. But uh, and I haven't been there. It, what's too bad is I haven't been there in a long time. I haven't been to Israel mm-hmm. in 31 years. So oh, wow. I, that was going to be my wow. so I, I this is the second time the trip got aborted. The the first one was uh was because of me uh in October of 2018 I was supposed to go and then I I was having these horrendous uh like like severe severe anxiety and and depression issues that mm. uh, that that were it was it was chemical related. It was not a anything that happened to me to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, first time in my life, it was brought on by a separate f- physical cause. I've talked about it a lot on the show. Uh, Poker News even did an article about me recovering from that, but uh, I, I could not get on a plane at that point. So so wow. I, I was fortunately able to get past all that and uh, and return uh, mostly to normal. And I Thankfully. said, okay, good. So, so now I can, now I can, I can actually take this trip. So it got rescheduled for April 2020, and then uh, <laughs> a, a different thing stopped that from happening. So it's right. it's, it's very strange. I, I I just can't seem to get back to Israel. My only time I've only been there once, and that was in 1989 when I was 17 years old. And I'm sure it oh, changed wow. a, a tremendous amount of time, a, a tre- tremendous amount since then. And also, I, I would right. I would see it differently now anyway, just just being uh, an older adult rather than a, a teenager. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, was, that was very disappointing to have that happen. But looking at the flights, like I, I had to put a lot of effort into the flights, and uh, mm-hmm. but it, but it's just never easy. And even though there is a nonstop flight from L.A. Yes. all the way to, to Tel Aviv on El Al, I actually decided mm-hmm. I don't want it. Even it turned out to be more expensive anyway. But even if it was the same price, right. I, I actually decided I don't want it. And it's very unusual for me to say I don't want a nonstop flight because I hate stops. But this is such a long trip 
that I said yeah. I actually think a stop is good. I actually, in yeah. fact, I also, I also had an option. I had an option to to fly from LA to San Francisco and then go nonstop San Francisco. I go, no, that's like the same thing. It's, it's still like a a super long. I, I said I want something kind of in the middle to break it up. So so I, I took what was the best option in my opinion. That was fly LA to New York. And then, uh-huh. and then a, a small layover, an hour and a half or something, and then, uh, and then, you, then the rest of the way from New York to, to Tel Aviv, and, and it's still right. a lot because uh, here you got to take this flight, especially going west, but but, but even going east, which is the faster way, uh, it still right. takes five hours to get to New York, and then you've got to get on a ten-hour flight from there to get to Israel. Yep. It's a very, and of course the layer of, layover in between, and then you got to be at the yep. airport early, and then there's getting your baggage. I mean, you, you're really taking about twenty-four hours in the whole thing to get between the two places. And they, they, you know, I, I've done the trip so many times now. You know, over the last you know half decade at least, you know, to Las Vegas and also back to LA to visit my family there. Uh, extended family and it's so rare that i ever speak about this because you know what does anyone understand from it it's it's so nice to hear someone who at least understands the potential yeah this is long it takes a long time and i'll be very frank i love flying i I love the experience i've never had the long the non-stop flight before and by me it's always a matter you know a matter of uh looking for the cheaper ticket Uh, i don't really care too much to stop once and believe it or not even twice because I sleep well on planes. During the layovers, I can work on my computer or watch a movie or whatever. It really doesn't matter to me so long as I make it to that destination, you know, in, in some sort of decent shape. And, and thankfully, that's been the case. But you're right. It, you know, with stops, with stops, you know, I think I was planning to do one stop this time. Um, you know, it takes a good 24 hours. You yeah. could leave Israel, you know, again, going west. Uh, I would have left Israel, I think, around like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and gotten there like 7 or 8 p.m. local Las Vegas time. So you throw in the 10-hour time difference. It's it's a long, long, long slug. Yeah, it is. And that's why you also have to plan to be there for a while. You don't want to go there for like three, yes. day, three <laughs> days or you've, you've really just wasted a ton of time for nothing. So so that's why like uh-huh. you, you just feel like you, you, you want it to be at least two weeks when you go. So, so at least right. all, all that travel time both ways uh, becomes worth it. But that that's just such, such an oppressive trip as far as how long it's going to take. And uh, it was it's also the, good to make the most of the trip while you're there. You know, if you're already going to yeah. be there for two weeks, is just pack as much as you can. And I always say I never sleep on my Vegas trips, and I always sleep on the plane. So <laughs> that's what I try to do. Yeah, and 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 I have to. I I, I can't even do the. And this increases my expense. I can't even do, do the coach seats. I, I'm too tall for it. Oh, so, so, wow. so I've got to pay. I've got to pay for the first class. Also, well, I used to take. I used to say, okay, I'll either do first class. Business class or or the economy plus, which has the more leg room, but uh-huh. uh, but I actually it, I, I preferred this first or business class, but I, I say I, I take the economy plus if it's a really good deal uh, for the more leg room uh, since it has mm-hmm. more leg room also. But I've actually stopped with that because since I had the uh, the psychological problems I had in 2018. I, I, I've said mm-hmm. I'm just happy I can fly again. I'm I'm not even gonna mm-hmm. I, I don't want to cram myself in and potentially cause a problem again. So, so I, I, I like having the more room now anyway. Like now I just insist on going. I'm going to go first or business. So that, of course, right. so of course that because the food is so amazing. Yeah, the food, I've never the, flown first or business, but especially on El Al, the first class and, and business class food, it's just unbelievably good. Internationally, it is. Yeah, domestically, it's yeah. just not very impressive, but, but internationally, that's, it, yeah, it is, I heard it is that much too. <laughs> and so, so, uh, yeah, that's, that helps as well and uh, but that's also an additional challenge in finding something that's uh not that the price isn't insane it's going to be a lot more expensive Correct. than flying, flying coach but there's a big big variance 
so I had to put a lot of effort into finding the right flight, all that stuff together. Mm-hmm. And then sure. And then it's all for nothing. It gets canceled. So at least I got my money back, though. Yeah. They did give the money back. But, right. I, I'll tell you also, like, because I, I know that I'm sort of going to be there for the main event and possibly one other time, I really do try to book my flight, you know, within days of them announcing the official WSLP schedule. And, you know, it's funny, like, it's one of the things I miss about L.A., you know, is that, oh, you can always just go and hop over for a day if you want. There's so much more planning that has to go into it when you're doing international. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's just like you want to book it in advance. And then, lo and behold, of course, you know, you get the news that, you know, it's going to be postponed. Then I got to sit on the phone and try to get the, you know, rebooking. I don't know what I'm rebooking for. So, you know. That that should be my biggest problem, as they say. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, if you, if they canceled the flight on you, then you're entitled to a refund. If if you cancel Perfect. on if you cancel on them, then then it's a different story. But I, uh, I, I, what you're saying there about how if you're from L.A., it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. That's totally true. I've said that before here on this show. That yep. I, I take for granted sometimes the fact that since I drive there. That I yeah. don't have to worry about if if I want to stay extra because the game is good, or if I or if I want to if, I, if I'm just running late and I want to leave late. Uh, there, there's there's so many there's so much flexibility I have that everybody with a flight does not have. They have to show up at at such and such time. They have to be at the airport going there at such and such yep. time. They have to leave no matter how good the game is and go back. There's, they they have zero flexibility at all. And I and I think to my, and also as far as tournaments. How far are you yeah. in the tournament? What, uh, what I do is when I have, I usually have either two or three trips into the World Series, which last anywhere from like a, um, a week to two mm-hmm. and a half weeks, and uh, mm-hmm. and and I have events scheduled to play. And the last one of that group, when I'm when I bust, if it's late, I go to sleep and I leave the next day. If it, if it's early enough, I get, I get in the car and drive back. But you can't do that right. when, you, when you're planning. You you have to plan. You're going to make it the whole way through, or, or or at least plan to make it for two full days. It's it's a lot tougher when you've got to plan everything with your flight around uh, what you think you're going to do in the tournament, rather than where I just say, okay, when it's done, I leave. I just drive away. So it's way easier for the people who can drive in and out of Vegas. And I I sometimes take that for granted when I see all these people who are from other areas of the country that can't do that. Even the Bay Area. It's kind of tough for them right. to drive there because it's 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 over it's like 550 miles and it's not always a, 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 even the route is not all on super highways so it it can be a tough drive you can do it but it's it's for kind of sure. a tough drive so and, and not only that also like when like I'm, I'll be sitting at a cash game table or sometimes you know it's, I always do like an all nighter usually the, the the night before I fly home and you know I I sound you know you hear me on the radio like if I didn't tell you I was from Israel or living here or anything like that you wouldn't know you wouldn't you know you don't see I wear my baseball hat you know when I'm playing at the tables and you know I think to myself man you know people here at this table they have no idea what I'm about to go through <laughs> the next 24 hours getting that's home. True. Like, that's true. They, the they just thing. think they just, they just think, think I could be driving back for 2 hours to Palm Springs or wherever. They have no idea. That's true. That is true that they they would only picture that for the ones who are clearly foreign. That you, you're someone who's, right. who's foreign who doesn't apper to be foreign. So right. <laughs> so so you've you've been in uh, Israel for for 22 years. So so you speak? Did you speak Hebrew at all when you got there when you were uh, 16? Uh, well, I had gone to uh, Jewish day school, uh, so I, I spoke. 
I wouldn't say I spoke conversational Hebrew. I was able to pray, that sort of a thing, and I could recognize blessings and, you know, typical sayings, things like that. But I wouldn't, I don't think I would say confidently that I could have communicated. Uh, now I speak, you know, fluent Hebrew, but I sound like I just arrived off the last boat. You oh, know, okay. I have a, a very, very thick American accent, even with my fluent Hebrew. And of course, my kids love making fun of me of it for, you know, for it. You know, so I, my previous girlfriend, the girl I was with for uh, most of the 2000s, uh, mm-hmm. she, she was from Israel, but she came to the U.S. when she was six years old. So she had this uh-huh. uh, unique situation where she, uh, could speak now. I could speak fluent Hebrew and speak mm-hmm. fluent English, but also had an accent in neither. And that's it, it's right. It's a very small window when you can switch countries and, and, and learn a new language and be able to have that occur. Because if you come much later than six, you're going to have an accent, and if you come much mm-hmm. earlier than six, you're not going to know the native language that you came from very well. So she. Right. So exactly. other than having some vocabulary that's kind of more immature because she she didn't get to learn. The Hebrew is an adult. Uh, mm-hmm. It was. It's when she goes back to Israel, mm-hmm. people assume she's an Israeli. She has no accent, and then in uh, in the U.S., you hear her speak zero accent. Also, so it's it's. Uh, right. That was that was always kind my, of my wife's actually in the same boat. She was born in America and moved uh, from Brooklyn, New York, when she was three. Her family spoke English at home, and the same thing. You know, of course, we're also both dual citizens. So when we go there, we're like just you know every American Tom, Dick, and Harry, and you know that sort of thing. But when we're here, also. Again, I, got, I sound like I just got off the boat, but she sounds native just like everybody else. Hmm. Okay, well, uh, and my kids too. <laughs> yeah, with, yeah, that's right. Your kids, uh, so your kids speak both uh, fluently. I, I know. When yeah, you- we speak English at the home, and uh, you know they speak Hebrew with their friends, that sort of thing. But it's good. You know, I always say, and I will say also as an aside in terms of at the poker table, the more languages that you know, the more helpful it is. It's like all of your knowledge just doubles or triples, and. How many times it's happened where, again, I've got this, you know, good old American face on and talking all that stuff, and I hear a guy on my left speaking to the guy on my right in Hebrew. They have no idea I could understand, and it's really helpful sometimes, I've got to be honest. Yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> seen, I've had that before, too. You see, because of that Israeli girlfriend I had, I actually learned uh-huh. more and more Hebrew. I could never speak it fluently, but I learned more and more peaking at the time just before we broke up and then uh, I've kind of lost some of it since then and now it's been over 10 years but uh, mm-hmm. but I, I sitting at the table with them is really listening to them talk uh, I was able to understand some of it I'm like I bet they have no idea that I know some of what they're saying right here. and and you could make some good money off of, off of that kind of knowledge sometimes so it's, it's good to keep quiet <laughs> Yeah, well, okay, uh, so cardplayerlifestyle.com is your site. Is, is, is it, uh, wh- how would you describe it best to the listeners here? Who? Um, we do poker and media a little differently. We're not a new site. We do op-ends. We do interviews, uh, lifestyle pieces. If you like playing cards, if you enjoy the game as an enthusiast following the biggest personalities in the game, uh, and learning, got a lot of strategy stuff as well, then, you know, come and visit us. We've got, um, you know, dozens of new articles every month, and uh, I do this, uh, yeah, it is my business, but I started it out of love. It's still a labor of love, and, uh, yeah, and, and also I will just say one last thing. Follow me on Twitter, and uh, I do a little bit of a giveaway right now. I'm trying to get to 5,000 followers. I'm a few hundred away. i got to get there by May 1st, otherwise I lose a bet. 
So you can follow me at Card Player Life, and uh, those who do have a chance to win uh, forty bucks, you lose. You, you uh, just uh, look at my pinned tweet. I, I so, should do that. Uh, I should do yeah. that. I, I don't. I don't even have five thousand followers. I should. I should do that so I can get my follower count up. I just don't. I get you the ver- bribe them. That's I, the Jewish I, I, way. I get, right? I get them very slowly. <laughs> I get. I get them very very slowly. I, the problem is the cheap Jew in me doesn't want to bribe them. I think I'm, pay, I'm paying enough to do, to run this site at a loss. So, but I'm not. Right. I, actually, I actually I run Poker Fraud Alert at a loss. This this really is something I just run uh, to run, not not because of uh, not in any attempt to make money. And I've I've had opportunities that have been mm-hmm. presented to me where I I didn't want to run certain ads for things that uh, be, mm. because I, I it's Poker Fraud Alert. I don't want to run anything that that might end up. Uh, being a fraud itself. I so respect that. I really, I genuinely, just as someone who also tries to do things, I've, I've had to do similar, and it's not fun to turn down money, especially when you know, if you know, if it is my business, I, I depend on that sort of money to pay the bills. But you know, you gotta sort of you know have that integrity, and, and, and good for you. And for, quite frankly, like I said, ten years ago, there was no business goal. I started it in the same way of like, I want to do this. This is fun, and. Uh, that's why it always has been a labor of love. If I did this from start to make money, I don't think I'd be doing it 10 years later. So, uh, you know, good on you, uh, Todd, for, for running a great site. And uh, and I hope it uh, continues running for many more years to come. And well, you keep on enjoying it. Oh, thank you. And, you know, the way we ended up having this interview, I want to tell everybody. Oh, yes, I, we I, have to. I, yes. I, I, I mentioned, I mentioned <laughs> briefly at the beginning. but I, So what happened here is uh he did an article about uh podcasts to listen to during this uh, coronavirus shutdown and i'm like okay uh, i i didn't think i'm going to be mentioned there because we just just we always just get forgotten about or just not known about and it's it's a little bit of a source of frustration for me that uh that this happens that because i i've always felt the more people that get exposed here we're going to pick up more and more listeners each time this show isn't for everybody it's very long uh, very very long like the, the Recently, they've been going six, seven, eight hours. Uh, wow. So it's, it's a very long show, and uh, and it's also got it, it. There's a lot of uh, a lot of cynicism, a lot of uh, a, lo- a lot of coverage of, of of negative topics going on, a lot of criticism, a lot of gossip. It's not just a a show that's just kind of going over. Uh, happy news in poker it's it's a it's sure. a very opinionated show and 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 some people don't like it some people don't like the length of it some people just don't like my personality and that's fine but there are people whenever we're exposed to new people there's a certain percentage that give it a listen and say oh wow mm-hmm. i like this i can't in fact some like it so much they go back and listen to old episodes from years before which blows my mind because a lot of that yep. stuff we're talking about is obsolete so but but uh i i'm very happy to get these these new people and the problem is see i i don't want to spam anywhere i, I don't want to try to show up and spam my my show or whatever so so i just hope there's some word of mouth and i put it on my own twitter and poker fraud alerts on twitter and and uh there's one Facebook group that allowed me to post it, but uh, aside from that, there's really no promotion. So when someone and, and sometimes uh, others are nice enough to recommend it, like uh, like Adam Schwartz of the uh, Dat Poker Podcast, formerly yep. formerly Two Plus Two Podcast, he listens to this show and and he puts out there uh, occasionally that, that he listens to this, and people have actually found this show through him recommending it. So I've always appreciated that very much that Adam does this. And 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 he does a, a very good job over there on on his show and, and always has. So uh, the what uh, whenever there's one of these like podcasts to listen to, there's always like this faint hope that I'm going to be mentioned, and I, it rarely is. And I go ah crap. So I, there's been kind of a running joke about 
us being snubbed because this happened with with the bluff awards back when they were around and like the, like every time we go through it it's always like snub 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 so we we, we we even got snubbed by a snub list one time where they they mentioned uh-huh. like the 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 ones that they could have nominated but didn't and we were in on that list and so i was like oh god we never get mentioned so so then i saw your article i saw you posting this on twitter and i go look and it's not there and go up oh, add this to the list of uh of ones that got snubbed so the problem was robbie thought that i was actually complaining robbie thought that I, I didn't was, know about the running joke no no i didn't expect you to but he, but and i didn't know it was going to come off this way so i he he thought well i kind of was tweeting like just for my followers to see this not not i wasn't so much thinking what his response would be so then he was thinking, well, crap, why is this guy complaining about me snubbing him? I haven't even heard of him before. So then, right. so then he wrote this tweet back to me where he actually wrote a fake response. He, like, he wrote a, <laughs> Robbie actually wrote a fake email that, that I should yeah. have sent to him. If if I if I wanted to have uh, some kind of uh, collaboration with us uh, promoting each other's stuff, and he actually posted a sc- he wrote a fake email from me to him and posted it uh, like as a screenshot on his Twitter saying this is the way you should have approached me. And at first when I read it, I was like, wait a minute, I didn't ever send this. And like I, I was trying to remember, right. is, it, is it possible I sent this and forgot? Like I was trying to remember, like is he trying to show I once wrote this and to humiliate me? And like no, I definitely never wrote this. And I go, well, I see what he's doing. He's putting it up like this is what I should have written. And then so so then I said, well, I don't know what you're trying to do here. And I it, so, anyway, we after that rough start there back and forth. Uh, we, we actually uh, then messaged back and forth on, on Twitter direct message mm-hmm. and, and decided we, we'll put that little misunderstanding behind us. And, and he actually will come on this show and, and, we're yep. gonna talk, and we'll talk about Jews and uh, so and, and, and I'll let people know. Yeah, about- I, I will just say I got to give uh, credit officially to the to the guy who wrote the article was Jeff Fisk. He's one of my contributing writers. But what this whole story, I, we laugh about it now, and I'm grateful that we you know did clear up that misunderstanding. And you know, got to come full circle. It reminds me of just you know another typical thing that you know often happens. Like we always say, only in Israel this sort of thing would happen. That you have a couple guys that they get into a car crash. And, you know, one of them is mad at this one. You stopped too short. And the other one's like, no, you were driving too fast. And they start arguing. They change insurance information. And by the time they finish talking, they're good friends. They hug it out. And they say, let's go get a bite to eat together. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so I'm grateful that that happened. And I'm certainly, uh, you know, grateful for the invitation to join you here on Poker Fraud Alert. And uh, thanks for having me on, Todd. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for coming and uh, talking about Jews and Israel and everything with me. And, uh, you know, one day, uh, if the World Series ever goes again, and I'm there again, and, and you're there again. Or if, if I do make my trip to Israel, then maybe I can uh, meet you in person for more than a few seconds handing you a, a clipboard. <laughs> it sounds like a plan. And uh, once the show uh, does get archived, please send me the link, and I'll be happy. I, I spam all the time, but I'm really uh, happy to get the word out and uh, get more, get some more people listening to the show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Good night, Robbie. Or good, good morning. Care. Actually, not good night. Good night for me. Good night. Good morning for you. And we'll say shalom. Shalom. <laughs> Bye-bye. He doesn't even know that we say shalom at the end of this show. I, I, I wanted to tell him, but I'm just I'm going to let him find out himself. Okay, so we're going to move on to our, our next topic here, the coronavirus. We're going to do some coronavirus topics here. And uh, first, I want to talk about the current U.S. death toll. It is now over 54,000 as I record this. And I had said, as we were in the beginning of April that we're probably looking at a likely death toll of 50,000 by the end of April. And I wish I was right. 
because that would have been fewer people dead than there are today, which is still five days from the end of April. But as of 5 p.m. Pacific time on April 25th, there were 54,265 COVID-19 deaths. Now, that number is something that is not completely accurate. It could be low or it could be high. It could be low in that there were some deaths earlier on where they were not attributed to the coronavirus when they very well may have, where people were just found dead in their homes and then not tested for it. It was kind of assumed at the time that if you're dying of COVID-19, that it's a slow process that takes two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and that you're going to be in the hospital at some point. It's not going to be like a heart attack that just kills you. So people who are just found dead in their homes were not counted in those stats in some areas. Some of them, they went back and retroactively tested, but others, they just uh, didn't count. So those are the deaths that were probably COVID-19 related. Some of them were, not all of them, but some of them were, that were assumed to be other things. However, it could be on the higher side because there has been some crossover with COVID-19 and pneumonia. And there have been a number of deaths where people both have pneumonia and COVID-19. And it's not known which one really caused the death or if COVID-19 played any role in the death. It's possible the person would have died with or without COVID-19. And it was would have been from the pneumonia. So even if they determined someone died from the pneumonia, it could be pneumonia that was brought on uh, from having COVID-19. But also it may not have been. There's a lot of question about that. But there is a decent percentage, just by no means near a majority, but there's a decent percentage of people who died who both had pneumonia and COVID-19, and it's hard to tell what it was that killed them or if COVID-19 played any part. So those may have been overcounted. And there were there were other deaths that uh, the person was tested co- positive for COVID-19, but uh, they may have died anyway. You know, people who had heart attacks that also happened to have COVID-19. People who died of other ailments that had COVID-19 where it may not have played a role in their death or where it may have killed them a very short time before they were going to die anyway. If someone had COVID-19 and it hastened their death by two days, where if they didn't catch it, they would have died two days later, you can technically call it a COVID-19 death, but that's very different than someone whose life was cut short where they would have lived the foreseeable future without it. So it's uh, an inexact science with being able to tell how many deaths there are. But I don't think the number is too far off in either direction because obviously some of the undercounts cancel out the overcounts. And you don't need an exact number. So right now the number, as I'm recording this, that has been reported is uh, 54,000 274 deaths. By the end of April 30th, it will be over 60,000 for sure. And keep in mind, one of the models predicted 60,000 deaths total, that when we're all done with COVID-19, there will be 60,000 deaths. If that turns out to be true, then a miracle has happened. 
that would be great if 60,000 total die from this since we've already had over 54,000 dead from it. That would mean of all the people alive today, fewer than 6,000 are going to die from COVID-19 ever. But that's not going to be true. It's going to be blast way past 60,000. We'll be over 60,000 almost assuredly by the end of April 30th. And then we have to wonder how long is the death rate going to continue around what it has been before it really drops off. So there were 2,065 deaths from 5 p.m. on April 24th to 5 p.m. April 25th in that 24-hour period, 2,065 deaths in the U.S. And it's been kind of like that every day. It's been a little bit more some days, a little bit less some days, but it's been around that 2,000 number every day. And it, it hasn't really peaked very much above that. One day it was 2,700-something, but that, that, that it didn't get past that. Then it went back down. It's kind of been hanging around, been circling around the 2,000 number. And it's, it's not really getting better or worse. The number may be artificially a little higher than it was before because uh, they're counting the deaths a little bit differently now, which favors a higher count. So some deaths they didn't count as COVID-19 before they are now, so that there may actually be fewer people dying of it than there was before, even though at the time they were also reporting about 2,000 a day. But still, it hasn't dramatically dropped the death rate, for sure. And if we keep saying 2,000, 2,000, 2,000 every day, then that's going to be another 60,000 that we pile on top of this first 60,000 in May. Now, even if it cuts in half, it's still another 30,000 in May, which will bring it to 90,000. And I've seen that some models claim that sometime in June we're going to be down to single-digit deaths per day. I, I doubt that. I'd be shocked if we're down to single-digit deaths per day in June. Once we're down to single-digit deaths per day, then the current threat from this is all but over because the country has 330 million people. So if you're getting fewer than 10 dying a day of anything, then that's nothing the average person has to be concerned with. Even the non-average person doesn't have to be concerned with it if, if fewer than 10 out of 330 million are dying per day. There's many super rare diseases killing people every day in the U.S. that more than 10 die per day. Any disease that kills 3,650, which would be 10 per day in the U.S., is considered very rare. Now, you could say, well, maybe it'll spike back up if we stop social distancing, and that is very possible. But really, if, if we get it down to single digits per day, then that really means it's, it's been held back and, and is uh, th- there's so few transmissions of it that it really may just die. It really may not have the ability to spread that well, especially because some people already have it. So then we really could be near the end of the problem. But I just don't believe it. I don't believe that's what we're going to see. I believe we're going to see a slow reduction that will last only as long as the social distancing remains in place. And as we relax that, the numbers should go back up. Now, they, they may not get as bad as before because people will be more careful. People will be doing fewer reckless things. There will be fewer things open that can spread it a lot, like things like Live poker rooms hopefully won't be open, and and uh, cruise ships and 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 big events. So so that stuff won't be happening, and people attempting to keep distance from each other and be more careful and wearing masks. These will bring down the number of deaths than if we just took no precautions. So we may not 
get as high as we currently are in April of deaths per day. But we also might because of people going back out and spreading it again. It's hard to tell. If you believe that we're going to escape from this with fewer than 80,000 deaths, you're delusional. Since we're sitting at 54,000-something with 2,000 new deaths in the 24-hour period that just ended. If you think somehow we're going to get to fewer than 80,000 when this is done, then you're not being honest with yourself. At one point, I said, I think 300,000 are going to die from this when it's all done. Then I kind of felt like a fool for saying that. I thought, oh, okay, I overestimated. I just I bought into the panic. No, no, I think I was right. I, I'm back to thinking that. I'm back to thinking 300,000 is about the number we're going to see. And you may say, oh, my God, that, that's insane. How could 300,000 die? Well, look at what's happened. Look what we're seeing, 2,000 every day. 2,000 every day, we just need five months to get to 300,000. Now, I don't think it's going to stay at 2,000 every day, but I don't think it's going to dramatically go down to where it's going to be negligible, like they're pretending they have in China. So I think 300,000 is a good estimate. It could be more than that, especially if it takes a long time to get a handle on this, especially if there is no treatment especially if they have to start reopening the economy more and more in order to prevent the economy from crashing. There may have to be an acceptance at some point that, yes, we are going to lose something like 300,000, 500,000, whatever people, and, and accept that even though that number sounds huge, compared to a country of 330 million and given that most of the people who die are going to be those who didn't have that long to live anyway, that we just have to accept it as a new part of life. One thing that people have not thought about because they haven't lived it, at least most people haven't, and that is the fact that we are used to living without daily danger. And yes, there's been the danger you're going to die from an auto accident or from an act of violence or from some fluke disease that gets you that hardly gets anybody else or a very early heart attack or a very unusual early cancer. For the most part, people expect that, number one, they are going to live to a fairly old age, meaning at least past 60. And that their kids are going to live through childhood and all the way through adulthood, probably again to a fairly old age. Unless they do it to themselves, like uh, doing something very reckless that gets them killed, or developing a drug problem, uh, or or committing suicide, something like that. But uh, taking those things out, if you just live a normal life, you don't kill yourself, you don't develop a drug habit, and, and you don't live super recklessly if you just kind of take for granted that you're going to live past uh past 60 and a very good chance past 70 and, and maybe past 80 or 90 and, and this is just what people expect and uh there is not an ongoing threat to just take you out out of nowhere there just isn't yeah you know you can get really unlucky you know you know you can be 47 years old just dropped out of a heart attack but you don't think about it too often because it isn't that many people. And and often 
you'll have warning signs of that happening. So in general, you think, okay, I've got a lot of time left. And then now this comes, you go, whoa, 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 whoa. This this can just hit me and I, and I might just die. And if I don't, maybe it's going to really damage me and, and cause me to die earlier, cause uh, a lot of chronic medical problems. Uh, this This is something that is a health danger that we didn't have to deal with before. But you know who was used to dealing with things like this were people who lived in all times... But modern times, even a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, as I mentioned uh, before, medicine was very immature. There was no such thing as antibiotics. So, if you needed antibiotics, if you had some kind of uh, bacterial infection, well, tough luck. <laughs> You're probably going to die. Hope, you better hope it resolves because there, there wasn't much you could do about it. Antibiotics really changed the game for, for life expectancy and for stopping infections that start off as minor before they become more than minor. So now antibiotics stop so many possible uh, dangerous illnesses in their tracks before they can uh, become something that will kill you. And you take it for granted. You, you get some kind of infection, you take antibiotics. They'll even prescribe antibiotics uh, to prevent an infection in cases where an infection is likely. When you get certain kinds of d- dental work, they will actually give you antibiotics because of the high chance of developing an infection from the, from the extensive dental work that was done. Whereas before, you just have to hope, I don't get an infection from this, and then you die a lot of the times if you get an infection. So... Uh, as a result of the lack of antibiotics and the lack of general understanding in medicine in general, it was common for kids to die, which now is unusual. Now if you hear somebody lost a kid, you think, wow, that's tragic. Wow, I can't believe that parent had to go through that. Wow, I feel terrible for them because it isn't common. Most people in modern times in first world countries don't lose children. That's very much the exception, not the rule. A hundred years ago, it was very common to lose children. A hundred years before that, it was even more common. People were having a lot of kids with the expectation that some were not going to make it. And yeah, it was sad, but it was something expected. It was like, we don't want this to happen. It's sad when it happens, but it's not going to be, oh my God, how did I get so unlucky to have this happen? It's like, yeah, this is going to happen. Some of the kids are probably not going to make it. And, And a lot of adults died early too. Some were lucky and would live to a normal age, and other adults would die in middle age or younger, and a lot of kids would die. And that was the way life was. There was a guy who was chronicled on CNN and other news outlets to be the only known brothers to uh, have died from two different pandemics a hundred years apart where his brother, a twin brother, died of the 1918 flu towards the end of it in uh, January 2020. He and his brother were twins born in December December 1919. So his brother died at a few weeks old in January 1920 from the 1918 Spanish flu. And then he just died on April 17th, 2020, 100 years and three months later, from the coronavirus. So two brothers died of a pandemic a hundred years apart. You probably will never see that again. But that happened. 
But the brother dying was not that unusual. And if you look at your own family tree, you will probably find history in your ancestry of people who lived in the 1900s that that died, that were related to you, who died as kids. You'll find maybe your, your grandfather or your great-grandfather had a brother or sister or multiple brothers and sisters that didn't make it to their 18th birthday. So in those days, that happened a lot. So as a result, people were kind of more accepting that that is just a risk that comes with being alive. And you you get used to whatever dangers you're facing. Whatever you grow up with seeing, you get used to, and it it doesn't become something that alarms you anymore. Like, uh, think about heart attacks. I mean, that sounds pretty awful. If, if, If it's something that wasn't common and just suddenly started happening, this would be a, a huge, huge story of people's hearts that uh, basically just stopped working and they dropped dead with no warning, starting basically from their late 40s for men and a little bit later for women. So I mean, think of that. Think of cancer, how terrible that is, something that ravages your body slowly and kills you in, in a terribly painful way. But you don't spend every day stressing about heart attacks or cancer, most likely, because you've known about this in your entire life, that this, that number one, it happens more towards the end of life. Yes, you can get unlucky, it can happen earlier, but uh, very unlikely to happen before 40. And, and second, that uh, th- this is just what you expect, that there's a good chance one of those two things is going to get you eventually, and you just hope it's later rather than sooner. But it's not something alarming. So it's not something you think about or fear. Even the flu, which kills a lot of people each year. Mostly predictable about who it kills. It's not like uh, COVID-19, which kills a lot more indiscriminately. But the flu kills a lot of people each year. But we've been used to the flu for a very long time. And you just accept, yes, the flu kills a lot of people each year. And we also accept the fact that uh, most of the people dying of the flu already had existing health problems and that healthy people not only don't die from it, but they get over it within a few days. It's not the worst thing they ever experienced. It's just uncomfortable for a few days. They get over it. They move on. There's no permanent damage. And that's where it's very different from COVID-19 because you, if you don't die from it, you get over it and it's like it never happened. And it's a lot faster the, the process of going through it and getting over it. That's that's why I didn't fear it. I, I did not fear that I catch the flu and it's going to kill me. I said, okay, if, if I catch the flu, it'll be an unpleasant uh, four or five days. That's That's what I would think. And not even like so unpleasant, it would be like super memorable. I thought at worst it'll be kind of like moderately memorable. But what I'm hearing by people my age going through COVID-19, it's not just moderately memorable. It's it's like the worst thing they've ever experienced in their lives, including at one point a realistic fear of death. So uh, this may just become a new reality. And people just may have to deal with it and that, that it may eventually be the depressing result here is that not only are we going to lose 
a lot of people, but we're going to lose more and more each year. Just like we have a list of flu deaths each year, we may have a list of COVID-19 deaths each year. There may be a new thing with it. Just because we, we have the flu, it doesn't mean we can't have a second version of the flu that's somewhat different. That is also killing a lot of people each year. Doesn't mean we can't have a third one or a fourth one. The reality may be that there's a vaccine that you can take it. It won't be completely effective, but it'll be mostly effective. And that each year you will be at some risk of catching the new mutated version of COVID-19. And that it might kill you. And even if you got past the last one, you may very well get the newer version. And this one may kill you even if the last one didn't. This, this may just be a new risk we have. That people growing up with it will either be used to it or, or not know anything else because they're too young to remember anything else. And everybody else will just have to adjust to it. And people will have to just deal with it. But uh, if you think we're going to get out of this without many more deaths than what we have right now, believe me, you're delusional. 54,200-something right now. And we're, uh, we just crossed into April 26th. That's something that you may have to get used to. So now let's talk about what's going on in Las Vegas. Something I knew would happen. A battle that I knew would occur and is happening as expected. Carolyn Goodman, the mayor of Las Vegas, and I know I erroneously said on a previous show that she was Oscar Goodman, the former mayor's daughter. She's actually his wife. She made a fool of herself on national TV, on Anderson Cooper. She has been very insistent that everything in Las Vegas open up again. She's very, very much pro, let's just go back to normal life and see what happens. Why? Because Vegas doesn't have any other choice, in her opinion. And I saw this coming, because the truth is Vegas doesn't have very much of a choice. Vegas has one of two awful choices. Either remain with things shut down, and the economy is going to go completely in the toilet. Not just turn bad, but be awful. Just completely go in the toilet, maybe even collapse. Or reopen the casinos, which basically drive the entire economy of Las Vegas, and maybe save the economy. Remember, you, you have to have customers to save the economy, but at least give the economy a chance to have some kind of recovery there and accept the fact that people are going to die. Which one's worse? And it's not just people dying. It's just also people are going to get the disease that will spread to others. People who don't die will also have permanent damage, physical and psychological, from it. It's, it's not an easy decision. Both of these are very, very unpleasant results. You can't just sit by idly and watch the economy completely collapse because it's dependent on one industry that is completely shut down. And you can't just recklessly open that one industry because it's a very dangerous industry for something like this and that a lot of people are going to suffer and die from it. So what do you do? And if the economy collapses, then a lot of people are going to suffer and die anyway. So this this is a big problem and there is no easy solution. In some other places that are not a one-node economy, they can make some adjustments. And certain 
aspects of the economy can grow while others will shrink. Uh, there can be some adjustments to the post-COVID-19 uh, life or the current COVID-19 life. When you only have one industry in the whole city for the most part, uh, there's no adjustments to make. You're just screwed. So what's the answer? I, I don't know. But the problem is she's not approaching this in a proper way. She just is approaching this in a very reckless way and is saying stupid things on TV. And this is resulting in uh, a lot of bad press for her and the city of Las Vegas. So she appeared on uh, CNN with uh, Anderson Cooper. And, and listen to this exchange that has gone viral. So right. taking that into consideration and that we have once you're diagnosed that you're you're positive, we have no preventive treatment other than staying away from everybody, which is your choice to do and has been asked by our governor and everybody's doing. But with no timeline, no treatment and no cure, no vaccine, this could go on for months, maybe right. but even what a we year. Do know, but science tells us, and Dr. Fauci isn't saying wait a year. Dr. Fauci is saying, and all scientists are saying, you know, it just needs some more time uh, to to get this to where a medical establishment is, is up and running and where there's enough PPE and there's enough testing being done and contact tracing. What are you doing as mayor to improve contact tracing and testing in Las Vegas. So, so far, she's not really unreasonable. And in fact, uh, if you just listen to this part of the exchange, you say, okay, I, I can actually agree more with her than Anderson Cooper, who's the one interviewing her. Contact tracing is a joke. I, I always laugh at contact tracing. Contact tracing is where you try to find who is the, the current patient zero. who Who's the one spreading it around and isolate them? That works if, like, if barely anyone has this yet. Or if you've gotten this down to such a low level that almost nobody's getting it, and if you find a single case, then you you go back and figure out where they've been and who they've been associating with, find the person who's positive and isolate them, and then stop this from spreading. We're way past that point. I don't think we'll ever be back to a point where we can realistically contract trace ever again. I, I just can't picture it. So to say, what are you going to do for contact tracing – that's out the window. Forget contact tracing. That's what you do at the very, very, very beginning to stop it from getting to the point it is now. That's out the window. That seems like a completely unrealistic goal. And she is correct in that there is no plan and we don't see any current real progress for a very effective treatment. I know we, we hear about uh, some potential treatments that might work, but there's no game-changer treatment yet. It's not like they found a game-changer and they just have to verify it. We're, we're not there yet. And who knows how long it's going to be till we're there. So she's right that you can't just sit here waiting for eternity without any kind of end date, without any kind of projected end date. Just wait, 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 give us a few more months, a few more months, a few more months, while the economy collapses. If you could at least know that, hey, by, it's very likely that, say, by July 1st, we'll have a, a great treatment for this. Okay, then you, you, you find a way for the city to tough it out to July 1st, knowing things will uh, greatly improve then. But you don't know. It could be in the same boat on July 1st. That's, that's what she's saying here is that if things are not going to improve, we might as well just open now and, and, and get everything over with. Because otherwise, all we're doing is hurting the economy and eventually having to reopen and sicken everybody. So, so, so why not uh, just... Return. So I can understand this line of reasoning, but but it gets much worse from here. 
Well, first of all, as someone who's pretty sure she possibly had it in January, I have already been into the hospital to say, right. take my, take my plasma. Well, and I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about what are you, what are you doing as mayor and to improve contact tracing? Upon, I'm calling upon everyone to go ahead if they're positive to go ahead and see if they can help be in part of the preventive or the treatment pool that will have this plasma available. What Are you I doing anything doing, on testing and contact tracing? Because in order to open businesses, every scientist says that labs. is essential. I don't have that. Well, no, that's for our scientists. And the whole thing is, is fact. Well, Truth but you're, validated right, fact, you're, data. Right, fact, you're calling for businesses to reopen Every yes. scientist uh, and person, you know, who looks at this says what we really need on, to do that is more testing wait, wait, and wait. more contact every, tracing. That, that, no, that can't work. We're not getting the truth. And I know over the years, going back to 19, so wait, the 1950s with the atomic bomb, don't worry about it when we're testing in Nevada. You'll all be fine. Take a shower. The reality the, is you're the one saying the you'll all be fine. What, no, what, what, what we're I saying said, is no, no, testing. No, no. See, that's where she's already going off the rails here. She she is contradicting herself. He has a good point here that uh, she's saying I'm old enough to remember, which which she is. She actually is 81 years old, I think, something like that, early 80s. So she's saying that she was around back in the 50s when uh, they're telling everybody, oh, don't worry about the atomic testing here. As long as you take a shower, it'll wash off the radiation. And, and, and people bought it, and it turned out that there were people who got uh, poisoning for, from the radiation for some of that testing around the area. So she's saying, uh, look, we, we've heard this before. And he's saying, no, you're the one saying this. You're the one saying we're all just going to be fine. And it's true. Yeah, he, he, Anderson Cooper is the one who's advocating, be more careful, don't open everything up. And she's saying, no, let's open it. We'll all be fine. So... Let's hear her response to that. No, you're putting okay. words in my mouth. I said, open up Las Vegas. Let us get started right. and go back what to is work. May- what, as mayor, what are you doing to encourage? even feed their families or take yeah. care of their families. I get, I get the pain that's out there, and it's real, and I'm not minimizing yes, that at it all. Is. I'm, I'm just asking you as mayor, what are you doing to improve testing, make it more accessible, and improve contact tracing because every scientist who you say you listen to will tell you that's what you need in order to get online as fast as possible. What are you doing? Every single email that comes in with offers to give us the kits and get everything here, I send it up to the people in the hospitals for them to filter through to find out if these test kits and everything that's being offered and provided. You, you for them. said in another that's interview that job. you talked to Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti. Yes, if you he's actually talk to okay, if you talk to Mayor Garcetti, he's doing everything he can to improve testing in Los Angeles. I think that's what are you wonderful doing? and I You said it's I, not your that, job. Wait, no, it is not part of our job. That's part of our health department, part of our hospital jobs, our labs. Those are the ones who are the experienced. So you're not rolling up your sleeves, helping your health department to try to figure I, out. Um, my days to... are so full. I am everywhere in the city. Trying... Yeah, see, that already sounds pretty bad. Where she's just basically saying, "Yeah, you know, as far as the testing, that's not my job. It's not my problem. Let the health department deal with that." Uh, I'm too busy with everything else. I can't even worry about testing here. Of course you have to. You, you're not going to be one administering tests. You, I understand why he, she would be saying, I can't actually physically get tests together or, or be the one to organize the testing. But she definitely has to oversee the process and make sure it's sufficient 
before they uh, reopen everything. Now, the truth is the testing is not going to help that much. The, the, the correct answer here would be that uh, there's no way to test everybody. There's just no way to do it. There, there just isn't a way right now without a treatment or a vaccine to prevent people from coming into the casinos who don't have the coronavirus. You can, you can try some measures, but they're not going to be that effective. And that basically we, we have to make the choice between are we going to let the economy absolutely collapse in Las Vegas, which is what's going to happen if we stay closed much longer, or do, do we have to just uh, reopen it and, and take a calculated risk knowing that uh, we're going to have devastation from an economic standpoint, which will also kill people if we remain closed much longer. So we, we have a terrible choice to make, and, and, and this is the smarter way to do it. If she wants to advocate it, that's what she should say. Instead, she's going, oh, that's not my problem. I, I Testing, oh, that, that's the health department. I, my plate is full. Trying to hold the hands of families and everyone else that to get them back to work so they can pay for the food for their children and keep a roof over their head. And we are 2.3 million, and we have so many, probably close to 900,000 that are out of work because this wonderful city's been shut down. Can I, Alyssa, again, I don't want to seem, I'm not, you know, I, I, I understand your position. Um, but I don't really understand your position because I think you see your position, I guess, because you have no control over the casinos and no, take no responsibility for it. You can call for whatever you want to call for. But the people who actually do have to be responsible for the health and safety of the people in those casinos and the employees Without that you say question. you care so much Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Right. Without those people question. are saying the owners. it's not the time for that yet. I want to just show you. No, they uh, and show No, 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 no. The hotel, well, depending upon who you speak, with whom you speak, I hear all the time from the casino owners who want to put their employees back to work. 7,000 right. people. I, I'm, yeah, and that I believe. It does make sense. See, what, what the casinos have to weigh here is if they reopen, they, they might open themselves up to legal liability if they're doing so recklessly, and then people get sick and die there. But they also have to weigh this against the fact that if they stay closed, that uh, they may collapse. So they may have to also decide to take a calculated risk and just open back up, also seeing that this has no projected end when it's really going to be safe to open again. So if you can open now when it's unsafe or in three months when it's unsafe, what's the better thing to do if you're a casino opener, uh, a casino owner? You, you, you would be a casino opener, as I just said, and open it now. If it's going to be unsafe in three months, too, just as unsafe in three months, you might as well reopen it right now. I will agree with that. Now, the reason I don't agree we should open is because we don't know if it's going to be safe in three months. But on the other hand, I, I can see the point. I can see the point is that without a real timeline be given to us, without them knowing a timeline, that at some point you may just have to say, you know, we're throwing the doors open because this could end up being an eternity and we'll have waited all this time for nothing. And that the one thing we were most worried about, stressing the health system, it didn't come to pass in the U.S., and now they have ramped up the number of hospital beds and ventilators and all that. So even if there is a surge, they're ready for it. 
So, okay, let's just open up, and if people get sick, they get sick. We're not going to wait just to find we have to reopen under the same circumstances anyway in six months and have lost six months of, of, of revenue and lost all this money for nothing. So that, that's basically what she's trying to say here. So there are some casino owners who want to open, but there are some who are afraid to open and, and suffer from the possible legal uh, or the uh, PR consequences of opening up and a lot of people getting sick and dying there or even the PR consequences of kind of reigniting the coronavirus pandemic and have it go back the other way rather than uh, improving with the number of cases snapping back to getting worse every day. I'm sure a lot of owners want their businesses up and running. That that does not surprise me. Yes, and Anderson, you can find people to speak on either side. What's happened in this country is so much anger and just everything being fanned. I admire our governor. The governor says, unfortunately, I've known the mayor. I don't need politicians uh, weighing in on what. Uh, I am not a what's politician. What's the best date would be? I am a politician. I need doctors and medical mayor. sound advice. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not a politician. I am a politician because I'm a mayor. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And who are, who are his people? And are they, in fact, the best that okay. we can have? I'm assuming <laughs> yes. And all I'm doing is asking for a plan right. so I can tell our people who are calling by the thousands when are they going to get a paycheck how can they get a roof over their heads i am down in the groundwork with the people who've made this city what it is who've come here to live come here to build it and we were not broken and we need to get back to work there's a battle going on as you can tell already between the mayor and the governor and this is not really where I expected the battle to be. I, I had always projected the battle was going to be between the state of Nevada and the federal government. Instead, the federal government is basically saying, states, go ahead and do what you want. We're staying out of it. And here we're having the Las Vegas mayor saying, open everything up. And the Nevada governor saying, uh, no, it's not safe. We're not doing that now. And then the mayor complains about it, and then he makes some snide comments about he doesn't need politicians telling him what to do, even though he's a politician. And then she says, I'm not a politician, when she is. So there's two different schools of thought on this, and the governor is taking it that the mayor is criticizing the way he is doing things. And she actually is, and she thinks he's doing it wrong, and he's causing people to be out of work and stay out of work. So they definitely have a lot of bitterness towards each other. By the way, you may not know this, but the strip casinos are not in Las Vegas. Yes, you heard me right. The strip casinos are not in Las Vegas. They are in unincorporated Clark County in a community known as Paradise. Yes, Paradise is also a road, which is uh, east of the strip, runs the same way as the strip. But Paradise is also the name of the unincorporated community where the strip casinos are located. It is not part of the city of Las Vegas. A lot of people don't know that. What this means in this case is that the mayor has absolutely no jurisdiction over them. The the mayor of Las Vegas has as much control over the strip casinos as she does over the casinos in Reno. That's just not part of the city of Las Vegas. So... That's also something to keep in mind. Though she is speaking of the entire area when she talked to the uh, the 2.3 million people. Looks like we just lost Trader Ruski. 
who says, great show tonight, Druff, but I can't keep my eyes open. I'm going to sign off and listen. Sorry. No problem. We will continue on. But she is uh, claiming she's speaking for the 2.3 million people in the area, the greater Las Vegas area, which includes Las Vegas, unincorporated Las Vegas area like Paradise, uh, Henderson, Boulder City, that entire region of southern Nevada she's speaking of here because they are all basically uh, greater Las Vegas. But she only has control of actual Las Vegas City. That's it. There's a, a Chinese researchers have shown uh, how this virus spreads. And I just want to put up Ooh, for our viewers. <laughs> I just want to put up for our viewers. This is a, a restaurant. And you are tough. <laughs> no, I'm not We're talking about just... China. This isn't China. Yeah. This, this is, is Las a... Vegas, Nevada. Wow. Okay. That's really ignorant. This is a restaurant. <laughs> oh, and... <laughs> that's, that's the first nasty statement he made to her. Wow. That's really ignorant. Her comment was stupid. And it's, this is the type of thing where she just needs to shut up. Some of the stuff she says, even if you don't agree with it, you can say, okay, I can see where she's kind of making sense. What he's saying here is here's a study from China. And, well, this isn't China. This is Las Vegas. Well, it's not a study about China. It's a study from China about the virus. And that doesn't mean it's, it's a bad study. It's a study they did there. So that's a, a stupid thing to say. And he was saying that it's ignorant because he's trying to – uh Mock her from the standpoint that she's looking down on the Chinese, and I, I, I never liked that. I never liked this whole thing of uh, trying to look for racism where it doesn't belong, which totally is right there. Like there isn't racism about this virus. There's a very small number of idiots who are blaming the Chinese people in the U.S. for this, like Asian Americans. They're blaming for this, which of course is idiotic. But a very small percentage of people feel that way. Uh, most people who blame China for this blame the government of China, not even the citizens of China, the government of China they are blaming for this, which is very reasonable. That's who I blame as well. They started it. They made a lot of mistakes. They covered this up. They may have even invented this in a lab and, and accidentally let this out. So this uh, it, it's understandable to have some animosity toward the country of China and the government of China and to say that isn't, quote, ignorant – uh, so I, I think the, what, what he said to her was kind of like along those lines. But uh, interestingly enough, her line was ignorant for a different reason, that if a study comes out of China, that doesn't mean it's a bad study, uh, you, you, especially if you haven't heard what it is yet. <laughs> She's like, oh, you've got everything here. You're, you're trying to attack you. But listen to what he has to say. Then if, if then if you think that China's out of line, then say, OK, no, China's wrong here or we can't trust China for this reason. Not like, oh, well, this is not China. Well, it. It doesn't have to be China if they've studied something relevant to the U.S., which this study about the spread in restaurants is. So listen to what he's saying here. And the that's yellow circle, that's an ignorant, that... ignorant statement. That's that's a restaurant. And yes, it's in China, but there are human beings, too. That yellow is a person who's in, who is asymptomatic and infected. And all those other red circles are other diners who that one diner passed the virus to. All those other people became infected in a restaurant that had air conditioning, and they believe it was the air conditioning which helped the virus and, spread and to all those other so, so what they were showing, you couldn't see this, of course, on the radio, but they were showing a restaurant with tables that are pretty close together where one person who's in yellow, a yellow circle, 
infected like eight other people in the restaurant at nearby tables, not even all people who were at their table, uh, just from that one person being there with coronavirus that, that happened through the air conditioning system, uh, or at least is the theory over there. So he's explaining why this could be applied to anything in the U.S. and what are you going to do about this? You remember people. the Legionnaire's disease in 1976 in Philadelphia. Came all- now, I remember the Legionnaire's disease in, uh, in 2018 at the Rio. All through the air conditioning. You don't remember because you're younger. I Typhoid do remember. Mary, Typhoid I- Mary, who I think passed away, well, anyway, during the late 30s, rode the buses, was a, uh, a cook. And she was asymptomatic, and she spreaded a a, uh, a a fear of getting typhoid, and she never showed a sign of it. And she lived most of her life quarantined. The reality was, I think, 58 people passed away from typhoid. And okay. so we're aware of this. We learn from history. Right. We've had Ebola. We've had the West Nile. But, we've right. had polio. We've had these... None of those were as painful. infectious in Las Vegas. I mean, you didn't have people with Ebola on a casino floor. You know what? If you well, did, we don't know it, that. Well, yeah, you, you do because if you had a it, a neighbor of mine died from West Nile because the swimming pool on the next property was filled with mosquitoes, and the people who had abandoned right. the house left the pool full. So we live with this. This is part I, of I, life. Just as mayor, the aren't challenges. You, as mayor, are you not concerned when you see just that yes, restaurant graphic, every how day. air condition spreads this and other people become yes, infected? Yes, from Legionnaire's disease. That's just what I said. What's she talking about? And so what <laughs> from Legionnaire's disease? No, we're not talking about Legionnaire's disease, which isn't as dangerous, by the way. We, we just dealt with that threat at the Rio. I don't know what she's talking about. 1976. This just happened in her own city in uh, 2018. But. The, the thing here that, again, needs to be said is that this is different than Ebola because Ebola is something that you get very sick very quickly and therefore cannot spread very well. Even if you want to spread Ebola, it's very hard for you to spread Ebola because you're going to be too sick to walk around. You're going to be too sick to get up and spread it. Just as people with COVID-19 often are, but only fairly deep into having it, so before that, they were very well enough to go around and spread it, including the first uh, three to five days where they often have no symptoms at all. And, and there's even some theories that that's when they're the most contagious is when they have no symptoms. If everybody uh, got symptoms within a day, which uh, are the bad symptoms that, that come you know, within a week or two weeks or so from when you get it, then this wouldn't spread nearly as easily because everybody would be laid up in bed and could not walk around and spread it. And and that's the, and also Ebola is not as transmissible even if you can walk around and spread it because it has to be spread through bodily fluids. So that becomes a lot tougher. So so between those two things, Ebola while far more deadly than this coronavirus, it barely spreads. It's very hard to spread. It can't become something that's going to threaten the whole country. Because it's very easy to avoid, and it's pretty easy to tell who has it. There just aren't asymptomatic Ebola cases. You get Ebola, you're you're laid up immediately, and then your chance of dying is pretty high, way higher than this. But that also keeps it from spreading. So you can't compare this to previous pandemics. You either have ones that are very, very strong and quick symptoms that don't allow it to spread quickly, 
or ones that do spread quickly with mild symptoms or asymptomatic, but also aren't as deadly. This one has the unique quality that we've never seen before. Never. Not with the 1918 Spanish flu, not with Ebola, not with the, the 2002 SARS, not with MERS, none of this stuff. None of these have had the dual qualities of high transmissibility and being deadly. When I say deadly, I don't mean uh, kill, you know, kills anyone. I mean to where it kills significantly higher than something like the flu. The closest thing we have to this is the flu, but this is more spreadable and more deadly. So there's never been one like this that is as deadly as this, but can spread this well. That is why this is unique. That's why I don't think we'll ever see another thing like this. We may be stuck with it forever, but uh, I don't think we'll see a second one that uh, is a totally different virus that behaves this way. This is a very, very unusual virus. That's why I've thought there's a good chance the whole way it was actually developed. It's very unusual in the way that it's tailor-made for, for spreading the way it is and, and killing the way it is. Because it's very hard for these two things to be true at the same time with these viruses, where they're both fairly deadly and can be spread a lot. Usually the two cancel each other out. Of course we know that. We tried to work on the sensitivities of people to be responsible as to spreading any but, kind of germ, whether it's the but flu don't you think that it's, it's worked in Nevada, in Las Vegas social distancing? Don't you think it's worked? Because I mean, 163 deaths that that is compared to some other states that's we're that's low for those families. We're, we're it 2. is 2.3 matters. 2.3 million people mm-hmm. in southern Nevada, and we've had 150 right. deaths. We 163, I believe, is the latest number, actually. Wrong. But that's for Nevada. That's Nevada. This is right. down here. 150. Okay. So you've had almost all million. the deaths, by the way, in Nevada, you've had in Las Vegas. So you've had 150 deaths Correct. out of 163 we're deaths. We're 200, we're 2.3 right. million. Isn't that because here, of social distancing that you would have had far state. more without it? <laughs> Do you not we're believe 2. that? We're 2.3 million here. There are two point, there are 3 million, two up. Uh, overall in the state, the numbers may be off, but I okay. know we're well over 2 million. Do you not believe we social are, distancing has helped keep share. people alive? We are, we're at the lion's share of the population. And She's just rambling now. By the way, if you hear that kind of like static sound, that's not on my end. That's actually on her end as she's talking to Anderson Cooper. This is the way it aired on CNN because she's she's wearing those, uh, those microphone uh, iPhone type headphones and talking that way. So there must be some kind of interference in her home as she's doing this. Just just to let you know, it's not uh, my sound issue. And the income and the jobs. When you have okay, 2.3 million and you have lost, and every one of those 150, oh my gosh, it could be your own mother, your own grandmother, your grandfather, your brother, your sister, anybody, every one of those lives is a tragic loss. But when you count 150 versus 2.3 million, you have to say, okay. we have to open up. We have to right. go back. Our bus drivers, our But hasn't it been because of social distancing that the numbers have been what they are? How do you know until we have a control group? We offer to be a control group. Anybody who knows anything about statistics knows that, for instance, you have a vaccine. You're, you're offering you the, real the vaccine. citizens of Las Vegas to be a control group to see if your theory on social distancing 
no, works no, or no, doesn't no, work. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Don't put words in my <laughs> He's saying you're offering. She's like, yeah, I did offer. It got turned down. But you're putting words in my mouth. Well, no, it sounds like he's right. We have a call here. Let's take the call. Call, you're on the air. What's up, brother? So, you know who this is. Is this bad guy? You damn skippy hippie. Who the fuck is this drunk lady on the fucking radio? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> I mean the drunk lady is is actually the mayor of Las Vegas. I know. She sounds like she's hammered, man. She's she makes no sense. She, she is making no Seriously, sense. Seriously, bro. She's horrible. She's drunk. <laughs> well the problem is here's here's the problem. She she's she's eighty one, that's the first thing. And and then the second hey, my grandma's ninety six and she made more sense on this radio show than that lady ever did, bro. That that's, that's seriously, am I right or wrong? No, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And she just she just isn't cut out for something like this. She just is not uh no. she just she isn't thinking straight and, and the last thing she should have done is go on a show like Anderson Cooper where he's gonna hit you with the tough questions. And, right. And, and, and she's Republican? I I don't even know her, her, her political uh <laughs> I don't even know what her her politics are. I was surprised you were putting her on here. I, I, I'm thinking like, well, this is I know Anderson Cooper. He's CNN, right? Yeah. He's the gay guy, right? Yes, he's the gay guy on CNN. Yes. <laughs> no, but listen, man, that lady sounds like she's hammered, man. Like, like there's something wrong with her. Well, it, I just it, tuned it, in, brother. I mean, she's not making much. She's not making much sense, and no, and, she and, and, and she's old. And and uh, so and she's just not really cut out for this type of controversy, and she's not dealing with it the right way. Like I, I, I even understand the basic point she's making, but but she's not presenting it well. She's she's just all over the place saying crazy things. Well, she and, wants everybody to go back to work to get in Vegas, right? Right. right. She, she's she, saying, she should right? Just, she should just cut to the chase and say, "Look, we, we're in a terrible situation here. We're either right. either the the whole city's going to collapse because the we have one main form of that's that's we have one real aspect to our economy, and that's the casinos. They support everything else. If we don't send people back to work, the, the whole city is going to collapse. So we can either let the whole city collapse economically in, in a way that, that probably will result in all kinds of devastation, including death, or we can let people go back to work and open things back up where we're also going to have death and, and problems. We've right. got to make a choice between one of the two. This is the way I'd like to do it because we have the uncertainty ahead of us. We may have to do this anyway in several months when there's no cure. So why not just – we might as well do it now before the whole economy collapses. That that would still get critics, well, even, but but it would at least she even be, said that they would be like a focus group. Or well, something. that, that that's heard, what I was starting I was to play. Right, that's what I was starting to play, which which is nuts to say. So we we want to be the control group of an experiment where yeah we might die, but let, let's be the control group. Like what the? Heck? We want to be the guinea pigs. Man. Yeah, that's what I you're mean, saying. This lady should be shot. Yeah. Okay. So let, let, let me. Uh, I'm going to try to put this Go ahead. Up. I'll shut up. I'll shut up. Okay. Well, I'm going to try to I put... I want to listen to the rest. Well, I, I don't know if you can hear it through the phone, though. So uh, th- tell me if you can hear this. I'm going to play like a second. Hi, Mal. You just... Uh, did, you, did you hear that? Nope. Nah, see, that's... <laughs> I'll, I'll call back. I'll call back. I want to listen to this. Okay. You, you can I'll, listen. I'll, I'll, I'll go I'll, off and call back. We'll put you on at the end. Okay. Yeah, this bad guy wanting to chime in. We'll, we'll, we'll put him on after this. What said we'll be a control group. Excuse me. What I said was... I offered to be a control group, and I was told by our statistician, you can't do that because people (laughs) from all parts of southern Nevada 
come in to work in the city. And I said, oh, that's too bad because I know when you have a disease, you have a placebo that gets the water and the sugar, and then you get those that actually get the shot. We would love to be that placebo side so you have something to measure against. So all you, the data until You want to get the placebo. You don't want to get the actual. Well, no, the group who gets the placebo, by the way, usually gets the short end of the stick. <laughs> That's, I mean, that's so true. That's, that's a terrible way to put it. We want to be the placebo. He's right. Unless the medication that they're testing is ineffective or causing horrible side effects, when people go in and for, for these medical studies and they, they have some kind of problem that they're attempting to treat, they'll give some of them the actual medication and some of them the placebo, which looks like the medication, but actually is, is just a, a pill that does nothing. And this way they can tell the difference between those who actually feel better for the medication and the ones that just think they're feeling better because they are taking a medication and it's like all psychological or they just happen to get better on their own and think it's the medication. It's what's known as the placebo effect. That's why all these medical studies always have to have a placebo tested along with the regular medication and then they don't tell people which is which. So she's saying we want to be the placebo here, which is crazy. She's, this is this horrible disease that she's saying, yeah, we'd like to be the placebo for it, which, which is a terrible way to put it. Or we want to be the control group. Uh, again, she's saying it all wrong. What she should say is that people have been wondering, is the best solution overall to open up? Or is the best solution to just keep waiting and waiting and waiting and, and hoping for something to get better? And the question is, uh, if you open up, uh, what are the risks? And there's no way to tell without doing it. Well, we're in such bad shape here with everything closed that most people here feel like uh, we're losing more by staying closed than by the risk we're taking to reopen. So you guys have been looking for an example of a city that is going to operate normally or, or close to normally and open things back up. You want to look for an example of uh, what that looks like and what the results will be. We would like to be that because we have no other choice. We, we, we'd prefer to wait around, but we, we can't. We, all, we only have really one economy here, which is based on the casinos, and we have to open back up. So, so we would like to show everyone what that's going to look like and because we think this is, our back's against the wall. We have to. So you might as well observe us. That's what she should say. Not we want to be the placebo, not we want to be the control group. That makes it sound like she's sending off the, the lamps to the slaughter. Um, well, you don't know. How do you know when you're Mayor, in part of that just, group? You are. Mayor, <laughs> Mayor, if, and she's laughing, too. It's not a laughing matter, of reopen, course. Are you going to be inside those casinos every single night putting your own life on the line? I have lived in this town for 56 a, a years. Are you going to go and to casinos no, no, no. every night and put your life on the line no, like I, all the workers I, you say I've you were there in holding town, their hands? So I, uh, they don't need it. We weren't broken. We as tragically have 150 people we lost. Tragic. We have 2.3 million people here. I haven't heard and you say yes that you would be sitting on those casino floors every night along with the people that you say you are holding their hands with. What, what is the purpose of that? First of all, I have the family. Because it would be putting your money, it would be night. putting money you where your mouth is to use, a, I guess, a Las Vegas wait, wait, term. The, the, before we continue the remainder of this little argument where she ends up looking terrible, she had an easy out of this one. She's, oh, I have a family. Well, yeah, so does everybody else who's going back to work. That's, that's not a good answer. That's what is your family more important than everybody else's family? The correct answer here that was just sitting right in her face is, I'm 81 years old. 
I'm not suggesting 81-year-olds go put themselves on the casino floor. Our suggestion is let's reopen and those that feel it's safe for them to return can return. Those that would prefer to work can go back to work. Those that would like to go to these businesses can go to these businesses. And I assume that those who are at higher risk to end up uh, with very bad effects of this virus, such as the elderly like myself, uh, we're going to try to avoid this. And uh, so I'm not encouraging everybody to go to the casino floor. Uh, Other 81-year-olds like myself, I think, should stay home. But most people in Las Vegas are not 81. That, that would be a good answer. Not, well, but I've got a family. Well, I, I've got other things to do. Anderson, you and you are say it's safe. Anderson. Okay, so you're not willing Anderson, to sit on the casino floors a... with them when they're reopened <laughs> and breathe the refiltered air. First of all, I don't gamble. I used to gamble when we first came to town. I don't have the time. I work seven days a week. I have so many things that I have to attend to. I can't. I, I wouldn't want to sit on those floors either. Floor. I wouldn't want to sit on the floors well. either. I'm, I'm with you on that one, uh, <laughs> Mayor uh, Mayor Carolyn Goodman. I appreciate your time, and I wish you the best uh, for the people of your city. And I know I went to school right around the corner from where you grew up on the East River. Oh, that's nice. Well, thanks. Um, but such a uh, weird thing to say. You know, I w- if I were, I would just advise you to talk to Mayor Garcetti about what you might be able to do to improve testing uh, in because testing and contact tracing is the way forward, according to every scientist. Well, so. I did. I have spoken with him about the homeless, which are of greatest concern to me, and about yeah. our middle-income and low-income families that are now shut out of work and earning a livelihood. And so that's where he and I talk, because okay. the reality is... Well, you can talk about testing, because I, I would... That, that's important that's to That's not my job, unfortunately. Sadly, it's not my job. I just assume okay. everybody can be. I, I guess Mayor Garcetti has a larger job portfolio than, than you do. Yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, definitely he does. Thank mm. you. All right. I wish you the best. Thanks very much. She didn't even understand that last slam on her about it. he has a larger job portfolio. She, she thought he was saying that uh, he has a larger city, which he does. Because Los Angeles is a lot bigger than Las Vegas, but the, he's trying to. He was saying sarcastically, "Oh, I guess he he has uh, more to uh, more responsibility as mayor than you do as mayor, even though you're both mayors." And of course, that answer is no, he doesn't. <laughs> Just on a larger scale, but anything that he's concerned with, she should be concerned with too. I will agree with her. Well, she didn't even raise this point, but she should have raised the point: the testing is not going to do very much. Testing is good for one of a few things. Testing will help you know whether you have it or not currently. I'm talking about testing for the actual virus currently in your system, not the antibodies. Testing will also allow them to do randomized testing where they compel people to come in and test them to get an idea of the Incidence of the disease in the population, so they can see how many precautions to take. But beyond that, uh, testing is not going to help very much with something like this. Uh, they're never going to be able to test this in a way that is practical to reopen the casinos. They can't, they can't have a line outside where everybody gets instant coronavirus testing. The current coronavirus testing has a big flaw in that there's a 30% false negative, which is really bad. 
because that means 30% of the people who have the coronavirus will be able to walk right on through, even if they did have enough tests to test every single person walking to the casino. And even if they could process it immediately, which they can't, but even if they could, then 30% would still get through and spread it around. So you would only knock out uh, 70% of the people who are spreading it, and the other 30% uh, would get through. So that, that wouldn't be a good solution. If it was a 30% false positive, that would shut some people out of the casino who really shouldn't be shut out, but at least uh, this would catch everybody who does have it, provided there's a 0% false negative or a very low percent false uh, negative. But unfortunately, the big problem with that test is a false negative, not a false positive. So that testing wouldn't work. The antibody tests, I guess, if that's accurate, could be done, but that has nothing to do with who currently is dangerous to spread it, that just is identifying who has already had it and presumably can't spread it and presumably uh, can't catch it again, though there's some belief that uh, people might be able to catch it again, especially in the future with, with other strains of it. So so even that isn't perfect. But but even if they, they could do instant antibody tests at the door, the, the best they could do there is say, okay, you have an antibody, you can come in, but what about people with no antibodies who also don't have it? Can they come in? That's going to be most people. Most people coming to the door are going to be ones who don't have the antibodies and also do not have COVID-19. So what do you do with them? What do you do with them? You you test them and 30% of them still get through who have COVID-19? So, so testing, it's also not practical. I mean, to, to have a giant line at the door to test people and you need, you would need a super instant test. Other, otherwise, the line to get in would be too long, nor would people want to even bother with it to go to a casino. It's just not worth it. It's just something not practical to do. Now, there's been discussions of we'll have uh, a machine that takes people's temperature as they walk through, and uh, a bell will ring if you walk through and have a fever, and it won't, let, and you'll be directed away that you can't go in. Yeah, but that's the only people who are showing enough symptoms to have a fever. There's a long period that it's assumed that you can transmit it this. You can transmit this where you're not symptomatic yet, and you have no fever. There are also people who never get a fever. There are people who have. Uh, Symptoms that just don't include a fever. So that's not going to catch them either. There's people who just remain asymptomatic the entire time, who are probably transmitting the entire time, or at least for the beginning of the time they have it. So this is uh, just not practical. Really, it boils down to a very simple decision. Is saving the Las Vegas economy from complete collapse worth potentially killing a lot of people and also causing permanent problems for a lot of other people who get it, suffer from it badly, and don't die. Is that worth it? And are we willing to take the chance that a very long time is going to pass without any real progress on this, so we might as well open now? Because let's say a year from now, there's no vaccine and no reliable treatment. Well, then the casinos probably made a mistake by staying closed all this time because presumably they're not going to shut down for over a year. So at some point they'd reopen. And that means that other than the very beginning where they're making sure that the the hospital resources are are there properly, which now they are, uh, the rest of the time the shutdown was pointless because they didn't have any treatment or vaccine anyway. But let's say a good treatment is found by July 1st. Well, then they made a mistake by reopening now because – if they knew July 1st a treatment would be there, they could tough it out with plans to reopen then. It's the unknown. 
It's like Tom Petty says, the waiting is the hardest part. It, it really is, because you, you don't know. It's, a, it's not just waiting, it's waiting where you don't know when the end is. It's actually not too different, though, on a much grander scale and a much more severe uh, situation, to waiting for a valet to bring your car. One of the reasons I hate valet parking is because you don't know when the car is coming. You, you give them the ticket, and you sit, and you sit, and you sit, and sometimes if it's busy, you just sit and wait and wait and wait. You just want them to bring up a car, and you see a car coming in the distance. Is this mine? Is this mine? No, it's not. Oh, wait, that's mine. No, it isn't. It's one that looks like mine. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and, and then it finally comes, and you feel like you've been there for an hour, and you look, and it's, it's been uh, 15 minutes. And I can tell you that even if you have to park 15 minutes away, it is far more pleasant to do that 15-minute walk to your car than it is to st- stand and wait and wait and wait for the 15 minutes, especially because you don't know if the wait is going to be 15 minutes. You don't know if it's going to be 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 25 minutes. It can be anything. So I, I hate that unknown of waiting and waiting and waiting for my car to show up. I like knowing where my car's parked, knowing when I'm going to get there. I remember how long it was to walk from my car to the place I'm at so I know how long it's going to take to walk to my car. So I go, okay, well, I remember the walk here was about eight minutes, so I'm going to walk eight minutes. Okay, it's, about, it's been six minutes so far. Okay, it's about two more minutes I'll be to my car. Like I, I like that certainty. I like knowing what's coming. And they don't know what's coming in Vegas. They don't know what's coming with treatment for this virus. And that is very unnerving if the entire economy depends upon there being some kind of breakthrough against this virus. So the truth is, if you really believe that a treatment is very far off, and we know a vaccine is very far off, then reopening is not really a mistake. Maybe do it more slowly but and cautiously, but, but it's not a mistake because if you're going to do it anyway, why wait the additional months for nothing? However, I'm not advocating opening because I still think we're early enough in the process to where we need to wait a little bit more time to see where we stand. Not necessarily for the treatment to be there and ready, but let's see where we stand. If a little more time passes and it gets to be clear we're nowhere near any kind of treatment. Because there's some things being floated out there right now that are thought that they might be potential treatments. And they're being studied very rapidly. They're being studied intensely to see, uh, are these actually working? How reliable are they? Uh, how many people that are getting better would have gotten better on their own anyway? So they're, they're trying as hard as they can to study this quickly. But in not too long, we're going to have an idea. Either the existing treatments that have potential, either it turns out that these are a big game changer at least one of them is, or they're all useless or not all that effective. Maybe marginally effective or effective in some cases, but not others, but but not good enough to say it's a, it's a game changer. And once we see we're at that point, then we've got some time until we're going to see a treatment, is the truth. Once we've lost hope in those, it's, it's game over for a while. And at that point, then you have to make the decision with places like Las Vegas of, okay, what do we do now? We're not going to sit close for six more months. So if we're not going to sit close for six more months, why sit close for three more months? If we're not going to see much progress for six months, why not just reopen now? And I can understand that argument. But I think it's too early to make that argument. 
I also think that if you do reopen, that my advice to patrons of these casinos is don't go. And if you do reopen, you do have to be honest with the people about what the risk is. And that has to be part of it. If adults want to take a calculated risk, then on one hand you can let them, but on the other hand it affects other people because they can affect others. And, that, and that's the big problem here. It's not just about letting people go and infecting themselves and take the risk for themselves. Uh, they can affect others. So you, you have to decide what you're going to do. There's also the issue of the fact that I don't know how many people are going to come. Yes, you'll have the degenerate gamblers. Yes, you can have people who are going stir-crazy that are willing to take the chance. Yes, you're going to have the, the younger crowd that isn't that afraid of it. But are they really going to have a return to these casinos at any level that is profitable? Because the casinos aren't making money every single day. They, they have their slow days where if every day was like that day, they would lose money. So, so how does this look when they reopen? If they reopen with a fraction of the people they normally get, with a fraction of the services and some things closed and not as many people could sit close to each other. And if they're operating really as a shadow of their former selves, they're going to bring in a lot less money. And yes, they can staff it down some where they don't have as much staff as before and save some money that way. But there's a lot of fixed operating costs that they're not going to get around. So the question is, at that point, uh, might they be losing money anyway? Might it not even be worth worth it to stay open? It's not just a matter of you, you throw open the doors and it's a full casino again. People may have very little interest in general going into a casino at this point. That's why I laugh at people who are booking cruises for the future. Even people who are doing with credit, like like people have an or people have an option, like take credit or take a cash refund. Oh, I'll take the credit and rebook my my cruise for the future. I go, what are you doing? Well, uh, you know, they're giving me a twenty percent discount. I go, are you kidding me? Do you understand how few people are going to want to take a cruise in the future? Do you understand you're going to get a great deal if you just wait? Well, but it's it's a little bit cheaper overall than what I paid in 2019. I go, this is in 2019. This is totally new. They're going to have a hard time filling these ships. Most people will not take a cruise now for free if offered to them. I sure as hell wouldn't. So don't pay for things now at at 2019 prices on something the public didn't have very little interest in. There's going to be such little demand. The same thing may happen in Vegas. And... People are going to be afraid of a lot of things. They're going to be afraid of the air that's being recirculated, as uh, Anderson Cooper mentioned. They're going to be afraid of touching things that everyone else is touching, such as buttons on slot machines and video poker machines. They're going to be afraid of touching chips that everyone else is touching, cards that everyone else is touching. How do you operate a casino without people touching stuff that everyone else has been touching? Wearing a mask is not going to stop that. So I, I don't see what this looks like. I don't see how this attracts a, a large number of people. Now, I see why they feel, let's just reopen and, and see if we can get it going again. We might as well give it a shot. They might have the theory that with so few options for people to go entertain themselves today that there will be a lot of people who are willing to go to Vegas and take that chance. If, it, if, if your options for entertainment are go to Las Vegas or sit home and do nothing, 
a lot of people will go to Las Vegas who probably don't even like Las Vegas that much. Just uh, it's the only place they can go, provided they're willing to take the risk. So may- maybe they're thinking if we're one of the few destinations that uh, we don't have to have uh, everybody comfortable with going, we're, we're, we'll be one of the few options that so we'll fill up anyway. And that's possible. There is no way to do this without getting a lot of infections and without undoing a lot of the progress that has been made in uh, bringing, uh, stopping the infection level from increasing. And then not only that, since uh, these are tourists, these are going to be people who come back and bring it back home to wherever they were from, which is another concern. Las Vegas will be importing and exporting the coronavirus with tourists coming in and out, whereas with most people not traveling, at least when an area gets it under control, it tends to not uh, break out that badly. But then again, if there's not going to be any progress, what do you do? You can't just leave everything shut down forever. You might just have to at some point say this is a danger. People are going to die. People are going to get sick. People are going to be permanently damaged from this. But life has to go on as it used to before we weren't living with the constant threat of lots of other bad diseases, which killed a lot of people that just was a part of life until modern medicine took those threats away. And now we mostly expect to live to old age and uh, eventually succumb to something like uh, cancer, heart attack, or stroke. But after we've lived a full life, maybe it's time that we accept the fact that something has come that kind of brings us back to old times and not in a good way. That uh, there is a disease that's going to get some people and it's just going to be part of life and that the more we try to fight it, and, and hide from it that it's going to really screw the world and the country. And that's only to be considered. Now, you may ask, does that mean I'm going to just say screw it and go out there? No. But you're giving people the choice. You're basically saying uh, if you want to stay home and not expose you to this, yourself to this, then you can. And if you, if you want to expose yourself, then do it. And yes, we know there will be more exposure in general now with everybody out there, but nothing we can do, we're stuck with this. But I I think it deserves some more time. I think we need to wait a little bit longer and see if these treatments can work. Or if in that time a new treatment is discovered to possibly work to where there's hope for something. But I'll agree that once we are starting to run out of short-term hope, then we have to make a, a very tough decision. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. Never heard back from bad guy. That's too bad. I don't know where he went. Let's move on to the next coronavirus topic. Uh, kind of associated with the last topic, the great shutdown debate. Who is right, who's wrong? I'm not going to repeat everything I just said, but to expand upon it, should we, in general, not just Las Vegas, open everything up should we open some things up or should we really just continue sheltering in place till we have more information? What What's the right way of doing things? Well, I don't think opening everything up is correct. And again, we're talking about general uh, cities around the country, not Las Vegas, which uh, unfortunately it's, it's either casinos or no casinos with not much in between. Just about every other city does have a lot in between. And I think in those cities, if you are going to open, it needs to be done that way and it needs to be done in an intelligent fashion. 
In Georgia, there's a lot of controversy that they are reopening a lot of things, including some weird things like bowling alleys, where you'd think that that's really something that would uh, spread the disease pretty easily. You're actually putting your fingers in a bowling ball that other other people put their fingers in. But uh, I think that if you're going to try to reopen, you have to do so in a, a, a very cautious way. Kind of the same way that you touch a bowl or a plate that you think might be hot. You don't put your whole hand on it and say, oh, is this hot? And then burn your whole hand. You quickly touch with your fingertip if it's hot. Touch super fast to where even if it is very hot, it's not going to really burn you that much because you're you're, you're touching it for just a second and, and pulling your finger off right away if it's hot. So it's going to cause minimal damage. And then if it seems like it's not totally burning your finger, then you touch a little bit more, then a little bit more, then when it feels okay, then you can put your whole hand around it. So I I think this should be approached in a similar fashion when we deem it time to try this. And some things I think should be immediate, and some things I think should be waited for a little bit, but then you can start to try So you need to look at what is really creating a danger and what is just closed for the sake of closing it because it feels safe but isn't really doing much. So let me give you an example of something that shouldn't be closed. Parks, neighborhood parks. They shouldn't be closed. Uh, A a neighborhood park by me was open, and and it's open again now, but it, but, uh, it was closed for a short time. And I can tell you what I observed there is that people were smart enough to social distance. People were very aware of the fact that they're not supposed to uh, get really close to each other other than people who are related who live in the same household and that everyone kept to themselves. So that you'd bring your group of people from your household. You'd keep to your own little area and you wouldn't interact with the people and you wouldn't get close to people and you, you kept your distance and, and you'd stay off the playground equipment and stuff where it would be uh, touched by multiple people. You would you would bring your own stuff like a ball to toss around or uh, uh, or a frisbee to throw or, or a kite to fly or you would uh, you you jog or walk around the park something like that where you can have activities there that don't involve touching things that strangers have touched and you don't get close to people and that is fine in addition. It's been shown that sunlight kills this thing on surfaces. So outdoors, especially in months like April and May and June, it's it's uh, not that unsafe anyway because the sun is up for longer and the sun has a higher elevation angle. So it's beating down a lot more, there's a lot fewer shadows, and uh, it's probably killing a lot of the virus that does end up on the surfaces anyway. So the, it, it sounds like that parks are a lot safer than people were first thinking and, and shutting them down was a mistake. Those should be reopened. Uh, hiking trails. They should reopen hiking trails. Again, it's outside. Again, uh, the you're not touching very much anyway on hiking trails that other people are touching. You know what, what are you touching? If you want, you can close benches or whatever people sit on commonly. The truth is that, again, with the sun killing it, uh, there's probably not that much coronavirus that can live on surfaces very long anyway. 
In fact, it said the sun kills it instantly. It's possible it can't live on outdoor surfaces at all during the day and can only live on indoor surfaces. It's possible the surface thing during the day, there is no danger whatsoever. And uh, I think the very popular hiking trails maybe close those, the ones that are always going to have a big crowd that uh, either close those or have people standing there who work for the city or the county making sure that uh, there's not more than a certain number of people to go in and just uh, restrict it. But everywhere else, just open up and expect, again, people will be responsible. And, and you're not protecting every single person in the country doing this. Yeah, Yes, there might be a few cases that result from doing this, but there probably will be very few, and it's not doing very much public good. But it, it's causing public harm in that it's it's making people frustrated and get stir-crazy when they can't go do these things. The more you say they can't do, the more people get frustrated with the overall situation. If people can say, well, I can't do X and Y, but at least I can go to the park, I can go hiking, okay, uh, I'll do these things for recreation for now, they're willing to deal with it for longer. If you just say, can't do anything, stay in your house, you're, you're not going to get a lot of cooperation long term. So that that needs to be reopened. Um, I can see starting to uh, relax the uh, the demand that people stop seeing each other. So um, instead of saying "stay to your own family, don't see anybody," say "okay, you you can uh, if go go see your closest friends just don't get into into groups of big people but if you if you want to go visit your closest friends as long as they're not in uh, in the highest risk groups to to die from it you don't don't go visit your your 85 year old elderly friend but uh but but the typical person provided nobody shows any symptoms uh you want to visit with them do it just don't get do large get togethers so I, I could see that. If they want to try to open up restaurants and, and have a, a lot of space, not just six feet, but a lot of face, space in between people and have a, a, a low maximum occupancy, you want to try that, fine. Uh, you want to try uh, getting a haircut. You want to try letting those uh, beauty shops opening, fine. Again, with some kind of uh, requirement of, of a lot of distance between people and certain requirements about wearing masks and, and, and gloves and things like that, you can put those in place and, and reopen those. And then you wait a few weeks. You try this as an experiment with cautiously reopening certain things. Like, like keep in mind, the grocery stores are open. Those, those have a lot of danger. Don't, don't pretend that grocery stores, just because they're essential, are safe. They're not. That's why I'm not going anymore. Like, like I, I felt like a fool. I was going, why am I doing all this and then going to the grocery store? Just because I, we do need groceries and we need to eat. So I, I just have to say, well, okay, social distance for everything but the groceries. I go, well, the, if I'm going to do the grocery store, I'm already exposing myself. So he, I, I said, either I've got to take this seriously or not take it seriously. Either I've got to really socially distance and, and, and cut out the risk or or not socially distance. And yeah, yes, I know that the more you do, the more risk you're putting yourself at. But I said, just because something's, a, quote, essential doesn't mean you're not going to catch something or that it can't be dangerous. So that's why I cut it out. That's why I started getting these uh, these crappy delivery services that I hate because I, I decided if I'm going to do this, I got to do it right. Similarly, I, I think with some of these small businesses, with restaurants, with 
nail salons and, and uh, places to get haircuts, you can try to let them reopen with the condition that this is going to be reevaluated after X number of days, maybe 21 days, maybe 28 days, and see if there is an increase in cases, see if there is any noticeable difference. It is possible that you can do all this and there will not be a noticeable difference. It may be a small difference, but it's possible that doing these things and everyone being cautious is enough to not create a major spike. I know that uh, Carolyn Goodman from Las Vegas, she talked about the control group. Let's be the control group. That's a stupid way of saying it. But there is something to be said for, let's see what happens if instead of opening as a free-for-all, we open certain things and are very cautious. Will that cause a major spike? Or will it either have no effect or very little effect where it's barely noticeable and yet the economy can get moving again? Then it's, then it's probably the right thing to do. And the only way to know this is to try. You, you can come up with theory all you want, but the, the only way to know is to try it. This is all unprecedented territory. This is something that we have not seen before. So we just have to try. And maybe it'll be okay. And then you can move to phase two. You can go, okay, let's say phase one works. Let's say you open these things and it all, it's all fine. Then you can go, okay, let's think of the next thing we can start allowing people to do. And then again, reevaluate in three to four weeks. And, and then... Whatever you do, even though I know Eric Sheetaber may not like this because he said that uh, you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, that you can't get people to stop something you've reallowed, but that, that may have to be part of the solution, unfortunately, is you may eventually run into something that is dangerous. So let's say you say, okay, well, so far so good. Uh, we've done two phases and everything's fine. So the next phase is going to be allowing uh, people to go to nightclubs. And then you allow that, and then there's a big spike in cases. Well, then you got to say, nope, never mind, forget the nightclubs. At least until we have a treatment. But I don't think it's bad to, to start testing things, to start uh, figuring out what we can do to where we're still being responsible and still keeping the numbers down, but not completely strangling ourselves as far as the economy and as far as uh, the quality of life. And, and kind of finding that, that sweet spot that isn't reckless, but uh, isn't uber-restrictive. And I really think that probably is the right way to approach this right now. If we just open everything and say, well, let's, let, just let, let nature take its course, let herd immunity take effect, let's just let people get it who aren't elderly or and aren't immunocompromised, let's just let the average people get it and Everybody will trade it around, and they'll have herd immunity. This will die, and, and we'll be happy. It's 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 kind of like uh, you, you rip the band-aid off all at once. It'll hurt for the moment, but it's a lot better than the slow pain of, of pulling it off very slowly. It, it's not like that. You, you shouldn't do that. That's a mistake. This needs to be done carefully and responsibly, but it also doesn't mean that we have to perpetually hide from this until we get a vaccine and or treatment. Now, again, I will not be one of the people returning to these things. To me, it is personally not worth it. To me, I can do without these things. Some of these things. I think I'm still going to, I still go hiking. I, I, I would still go to parks. Like uh, some of these things, I think are very little risk. 
I will do the very little risk things that uh, I think get high reward, very little risk. Any medium risk thing, uh, th- I'm not going to do. So even if I see it, it's it's fairly low risk to to go to a restaurant, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I can do without it. Now maybe if a long time passes and I see that there really does not seem to be many cases of people getting it from restaurants if the restaurants behave responsibly, then maybe I'll consider it again. But I'd be one of the people who's more cautious, but I, I have reason to be more cautious. And I've been thinking about that. I, I I think about this every day, and I actually have more reason to be cautious than the average person. Now, I don't have reason to be more cautious than the average like 70-year-old. That I don't have more reason. I, I'm much better off than the average 70-year-old, but I do have a few factors. I have the fact that I am uh, that I have high blood pressure, which is known to be a big factor in how severe you experience this. I have uh, the weight issue. I'm not obese, but I my BMI is is close to what they are claiming is obese. Nobody would look at me and say obese or close to obese, but uh, my BMI is uh, kind of getting there. It's definitely the overweight category, and that is an additional factor, apparently. And then there's a the psychological part that worries me the most, and that uh, I dealt with six weeks of absolute hell in 2018, and I'm afraid not only will this bring it back if I get it, but it'll be worse, and that it may be something I don't ever come out of. And I've said this in other shows, and and so that's a very big factor that I have that a lot of people don't have. I know I'm not the only one who has it. There's, there's other people who have suffered from anxiety and depression that are especially concerned that when they get this, that it could uh, trigger a, a much worse and maybe permanent uh, situation for them with suffering from those uh, mental uh, illnesses. But I'm someone who had kind of a unique situation, not not totally unique, but but pretty unusual, where I got it very severely and then was able to get it under control after six weeks. Most people deal with this most of their adult lives. They don't just it doesn't just pop up for them at the age of forty six. For me it popped up at the age of forty six and, 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 and I beat it back down. I, I was able to knock it back down through my own trial and error and figuring out what works for me. And and not a day goes by that I'm not thankful for that thankful for that and, and also proud of my own actions that made that happen. Okay, but but the last thing I want is something that erases all of that and, and leaves me back in that state. Because at, at the worst point, pretty much for the entire six weeks, I, my, my quality of life was very low. I don't want to go back there ever again. So it's, it's not just a matter of, do I live through this? I think I'll live through it if I get it. Though, again, I, I'm, I am in a category of people who do die from this. So it's not even like it would be shocking if I died from this. It would be not expected, but it wouldn't be shocking. And it would actually be surprising to me if I got this and got out of it without the recurrence of these uh, psychological symptoms and and who knows if I can get rid of it again. It's not not just a matter of snapping my fingers or taking magic medication. I I had to do some... I I figure out my own way through it to get... 
to beat it. It wasn't just as simple as popping a pill. And that I found that was a very tough thing with psychology is there's no magic bullet solution to any psychological problem. It's very personal. It's very different for each individual. And I decided that uh, with the uh, assistance of, uh, of a psychiatrist that I, I was going to guide myself through it. I was basically kind of like guiding myself through it and then seeing a psychiatrist uh, w- once every two weeks and, and, and basically saying, this is what I'm doing. Does this sound okay to you? So, uh, and it worked. I got myself out of it. But I, 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 I'm afraid to get it again. I don't want to get, I don't want that to happen to me again. And possibly be stuck with it for life. And being that, uh, one of the factors that caused it was the perception of breathing issues, which in reality I didn't really have. It was uh, like the perception of, uh, incorrect perception of breathing issues that I didn't really have caused by a different physical problem. Here, if I developed real breathing issues, boy, would that be a disaster. So I, I have to avoid it, and that's why I, I've decided I'm going to be very vigilant about avoiding getting this until a treatment or vaccine is available. And until then, I'm just going to not do certain things. I'm not going to be such a fanatic where I won't do things with very low risk, so... Uh, in fact, I, I'm going to be exposing myself for the first time in weeks on Tuesday. I'm actually bringing my dog to a vet because my dog, uh, who's 15 years old, has some a lot of strange growths on his skin, and uh, I, I want to figure out what that is. And it just came very fast, and I, I, I don't want to just let the dog sit there like that. It's not, I doubt it's going to get better on its own. So I've decided I'm just going to deal with it and I thought of maybe getting a, a mobile vet to come here but I, I want a vet that I can trust and is known to be good so I, I'm just I'm just going to go I'm just going to go and be real careful wear mask wear, wear gloves and refuse to wait in their waiting room tell them I'm going to wait right out of the door outdoors it, and uh, it's a freestanding building which is good so I just stand out literally outside with the dog and have them call me when they're ready for me and I will walk in but uh, other than that, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to. I think I, I'm, I'm not going. I don't go to the grocery store anymore. I get all my prescriptions mailed to me now. I don't go to any stores anymore. Everything I get everything by mail now. Everything delivered. If things open back up, I'm not going to be part of it. And that's my choice. I, I can do what I want with my own life. No one. I, I'm obviously not forced to go anywhere. And and that's. But I think it's fine if everybody has the choice within reason. There is a public health matter to be concerned with. So you can't just say okay, go ahead and act reckless because it's going to harm others with spreading the disease further. But if you do it responsibly, then leave people the choice of do I do I want to take the chance or not take the chance? Here's Bad Guy. Bad Guy 23, hello. What's up? Can you hear me good? Yeah, I can hear you. You called a little bit later than I expected, but uh, that's fine. What are you talking about? What are you wrapping it up? Are you going to start playing the music or what? Are you going to play no, Archie no, no, or what? No, no, no. No, we're not even close to that. We're not even close to the end of this show. It's going to go on for a long time. So right? what? what? So you had something to, you want to go into something else? No, no, no. I, I thought you were calling right after I played uh, Carolyn Goodman, the mayor of Vegas. Well, well, I'm talking to your boy SAH on there. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan, man. Okay. Well, as long as it was an important conversation. So. Uh, it is important. Uh, we were talking about anxiety, I thought, so I called in. I, I'm the king of anxiety. 
So, so bad guy. And I never had anxiety in my life, man. Talk about anxiety some more. Well, wait a minute. So you, you, how can you be the king of it if you never had it? No, I never had it before, but I have it now. It's fucking horrible. So when did it start? It's. I say it started probably about five years ago, man. Well, you're seriously for me. Well, you're unusual because uh, the what's what's usually the reason for usually anxiety is something that is inherited, and it will show up between your teens and mid-twenties and then be with you for life and there's no way to get rid of it there's a way to suppress it with medication but there's no way to ever cure it or get rid of it my 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 only hope with mine since it came at the age of 46 for the first time was that i knew it couldn't have been a hereditary thing that's been with me my whole life or i would have seen it before age 46 so i said obviously this is uh, this is being caused by like an artificial uh, physical cause and that if i can uh it, it Maybe I can figure out the root of the problem, or I, I can figure out what brought this on and 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 suppress it and 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 send it away. And that's basically what I did. And that's why people ask me, people, oh, how'd you get past this? Uh, I have anxiety too. I go, well, how long have you had it? They say, well, since I was twenty-two. I go, forget it. What will work for me is not going to work for you. Yeah. But but uh, so so what? So how do you when you have anxiety? How do you feel? I think I'm a oh, some brother. That's why I drank a lot, to be honest with you. I was masking it with drinking. Like, it got to the point, I couldn't even go, like, to a, like, a, gro- like a Walmart, say, because I started getting, like, dizzy and shit. And I, I said, what the hell is going on here? So I would continually drink, drink. I, I masked it with drinking, no lie. So, I mean, I drank before I met you. I think the drinking helped with this shit. Listen, bro, I used to be on stage, man, the whole time. Like, you think I called you the first time I called you like I did? I mean, I used to be a pitcher, all this stuff. I never had anxiety in my life. And, bro, anxiety's no joke. I mean, you know that, right or wrong. I, I, I didn't realize I had anxiety until five. I think I had it before that, but how did I deal with it? I drank. I'm well, not kidding you. Well, and then maybe, they gave me these it, pills yeah. and shit. Those pills ain't no joke, man. No, they're not. They, 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 stuff. I mean, like if you take them and take them and take, I mean, it's, it's just like drinking. It really is. Yeah, you have to be very careful. It really with all is, that brother. Stuff. You yeah, be, you have to be. Careful you have to be careful with all that stuff. And then and there's a short term. Well, they try. There's short term. I'm gonna say something. They they tried to give me those pills like right away, and I said, "Well, I drink, man. I'm not gonna take those pills." <laughs> like you know, I know on here I'm the pill head or whatever Josie said. I, listen, man, I never took a pill in my life, so I wouldn't take those pills. So I drank to mask it. And that caught up with me. It all catches up with you in the end, bro. Oh, yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so look, anybody who has uh, deals with anxiety, I, I, I really feel for them. I didn't know what it felt like until I experienced it. And then I said, oh, wow, that's that's, sure. what, that's what everybody's dealing with who has this. Wow, that's it's awful. So. And it's something. But here's the thing: I think gambling. I think gambling has a lot to do with my anxiety. To be honest with you, do you think that has anything to do with your anxiety at all? No, it didn't. I I know you're like an. I know you're an accomplished gambler, man. I know you make money and whatever, but I think staying up late at night and all that shit, I think that all adds up to it, man. You know, I thought that, but then I really do. In 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 all my self searching process with it, I thought it was, and I actually stopped gambling during the attempt to heal from this. And then I came to the realization that it had nothing to do with it. That for some people it might, but for me, this was actually not. It was good at one point to remove anyway, because one, I couldn't concentrate well at all, and and two, it can be stressful. And that was the last thing I needed was stress. Then, but it wasn't what caused it. It was. It had no. It was nothing having to do with causing it. Nothing that was happening in my life at all caused it. It was actually caused by uh, 
by by a physical uh, issue, which then brought on yeah. uh, the the perception of breathing problems, which then brought on a, a chemical uh, imbalance in my brain, which then was made worse because I quit caffeine, and that brought on a worse ca- chemical imbalance, and, yeah. and then that really screwed everything up. And and uh, so I, it, it took a while to fix, but I fixed it. And another thing, when you worry about something. Like, if you're worried about how you're breathing or worried about sleeping even, that shit all adds up in the end. Am I right or wrong? Or worried about not drinking pop even. It, it, well, okay. It, soda, it, whatever you call it. I, I'm being serious, man. Well, yes, it, it can. Everything it, plays in your mind when you're having anxiety. It just, well, you it just does. play everything over and over. It does, and especially... No? Yes, for me, what got me, it wasn't... See, my People think of anxiety as it, it is worrying, but for me, that's not what it was. For me, it was that um, when I had the anxiety... Once I already had it, then I would start to have worry about certain things uh, at, a, at a much increased level. And sometimes like the, the, the breathing thing, th- that would become the worry and then that would make it worse and it was like a vicious cycle. And, and so I did find right. that if, if I could distract myself from what was going on, from what I was thinking about that was making it even worse – I could stop it from getting past the point where where it already was. Like I could stop it from worsening. I couldn't make it better. So if I start to worry about the breathing thing, if I could distract myself with something else, then I, it would not elevate to become a panic attack or super high level anxiety. But but it would it would still stay like mid level. It was just the the distraction could sometimes stop it. But sometimes the anxiety would be so high in the first place that there was no way to even do a, a distraction. That they, it would it would dominate everything. And there was no way – and it wasn't like a worrying type thing. It was just a, a stress on my brain that is hard to explain and that there – and that – Yeah, you can't explain it. You can't explain it unless you had it. Yeah, you can't so, explain so, it to so, anybody so, unless so that's, you had it. I guarantee – I know it. So You're there's right. a, lot of, a lot of poor understanding by people who don't have it of what it feels like. Right. And, and I'll tell you, even now that I'm past it uh, with only a, a, a little remnant, it's hard for me to – exactly picture the way it felt when it was bad, which I think my brain purposely forgot, right. purposely kind of forgets it in order to, as like a coping me- mechanism, which is fine. I don't want to relive that. So, but, but hey, anyway. Listen, you're, how smart are you, bro? Imagine people like me, man. I mean, there's no, like, you you always worry about, am I going to have an anxiety attack? Am I going to do this? Am I going to, it's bad, man. It's, you can't explain to somebody that never had anxiety, bro. You can't, they'll just laugh at you. Well, and, they'll and, laugh at you. And you can't, and you can't reason your way out of it. And I've explained to people too. You can't just say, oh, mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, I have nothing to worry about. I can just feel better. You, uh, you know, you, you, there's no way to reason your way into feeling better. There, you can't, there's no way to overrule right. it. There, it's, it's like emotions you can't explain that you're feeling that no matter what you try to do to feel something else, you're just not going to feel that. And, and I, and boy, it just, that and the depression together was like a one, two punch since it was a severe level that yep. it messed, it messed up so many things and so many perceptions of things. And, and, uh, it just, uh, it, there was a lot of things that happened that I could never picture could, could happen to my mind while to you, the, while, to, you to me, right and, 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 it couldn't yes. happen to you. You're and, too good. You're too well, smart. Too well, not only that, that, I could I could think and write coherently while this was all going on. So it wasn't like I was crazy mm-hmm. and couldn't and couldn't speak coherently. I could. It was just it was just how I was feeling. But I, I actually could do, you know, thing, like, like I went back and read. It's a disease, right? Is it a disease? Yeah. Well, Is like it I, a disease? Yeah. yeah, I went back and read posts and right. stuff I wrote back in those days and go, yeah, it's totally rational. Like, like I, I, hey, I see. I was, I wrote a couple posts saying, "Bro, you're having an anxiety attack, man." I, they're the worst things ever. They're the worst things ever. Yeah. And listen, people might. It, 
it's a bad thing. It's it, it's bad. It's like, you can't explain to somebody that never had it. You can't do it. There's no way you can do it. Yeah. Well, I didn't. So I, didn't I didn't know you were dealing with that too. That's too bad. That's uh, that's something. That... Yeah, I was dealing with. It. I was dealing with it when I was calling you guys, man. I didn't ask it with drinking though, yeah. which wasn't good. But anyway, how you doing? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I th- this is this is this whole thing is stressful. I actually, I t- I'll tell you something. I took a Xanax for the first time in 2020. This week, because what the hell are you doing? I thought your anxiety is under control. Well, it is for the most part, but it, it, the stress of this whole thing with the coronavirus and thinking about what will happen if I get it actually stressed me out enough to where I said, you know, I, I I'm too much on edge from this. I'm actually going to take a Xanax and and relax from. So I actually took a a, a .25 Xanax, which of course isn't very strong, but. I, I took a point, yeah, but still, I, I, I took a point twenty five Xanax for the first time in, in twenty twenty. I had not consumed any Xanax in the year twenty twenty. That was the first time I, I've, I've done it this year, and uh, uh, I'm not going to take it regularly. I just said, you know, I, I, th- I, th- I think it's time I take one, so I took one. But uh, so there's there's some stress from this, and uh, it's uh, it it's well, it's, your gamma's not really affected, is it? Well. This week it has not from this, but this week I've just run really bad. I I don't I don't like to I, I don't ever bring on it to, poker. Yeah, well, I don't I don't even bring I mean, it to the show. Yeah. You guys can never tell when I do I'm this sure. show. You guys can never tell when I'm on the show. Sure. online sites, brother. You, Especially you, ignition and Bavada. Listen, you know you, that you can but. you can never tell when I do this show whether I've been winning or losing. I I, I put that aside. Yeah. I, I put it aside and just uh, it actually put it out of my mind. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, I feel I, I feel a lot better during the day if I'm going well than when I'm I'm going poorly. This week, I was, is that why you took the Xanax? Because you were losing? No, it wasn't even that. It wasn't even that. It was just uh, it, it was all about the coronavirus. It, it it was not about that. In fact, I knew when I took it that I wouldn't be able to play for a while because I realized that when I take Xanax, I I can't play poker because I I lack the concentration and intensity that's needed. I'm too relaxed, and it's not good. See, that's where me and you differ, man. I drink some beers. I don't take Xanax when I drink beer, but if I did, I think I'd be. I, I think I might win your tournament on here, man. Yeah. I, I came in second place actually doing that like a couple weeks ago. I, I, can't, I made you send me the twenty two dollars. I need beer money. I, I've I've realized that I, I can't. I cannot play poker effectively if I'm too relaxed. It yeah. just it doesn't. You work. can't. You can't do that on that shit because that's not getting drunk for real. I think like Xanax and stuff. It's listen. Put it this way. When I went to the hospital, I didn't even tell you this story. I went to the hospital the one night. I was stroking, bro. I thought I had a, was having a stroke. This is no lie. My hands were cramped. My face like felt like it was coming down. This was like in November. This is no lie. I told SAH this on the thing. Bro, I'm going to tell you something. They tell you to say five words when you come in. And I walked my ass into that hospital, bro. And I couldn't even fucking. My face felt like it was stroking. Because my potassium was so low from drinking so much, oh. vodka and everything. How, how low no, was it? It was bad. Well, I, I, Bro, you, you couldn't pull my fingers apart. My let, fingers were cramped so bad. Let you me ask you a question. You tried to pull apart yourself with all and your might. You I, I have a it. question for you. Uh, do you know what the yes. num- What was the number? Do you remember that? How low was I, mean, I have a reason I'm asking this. My potassium number? Yeah. Do you remember? When it was bad, I, it was it, it was it was. Uh, uh, is it like I, it, what's what's low? Like three or something? No, no, it no, was no. it was like two. Yeah, it was like real. It was low as hell. Oh, right? low I think it is. 
Because mine, is mine, like is, mod, like mine is mine is No, 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 no. It's it's a it's it's a two digit number. My mine was. Uh, or wait, wait, wait. Maybe for a, potassium. No, no, no. You're right. No, you're right. That no, can't you, be potassium. No, bro. no, no, no. You're right. It's 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 a it's a decimal. It's like yeah, it is like three point something or four point something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, mine was like fucking one point. Bro, they were like, you should have had a heart attack. Blah blah blah. Right. They were giving me EKGs and all this other shit. It was fucked up, man. It was, and then they had a. I lost all my carbon monoxide or whatever the fuck they said it was because I was like having a panic attack as I'm going to the hospital. My hands are cramping more and more. Bro, that you couldn't pull my hands apart. I haven't drinking anything hard since then. I have drank beer. I'm drinking beer tonight, obviously. I'm up at five in the morning. But beer, I have not drank a hard liquor drink since then. I mean, it was bad because I was drinking so much vodka. It was fucking crazy yeah well, your potassium if you don't it, if it do was, that stuff you don't so your potassium was low also well i'll tell you why for, for a good reason yeah you're right for some reason i was thinking it's a two-digit number it's actually a, it's a one-digit number with yeah. decimal so, uh, so yeah. mine was horrible yeah bro. so 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 normal <laughs> I, i'm looking at it right now normal is is 3.5 to 5.5 5. yeah, so something like so, that. so, yeah. so in november 2019 i i went for a checkup and mine was 3.2 which was the first time i was ever below that 3.5 and uh so it turned out there was a reason for it it's because taking blood pressure medication has the unfortunate mm. side effect of lowering potassium. So your two options at that point, and, and, and it's just bad to have well, low potassium. What, I was taking that too and drinking all that shit because I never had high blood pressure, but I had it, and they start giving me that blood pressure. Medicine. I told you that the last show, but it was oh. the one that you could take, you said. Okay. But, but, the, yeah, I'm serious. My yeah, shit so, was like 1.5, bro. Yeah, so, so so that does take that does lower your potassium, and, and having low potassium can cause all kinds of different problems so mm-hmm. uh that's not good to have so 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 what you do about this i found out i only found out about this uh in november for the first time i never had low potassium before i never even thought much of potassium i just thought it was normal and didn't think about it uh so since mine got low because of the medication you can either switch medication to blood pressure meds that don't uh lower the potassium well, but I, but i didn't want to do that because it was hard for me to find one that worked for me so i finally found a meds combo that worked i didn't want to screw with it so so it be the, the blood pressure meds aside from the coronavirus concern they were working for me great because number one they lowered my blood pressure to normal levels and number two there was zero side effects i i had like no side effects at all from them so that was a great combo so i didn't want to screw around so the potassium, the, the other op- option is then you can just take potassium pills. So I started taking them. Uh, well, that big horse pills, right? Well, or how big they, are those? They, they're not horse pills, but they're on the bigger side. And uh, yeah, they're big. And, and so, so <laughs> the first time I took one, uh, I got a bad side effect from it because you're supposed to drink a ton of water and it makes not, you shit. But yeah, you got to drink a shitload of water. A lot of water and and. and <laughs> And not lie down. So I did, you can't I, drink pop with that, bro. So, so, so you can't I, drink a bunch of pop with that. So no, I just didn't drink. I just took a little water with it, and that was it. And then didn't drink anything. And I, I and I was kind of lying down playing poker. And that's why you're not supposed to lie down for ten minutes, or and you're supposed to drink a lot of water. So, so for a while I stopped it, and then I realized the mistake I made. I'm like, oh, this gives me side effects. I stopped it, and then I said, wait a minute, maybe I should look again. I go, oh, shit, I, I wasn't drinking the water, yeah. and I and I was lying down. So <laughs> let me let me try to do this the right way. So I started doing it the right way. And then it was fine, and so I've been doing it ever since. Uh, I took a, another test in uh, in March, and um, it was up to three point four, which it was better, but not we're not quite there to three point five, but at least it's improving. And uh, but still in March, I had been forgetting some days to take it. So now I've been taking it very reliably now, 
but but I won't be taking a blood test for a while. I am curious if so I'm. So well, you're taking the potassium pills? Yeah, I'm taking one every day. Yeah, I have. Well, to. they're they're big as hell. Your potassium pills aren't big. They're, they're big. Yeah, they're not yeah. huge, but they're big. Eat a bit, and I would tell you something. No lie, I'm not even kidding you on this. I know the potassium pills probably give you more potassium than banana. I'm telling you, you eat two bananas a day, you'll be good. Your shit will go up. I'm telling you. Well, that. see, I, I was two wondering. Bananas a day. I, I don't know about I'm two. I'm dead serious on that, man. And and the, you can get other stuff for potassium. But I'm telling you, you eat two bananas a day, your potassium will go up, bro. I eat two bananas a day, and I hate those horse pills, but I take them. If I know I'm going to drink, I definitely take them. Well, I'm look, drink beer I, or I, I take them. I don't take them every day. I'll though. just, I, I'm just gonna take the pills. Stuff, no, but I, I, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten used to it. I just drink the water. I, I feel like I'm on Lasix, bro, when I take them. Really? See, now, as long as I drink the water and don't lie down for ten minutes, I'm fine. So I just, I just do it now every yeah, day. Yeah, they do fuck with your, they do fuck with your stomach if you don't drink a lot of water. But I drink a ton. Listen, one thing about the bad guy, he drinks a ton of water. I don't drink pop and shit. Only thing I drink bad is liquor, man. Or I don't even drink liquor anymore, but beer. But if I don't drink, if I'm not drinking, I drink a ton of water, bro. I like, I love water. Yeah. No, let me, let me... I was a good athlete too back in the day, man. So I, I'd be dead if I was, if I didn't run five miles a day before school back in the day, I'd be dead right now. For real. I would have died. The, the one night there's no doubt about it because my potassium was so low that fucks with your heart and no 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 it's you dangerous that, right? you know i know it's dangerous to have a very low potassium yeah so that's uh... they give you the banana bag they give you the banana bag when you went into the hospital because your potassium was well that shit burns when they first put it in you in the iv oh really it burns like a motherfucker see mine was never dangerously low banana bag man because it's like all vitamins and shit in it my my, my potassium was never dangerously low it was just low and so yeah well mine was dangerously low where they were doing ekgs like oh your ekgs all screwed up you're lucky you didn't have a heart attack i said i'm the bad guy bro i said <laughs> look at pfa I, I told him no i didn't say that but i felt that i say i'm i say i'm fine and the bad the, the worst thing of it all because every time i feel like i'm having an anxiety attack i drink so I go into the hospital and they, they take your blood alcohol level. So, and this is no lie. The guy's name, and I'm not kidding you, is Dr. Seaman. <laughs> like I know, no, when I had diverticulitis, when they cut my chest, when they cut my stomach open, this same bachelor was in there telling me I had kidney stones. I said, bro, I don't have kidney stones, man. I don't drink orange juice. I don't do all this shit. I knew it wasn't a kidney stone. This is a true story. So when I went back in here recently, he's like, oh, Blah blah blah. I, I Doctor Seaman. He's then they did. My, he's like, well, you came back. I was like two times over illegal. I said I had like three beers because I was like nervous I was going to come to the because I don't go to the emergency room, bro. But my hands are cramping and everything, man. It was bad. It was a bad. I almost died, but well, I didn't really almost die. They're like you're just having an anxiety attack. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're still That's, with us. I'm here. not kidding, you, bro. I'm not kidding you. You couldn't tell I didn't have a stroke. Let me tell you something. If you're having a stroke, when you go into the and I walked my ass in that bitch, I couldn't even open the door. My hands were so cramped. I got out that fucking door. I walked in there. They said, they said safe. And it's like what, who, what, and where. I'm telling you, that's the fucking five words. It's like, what, what, what is that? It's like, what, what is what, who, what, what, what is that? <laughs> Which I called. Remember the old shit on Sesame Street? Uh, what, who, what, what, what are those things called? Uh, what questions? Uh, come I don't on, know. drop. You know that. I don't know man. questions. I don't know what this. The electric company. Yeah, uh, you remember what, the electric what, company? I, I forgot. I don't know what okay. they call. I just uh, there's questions to me. 
Listen, they make you say those five words. I'm telling you, and the guy said, "I never forget." It is. I was like, it felt like my mouth coming over my teeth. He goes, "You're not having a stroke," but they put me in a motherfucking thing. I have to wait in the emergency room. They put me back to the room. They put a mask over me just so I could breathe into it. It wasn't not even oxygen. And I said, "Man, my kid's having a birthday, man. I'm not dying, this motherfucker." But because I was drunk, it was bad, bro. And guess what? That woke me up. So now I only drink beer. <laughs> Is that better? You that, never drink. If I ever meet you, you're getting drunk. So you you better bring your potassium. No, I, I, I don't know about that. That's. But you can get drunk. What do you mean? You got to get drunk with me, man. You got to have a couple. No, of I, I don't. With me. I don't see a desire in getting drunk. I just don't like it. It's just not. It's not me. You can't have two drinks. I can. Two drinks but I, get you drunk. I've had dr- I've had drinks before. I just it doesn't do much for me. I, it's just not something that I, I enjoy. Everybody, nah, everybody you don't have to. No, I, that's good though. Imagine if you drank. I know. That's, Seriously, that's, that's good. It's good. I don't. Yeah. It'll fuck your whole body up, man. Well, I'll let you go talk about whatever you got to talk about. Okay. I'm not going to bed tonight, man. Right. I'm going to call you back. Okay. Thank you, bad guy. Well, what do you got to talk about next? What's the next subject? Where's the, the, TML Gay at? Is he dead? I, I don't know. Hopefully he's not. Hopefully he's around. He's dead. He, he might be. He's spreading the coronavirus. It's your way. Maybe you better get that Instacart shit on check, bro. I can tell you how to get it on check. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Are you getting your groceries or what? You guys eating good? We we're getting groceries. Are you cooking? Yeah. Are you my, cooking? Not me. It's uh, my girlfriend's can, cooking. Can you cook? Not really. I never seen you. I never seen you in the in the porn thread for the food. No, no, I, I don't. don't. So you can't cook. Not really. All you do is play poker. Come no. on, bro. See, we all got our own. We all got our own good stuff about us, man. You can't cook. What's no. Ben eating? <laughs> Flora, what's he eating? Well, no, my, my girlfriend. Cook. No, my girlfriend. Want me to come it. out to California? I cook for you. Okay, great. Where you live in Sino? Where do you live? That's sort of around there. Where do you? I get a ticket for like thirty-five bucks. I can afford it right now. <laughs> <laughs> come on, drunk! I thought you wanted to meet me. I'll come cook for you. Guys. You, 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 you should have come to. Cook. You should have come to Vegas all those other times when I said to come. When there's no coronavirus. Oh, stop it! I'll go to Vegas now, man. We can go meet up. We'll do Uber Eats, man. We can make money. <laughs> you drive, I'll fucking deliver it. I love you, brother. Okay, well, I just so, wanted to call, man. No, I it's good to, it's good to hear to call, from people. Man. People ask for the bad guy updates, and I'm glad to, got to hear from you. Yeah, well, I'm alive. I don't have Corona yet. I don't know how, but okay, I ain't going anywhere though. I don't. I mean, I, I I refuse. My buddies came to ask me to go play poker tonight. I said, "You fuckers crazy." I mean, they're they're getting handles of vodka and stuff because you can't get vodka in Pennsylvania right now. Oh. You had to like call to order it. You had to like order it. See, I'm, I'm glad I, I, do. I, said, Dude, I don't drink vodka anymore. See, I, I, see, at least I don't have to deal with that. But I, I just have to deal with uh, getting groceries. No, you don't here have to deal with it. You, you got to deal with Bavada, man. They're crooking you. Yeah, because of me. I do. Well, <laughs> hey, Bavada, drop had your back, man. He didn't get my money. You owe me twelve grand, still bastard. <laughs> they owe me twelve grand. Still, they owe bro. me. I, I don't know what's you. They might. <laughs> Okay. Well, I love you, man. Okay, thank you, bad guy. All right, I'll, I'm going to listen to the rest of the show, man. Okay. Good luck. Good night. We got a bad guy check in there. Let's go on to the next uh, coronavirus topic. It's about the mutations. There's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and lack of understanding 
about the coronavirus and mutations. And if you're one of the people who doesn't understand it well, don't feel bad because until today, that was also me. I knew something about it mutating, but I, I was having this discussion with someone yesterday and I was saying it's mutating and they told me, no, it's not. And I said, yes, it is. And I said, I definitely read something about that. And then they wanted me to tell them details and I, I couldn't because I didn't really know them. So I sounded like a fool. So I decided to look into it because I was curious. So what is the story with the mutations? It doesn't uh, affect me right now in the short term, but I, I just wanted to know about it. And I wanted to discuss it here on this show. Here, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to take any calls right now. But a bad guy, well, well, if you want to call back a little bit later, you can call back and we'll take another call from you. I think that was you. So anyway, um, the muta- the reason we had to go on is because I got like a ton more topics and it's 2.12 in the morning. So I was looking up about the mutations and I learned something. And uh, the answer is, yes, it is mutating. Yes, there are mutations. And would you believe that it has been found that it has been, it has already mutated in the short time it's existed to more than 30 different strains, and one of the new strains has 270 times the viral load of the original. 270 times! So that, on the surface, sounds really, really bad. Does that mean that it is now 270 times more deadly or more contagious than before? Well, not exactly. Uh, the mutations can actually be a good thing in some cases. In some other cases, it can be a bad thing. But it is inevitable with viruses like these that there will be mutations. So... As I said, it's already been found that 30 different strains, more than 30 different strains already exist, that there will continue to be more different strains. Just because there's a different strain does not mean an eventual vaccine against it will be ineffective. If there, if there are not enough differences in the strains, then the vaccine can work against all of them. It's also possible that there will be enough differences and the vaccine will not work once it mutates enough and a new one will have to be developed as it is with the flu when that mutates uh, for each flu season. Uh, One thing about the mutations that is good is it helps the researchers to learn more about the virus and the vulnerabilities it can have. It actually uh, provides more of a learning opportunity and that without these mutations, they... uh, May, they, they would have a harder time coming up with a vaccine. And as far as whether these mutations are bad, the short answer is actually no. First of all, the mutations they're seeing so far haven't really affected how the virus functions. And uh, mutations typically don't make a virus replicate much better. So that you don't have to worry about a more contagious version of the coronavirus from a mutation that that doesn't tend to happen very often. And uh, at the same time, the mutations don't ruin the virus either. So it's not going to mutate itself out of being viable. So that's the bad part. But the good part is it's not going to become uh, 
more contagious from the mutations. Furthermore, it's not as likely to become more deadly because uh, usually these mutations actually make it less deadly because what happens to the virus when the host of the virus, meaning the person it infects, dies? Well, the virus dies. By killing its host, the virus dies too. So the virus is actually doing itself a disservice by killing people. The virus could best survive if it could remain completely asymptomatic in all people. That would be ideal for the virus because then people would transmit it and wouldn't care about having it because it wouldn't be harming them. So that would be a virus that is perfect for transmission uh, and, and, and its own survival. So these will mutate in the direction typically that will let them survive longer, which means the hosts don't die as much and the hosts don't show severe symptoms as much. As a, this is a this is a unique one though because there is a significant amount of time that the hosts are asymptomatic and can't transmit it, which is why this one's so bad. But still, uh, usually these viruses do not mutate beca- to become more deadly for this reason. They usually mutate uh, to enable the spreading, but since the spreading is already happening a lot through being asymptomatic, uh, the people who just either remain asymptomatic or are asymptomatic at the beginning, which is most people, then uh, th- there's not much that can change to make this worse. So uh, the odds of this virus mutating to where it becomes more lethal or more contagious even over years is not very high. That There's not a lot of fear that that's going to occur. So I was talking about the vaccines. A future vaccine that is made can actually remain effective for a long time despite these mutations. Now, first of all, the uh, uh, comparing this to the swine flu, which is also very contagious, uh, that one actually uh, took a few years before... Uh, there is any evidence of uh, genetic mutations, but um, this one uh, does seem to mutate more. However, uh, it, to escape the vaccines from stopping it, or to get around existing herd immunity that could exist if there's enough people that have it, uh, it could take years for this to occur. Even though it's mutating more than the swine flu, it's the theory is that uh, from what they're seeing of it right now, it doesn't look like it's going to mutate the same way the flu does, and that uh, we probably will not have a situation where each year that a new vaccine has to be developed. But it could be every few years that a new vaccine will have to be developed, or it's possibly never. It may never mutate enough to where the previous vaccine no longer works for it or that people who already had it can get it again in a different form. The, uh, but, but again, the, the mutations can actually allow them to, uh, to study the vulnerabilities of the virus better and uh, develop a vaccine faster. So it actually may not be a bad thing that there are mutations right now. At the same time, they are acknowledging that there are mutations 
and that if it does behave differently than predicted, either it could be something that we are constantly dealing with forever and never goes away. It just keeps mutating like the flu does. And the best we can do is just keep adjusting the vaccine and getting a new one each, each season for it and hoping for the best. And there's a possibility that a vaccine will never be developed. So that is another problem that uh, we may have to face, that a vaccine could take far more than 12 to 18 months. So don't be sure a vaccine is going to be there. But at the same time, don't fear the mutations too much. Don't fear that uh, this is going to mutate into a version that both uh, transmits and kills 50% of the people. So it's it's very unlikely to become a as deadly as MERS was, while at the same time spreading like the swine flu. That's an unlikely mutation. That it's it's probably not going to spread at a higher rate from these mutations or kill at a higher rate. There are some uh, theories that there are di- that the different strains that exist are in different geographical areas of the country, and uh, it, or in, also in the world that there are some that are in more that are more deadly and less deadly, and that's why you're seeing some vastly different death rates uh, per person of the population that in different countries and that has not been proven is it possible yes is this from mutations well it actually may not be in the way you think it may actually be that uh the worst version was the original version and is uh is actually mutating away from that to be less deadly there is no evidence at this time that this is bucking the trend of viruses and making itself more deadly as it mutates. That just doesn't tend to happen. And as I said, it's for the obvious reason that uh, this prevents it from spreading as easily. So they, a, a virus does try to keep itself alive and spreading. That's what it attempts to do. Mutating to become more deadly would not be like any virus they've seen. So that's the real story with the mutations. So it's kind of in between. It's uh, it's not as scary as it sounds, but at the same time, it means that a vaccine may not be permanent. That may not just stop it for good. And we may have something that mutates enough to stay with us forever. So we will see. Moving on to our next coronavirus topic. If there is no vaccine and no treatment, what then? As I've talked about earlier in the show, especially the segment about Las Vegas, we will just have to accept it. And it's going to take a while for people to accept this if this does end up being the case. Because number one, a vaccine is not expected for up to 18 months anyway. So it would take those 18 months before you throw up your hands and say, crap, it's not here. Now, we'll have signs of that beforehand. If it, if we're at the 15-month mark and they're not close, we'll know about it. But uh, it, let's say a year passes from the beginning of this whole thing. Let's say we get to the beginning of 2021, and there's no progress of the vaccine. So it's not like they're in the process of testing one that looks very promising. There's like like very little progress. Everything we've tried has failed. Then we may start to have to accept the fact that there may not be a vaccine. And if no treatment has been found to be effective by then, we may have to accept the fact that there's no treatment. And it could take a very long time to get either of these. Hopefully it won't, but it could. 
And that's something you have to be ready for. And if that occurs, then the way everything will be is that uh, we just have to make the best of it and accept the fact that people are going to die, prepare the healthcare system to take care of it, social distance in a way, but also return to normal life in a way. We will not be able to hide out forever, obviously, if if that seems to be the case, if it seems like the long term is no vaccine, no treatment, then we're going to have to return to what we can return to and just deal with it. The question is, what about things like sports? Can we really have a stadium full of people again if we're in that situation? Can there be a 2021 baseball season? Can there be a uh, season in any of these sports that have people in an arena or stadium? Can we have concerts? Can we have cruises? Well, those will be very tough decisions. Because if we have not made a major breakthrough, but yet a long time has passed and we've lost a lot of things that are beloved to us as a society, there will have to be decisions made of do we just say screw it and take the chance and whoever gets sick and dies gets sick and dies and tell people who are most vulnerable to just stay at home and not do these things? Or do we still exercise caution and just not have certain things while mostly returning to normal. So yeah, so I'm sure the stores will reopen, the restaurants will reopen, there, uh, there'll be a lot of industries that reopen, and it'll just be accepted that people are going to get infected, and there'll be the best uh, attempts made to prevent that. A lot more mask wearing, a lot more cleaning, a lot more disinfecting, a lot more space between people. And that it may just be everyone spaces out for a while. That we, we return to normal life, but try to keep distance, keep everything clean, keep everything sanitized, hope we don't transmit it, and and that's that, and and keep away from large events, and that's that. And then there's a lot of things in between. What do we do with casinos, of course? Uh, What do we do with a lot of these things that are going to have to just either not come back or really create a lot of new infections? And we will just have to decide at that point, do we just throw it open and say, Whatever happens, happens. And some tough decisions will have to be made. And this is something that we do have to take into consideration because it may end up being like this. This isn't a movie where you're watching it, you know, no matter how tough it looks for the hero, at the end, he's going to solve everything somehow. This is real life, and uh, there may not be a good solution to this. There may not be an easy solution. There may not be a breakthrough game-changing moment after we've had uh, a reasonably short amount of time. Uh, So just because our country couldn't stand to be shut down for for a year doesn't mean that we'll have a breakthrough in less than a year. We may not. So at that point, we before a year, we're going to have to come up with medium-term and maybe long-term plans on how to handle this. And it will be a a lot of discussions that had never been had before. A lot of decisions will have to be made. And pros and cons will have to be weighed. We may even have uh, one segment of the society that just goes out and does what it wants, and then another segment of society that's that's semi-cautious, and another segment of the society that's that's super cautious, and that's just kind of the way it's going to (laughs) work. Life won't be normal again. But 
there's going to be a lot that has to be decided and anyone who thinks they have the simple answers here doesn't anyone says oh it's just about testing let's test 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 no it's not about testing testing's a, a, a portion of it but it's not that's not the answer we could have perfect testing right now ter- perfect instant testing and there's still a lot of problems there's a lot of problem would be a lot of problems with uh even if it's instant, testing everybody at the door everywhere. There would be the problem of uh, still how do you prevent it from spreading where you can't test. There would be a lot of problems. That would be the perfect world where you had perfect instant tests and enough to go around. It's not just about testing. It's, It's also not about just herd immunity. So this this is a very complex situation, and we haven't begun to realize the full economic damage from this, which is going to be vast. It's not quite understood yet because uh, we're towards the beginning of it, and there's people being propped up by, by loans and government payments that can't continue forever, and you're also not seeing businesses close just yet, you're more hearing about if this continues much longer this way, we will close. When tons of businesses end up actually closing, we're going to have big problems. When big businesses fail, we're going to have big problems. When we see the earnings figures for companies in the stock market that are staggeringly bad, we're going to have a problem. We're going to have more stock market crashes. Believe me, the economic impact of this, we've felt only a small fraction of it compared to what we are going to see. And that can't be forgotten. Can't be ignored. So that has to be factored into anything we do. And what we do has to be with an eye towards is there going to be a breakthrough in the near future? And if the answer is no then the correct thing to do at that point is say, okay, well then how do we reopen as much as we can without being completely irresponsible? And that's the closest we can get to being correct. That's the closest we can get to a correct response. But but there's still going to be a lot of problems. Like Las Vegas has no easy answer. There is no – I can't – I've thought about it. I can't come up with a single answer for Las Vegas that makes any sense where it's going to be okay. Reopening makes no sense. Keeping it closed for a long time till a major treatment or a vaccine comes out makes no sense. So if neither of these make sense, then what's the answer? There isn't one. They've got a big problem there. A very big problem, and I knew that was going to come. I knew that was going to be one of the cities that was going to have the hardest time. But there's others. There's, there's cities that are uh, dependent on tourism, that if they don't get the tourism, they're dead. It's not just Vegas. There's a lot of tourist-based cities that are going to have a big problem. There's tourist-based countries that are going to have a big problem. It's not going to hit the U.S. overall as hard because the U.S. has a diverse economy, but there are there are small countries like in the Caribbean that are just surviving on tourism. If you take away the tourism, they, they have almost no industry. So what do they do? There's so many problems are going to come from this, and some of these are delayed, much like the deaths are delayed by a few weeks. The 
economic problems are delayed by months or more from when they start to when there's really uh, the pain from them. So that is coming, and we must keep our eye on that as well. I want to talk about a hospital, the, the hospital situation, and this is something that can be fixed. This is something that actually does have a relatively easy answer, and and hopefully they're going to do the right thing shortly. Hospitals have an income stream that really supports them for the most part, and that is elective surgeries. And elective surgeries get a bad rap because people don't understand what they are. You, you hear elective surgery and you picture some uh, vain woman from Beverly Hills who goes in to get uh, a tummy tuck or her breasts enlarged. And, uh, and you say, well, why does she need to do that right now? That's the least of our worries. We, of course, we shouldn't allow that. Well, that's not what elective surgery really is. That That is an elective surgery, but that's not the majority of elective surgery that's taking place. Elective surgery is any surgery that you get. And when I say surgery, it could be any elective procedures, not just surgeries. Like a colonoscopy is an elective procedure. You're actually put under for it, but and it's not something you're doing uh, cosmetically. But it's, it's something you need to do uh, for for uh, to prevent colon cancer. But uh, but it's also elective. You, there's never a case where a healthy person needs to drop everything and get a colonoscopy the next day. So any situation where you need some kind of procedure or test or surgery done that is not of the utmost urgency, something that can wait anywhere from a short to a long time, is elective. It's called elective because at the moment you can go without it. If you delay it for a short time, or in some cases a medium or long time, uh, nothing's likely to happen to you. But it's something that is medically necessary and you need to eventually get done. And and hospitals love these elective procedures because they make most of their money from these. Why? Because, number one, they cost a lot of money. Number two, and more importantly, the bills get paid. Who gets elective surgeries? Who gets elective procedures? Are, is it the broke people who come into the emergency room and need treatment because they have to be treated by law? For, I'm not talking about the coronavirus, say anything, say before the coronavirus. When people would come into the emergency room, they would have to be treated no matter what. And that's the law. So hospitals often would get stiff by these patients. They either wouldn't have insurance or they would have the wrong insurance that this hospital doesn't take and then their insurance won't pay or will barely pay anything, and then the person's responsible, and then the bill's very large, and the person says, screw it, I'm not going to pay anything, because why pay a a small fraction of a gigantic bill? It's not going to help me. F it, I'm not going to pay anything, and the hospital gets stiffed. This happens over and over and over again. There's also people who are are poor who just use the ER as their primary primary care physician. Not actually, but they use it as a substitute for one. So something you'd go to a normal doctor for these people don't have a normal doctor. They don't have insurance. They don't have a health plan. So they just go, oh, the ER has to treat me. I'll go in for this. And then the ER does treat them. And of course, uh, this is a lot more expensive to go to the ER than to go to a normal doctor. But that's the only ones who will take them. And so uh, they run up a big bill that will never get paid. So hospitals for ER visits are used to getting stiffed. 
when I went in for my uh, chest pain and arm pain that uh, was, of course, concerned for cardiac reasons, they said if I pay my copay right now on the spot, they'll give me 20% off on the copay is. So so I, I did. I paid it on the spot. I wasn't going to stiff them on the copay. So I said, great, okay, I save 20%. Then my copay is 350 I save uh, 70 bucks. Great. So I, I paid right then, and I paid 280 instead of instead of 350 uh, The reason for that is because there's a lot of people who do stiff them on the copay. However, elective surgery is different because when you go to the ER, usually you're going there because you have to, because you feel that there's an urgent need to do so. With elective surgery or elective procedures, there isn't an emergent, an urgent need to do so. So the people who tend to go in for this stuff are ones who have insurance and uh, the hospital has time to check if that insurance is taken. And if they don't, they tell that person, sorry, we don't take it. Uh, go to the hospital down the street that does or whatever. So, so usually the patients that do these elective procedures in the hospital have insurance that particular hospital takes that insurance and the insurance pays a lot of money for these elective procedures. And the part the insurance does not pay is often paid pretty well by the patient because the patient goes in knowing that this is going to cost them money and they are prepared for it and they pay for it. So those who come in for elective procedures and surgeries, there's a very good record of bill payment, both from insurance and from the patients themselves. So that's how the hospitals stay afloat. That's how they make their money. The ER is a loser for them. And that's why the rates are so jacked up to try to compensate for that. So without elective procedures, which actually cannot be done now, hospitals cannot do elective procedures or surgeries now. They can only do emergency surgeries and procedures because they need the space for COVID-19 patients. They don't want anyone in there getting something done that can wait because that person is going to be taking up a bed and resources that could be used by a coronavirus patient who needs it urgently. So they don't, they just don't want those people there. It's like stay away from the hospital unless you absolutely need to go to the hospital is the message that's being given to people. And it's actually not legal for the hospitals to allow these uh, elective surgeries right now or elective procedures. Well, this is killing them because their main form of revenue has been taken away. Now that we have gotten the situation with hospital beds and ventilators under control, hospital beds and ventilators under control to where it is assumed that we will have enough space for people in hospitals and enough ventilators for that the our healthcare can't our healthcare system can't be overwhelmed concern which was a huge concern in mid march and in late march uh it never came to pass and between the quick building of of uh additional hospitals and 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 uh makeshift hospital type facilities and the additional ventilators built on the fly that uh, and the social distancing that was put in place, it looks like this is never going to be a problem. So with that problem behind us now, it is definitely time to open up hospitals for elective procedures and surgeries, especially because some of these things are important. Some people need important treatments that cannot wait that long. Just because it's elective doesn't mean that you can wait a year. It might mean you can wait three months or two months. But 
there are a lot of things that need to be done fairly soon that aren't same day emergencies yet, but are ones that really do need to be done within a matter of say one or two months and that people are not able to do. And even things that need to be done that aren't a matter of one or two months, but, uh, just need to happen, also need to be done. Like, for example, I can't get a colonoscopy right now. I want to, but I can't get one. So that type of thing needs to be opened up again, because this is important, and when you don't have these things done, additional people will die. There are consequences to not doing elective surgeries and elective procedures that are important, that are medically necessary, and that may cause death later if you don't do them now. Even if it's not an urgency, like I got to drop everything and do it, the longer you wait, the more people you're going to have that are going to die or have other severe health consequences because they were not able to get this done when uh, when they wanted to and when they were told they should. So given that there is little danger right now to allowing these elective surgeries and elective procedures, those should be allowed again. And if we do have some spike again in uh, coronavirus cases, okay, we'll then change it back. If, if it looks like there's going to be a hospital capacity issue, they can say, okay, never mind, we're, we're going to stop allowing this again. But I don't see that happening, first of all. I, I, what I see more in the future of now, unless everything's like thrown open at once, if we kind of go to a, 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 a slow opening of things and, and a social distancing attempt to return to normal, I see some possible increase in cases, but not like a huge spike that's going to overwhelm the capacity at this point. So they need to bring all this back, and there's talks about bringing it back, and that definitely needs to be done. The hospitals do need to make money. They need to support themselves. They're a very important resource right now, of course. They are – you talk about essential services. That's about as essential as you can get. So uh, we can't just let them fall into financial ruin because all they can do is is treat these coronavirus cases, which uh, they're not v- making very much money from at all. They they need to go back to their real income stream, which which should be safe to do now. And if there's any place where they could have proper supervision and procedures and uh, sanitation and disinfecting to where the spread of the virus can be kept under control from patient to patient would be a hospital. So you, you can feel pretty safe going to a hospital and not catching the coronavirus there. Not 100%, but uh, you can feel fairly safe to go back there and, and you know, they'll, of course, be very careful and, and get the procedure done without catching the coronavirus. So they, they need to return to elective procedures. And, and believe me, for most people who need something done, the chance that they're going to get the coronavirus and have a severe reaction from it, uh, the chance of that killing them or severely harming them is less than delaying the elective surgery for too long. Delaying the elective surgery or procedure for too long uh, can end up being a lot more deadly than any chance they're taking with catching the coronavirus there in the hospitals. So the hospitals really do need to be allowed to do this, and they want to do this, believe me. What about a new normal that we may have to deal with after this is over. Let's say eventually the coronavirus disappears or we get it under control through a vaccine. So it's not really a a concern anymore on its own. At that point, 
will there still be long-term differences? Ignoring whatever happens to the economy, which I, I it's even hard for me to fathom what's going to happen there. But let's look at what life in general will be like after this is done. Let's say there's a vaccine, it works well, this thing doesn't mutate enough, so the vaccine seems to hold it down for good, and that's that. A, a happy ending, at least from the standpoint of uh, what potentially could have happened. Let's say that's our future. Let's say that uh, let's say that occurs by the end of 2021. Okay, so we go into 2022, and there's no more coronavirus threat. Okay. Well, what's the new normal at that point? Does everybody feel comfortable going back to the World Series of Poker and trading chips with everybody and sitting at a table full of nine people and being moved from table to table to table? Do you feel comfortable getting on a cruise, especially knowing that if there's another coronavirus-like outbreak, that you could be quarantined in your tiny stateroom for a month until the ship can dock somewhere? Will you be willing to go to something like Coachella with 120,000 people attending, walking around everywhere, and everyone standing in a big crowd watching a concert? Are these things people will return to do? Will people shake hands anymore? Will they hug anymore? I'm not talking about like people in a relationship. I mean, you see a friend, are you going to hug them now? Are you going to shake people's hands at business meetings? Or is everybody going to be a lot less touchy and wanting a lot more space? Is this going to traumatize everybody to the point of it feels weird to be close again to strangers? And are certain things where a lot of people are stuffed close together just going to be a thing of the past? Will there be more space between airline seats, for example, or more space required, uh, like fewer people allowed in a subway car or uh, fewer seats crammed into sports arenas and stadiums? Will there be a general backlash against anything where you're close to a whole lot of people at once? And I don't know, but I have to think that maybe the answer is yes. It may just feel weird, even if you know it's past. It may just be unappealing after all this time of social distancing and always fearing others getting you sick to say, okay, now we can return to being all close to each other again. Even if your mind knows it's okay to do, it may be hard to get yourself to do it. This may actually break people from wanting to do such things where before it was no concern now you don't want to do it anymore. I mean, they, this is kind of a version of the the rat in the maze where the rat runs into an electrified wall and then will forever avoid that wall. The rat will never walk into that wall again once it experiences an electric shock, even a mild one, from walking into that wall. And they they've done those experiments with rats, which, by the way, have a lot of similarities to people both in their, uh, the way their brain works and the physiology of their bodies. So are we going to be like that? Are we going to feel that being close to other people physically will 
feel like that shock on the wall of the maze that we don't want to touch it again and that we have to stay away. I don't think it will interfere with uh, with relationships where you know a lot of people are, are there with their wife, with their girlfriend, with their boyfriend, husband, whatever, and with close members of their family like their kids. So that hasn't changed and people aren't afraid to do that. But with strangers or relative strangers or peers or even friends, it, it can start to feel weird. Also, I'm wondering if this is going to change uh, any kind of uh, sexual hookup culture, which seems to be getting more and more prevalent through those dating apps like Tinder. And I wonder if people are going to be just meeting up for hookups as much anymore, if they're going to be afraid, even once this is all passed, to go and do this, again, just feeling weird getting close to a stranger like that. This might have a psychological impact in that way that people won't realize right now, but it'll just feel funny to do. The desire to do it will start to disappear. You may think you want to go to a stadium and watch a ball game, but then you think, if I don't, I'm sitting next to these people so close to me, and that just kind of feels uncomfortable. I don't know if I want to do that. It may just feel weird to you. Even knowing the coronavirus has passed, people are going to start fearing, well, what's the next one? What if there's another one we don't know about, and I catch that before we know it and I die? There's going to be a lot of paranoia about that. So will this cause a new normal? I think to some degree. People do forget things very quickly. People do forget bad times quickly. And in fact, as I mentioned, even with my anxiety that I experienced, your, your mind is actually wired to forget about the stress and pain you had before. And this is actually something that's evolutionary that allows people to still prosper despite hard times. And if if all you could do is sit there and dwell on past pain you experienced, then you'd never get anything done and and your whole life would just be reliving the same trauma over and over. So so you do have the ability to forget bad things and and bad things the the very strong negative emotions you felt or bad, or pain or or discomfort uh as time gets away f- from it as you get farther and farther away you, you it starts to become you you can identify less and less how you felt at the time and the negativity when you think back to it becomes uh less and less and the whole thing becomes less traumatic so now you can think back to it and say, this sucks, I don't want to have it again, but, but it, it's, it's hard to relive as much. So this may be the case here. In fact, there may be such a relief once this is done that people may go the opposite direction and say, I can't wait to do all these things again and actually want to do these things because they feel finally they can't. So I, I'm not sure what direction it'll go, but I, I still think there'll be some changes, especially with closeness, with, with, with rituals like shaking hands or, or hugging strangers. or I, I, I can see where this is going to maybe stop or reduce a lot, and also that maybe personal space will start to be seen as more valuable. Now, that last part is actually a good thing because... Uh, in the name of profits, a lot of companies have started to 
figure out ways to maximize how to cram people together as close as possible so they can get more customers in the same space. And I hate that. And I have hated it. And I've complained about it over the years. Like at restaurants, there are tables, I'm sure you've seen them, they're, they're all over now, where they're, they're not freestanding tables. It's, a, it's like a long booth where there's a bunch of tables in a row where different individual parties sit. And they're very close to each other, almost as if they're at one long table with small breaks in between them. My dad calls them shake hands tables because you're close enough to shake hands with the other parties that are, that are dining uh, next to you. And it's true. And I hate them. And I, I refuse to sit at them. I will uh, walk out of a restaurant if that's where I have to sit. I, I Why do I hate them? Because there's no privacy. You, everybody at the next table hears everything you say, and it sucks. You have to constantly be self-conscious of what you're talking about. They're not quite as bad as you're by yourself, and you're not going to be talking to anyone anyway. But uh, then you just hear what other people talk about. But it's especially bad if you're with even one other person, and, and you f- you know there's going to be eavesdroppers in your conversation, and it sucks. I, I just hate it with a passion. And this is done, of course, in the name of profit, because the restaurants want to serve more people in the space they have, and they found that's a way to do it. Airlines don't have to say anything more cramming in way more seats than they used to leg room shrinking uh, with the seats shrinking just far more seats in the plane than there used to be obviously not good for the consumer I, I guess it's a little cheaper to fly now but to me it's not worth it and then every time they build a new stadium the space the spaces you have are smaller they cram in new seats they they find ways to cram in more and more people it seems like everything they're doing, everything they're building, all the trends are toward cramming people in as much as possible because that equals more profit. And I always look for the opposite. I always look for what's an option I can do or take or get involved with or uh, what's a different way I can do this to where there's fewer people. And when I go on vacation, I think about that. When I take hikes, I think about that. I I always try to stay away from the crowds because I hate them. And it's not any kind of social anxiety. I I don't hate having people around me. It just uh, takes away from the enjoyment to have everybody in your way and to be crammed with a lot of people. It, It just sucks. So I like to avoid it. So this may actually help that. This may actually cause these companies to rethink it, that you try to cram in a bunch of people now, they're going to feel uncomfortable. So that might change. That might be one change for the better. Well, the first COVID-19 death in the U.S. was backdated to February 6th, which is about two weeks before they thought the first death actually occurred. And there's been a lot of news about this of, wow, this is this is proof that it's been here a long time and we might have herd immunity because that means if, if the first death was on February 6th, it probably was even sooner than that because for so long they were insisting it was about two weeks after that. And they were saying anyone who thought that anyone died in early February of COVID-19 was crazy. And, and it turns out they're not crazy and someone really did die of COVID-19 on, on February 6th. The funny thing was the person who died on February 6th 
they didn't die in a way you would expect. It wasn't someone who was in a hospital and had the usual situation where they can't breathe and it got worse and worse and then they got put on a ventilator and they died. That's the way most people go who have COVID-19 and die from it, but not this uh, particular person. This was a 57-year-old woman who was previously healthy and then came down with some kind of mysterious illness that she didn't understand and was getting worse and worse, and she was actually found dead in her home. So presumably she just either chose not to get medical treatment or it went from moderately bad to terrible very quickly and she was living alone and didn't really have a way to tell anyone and then just died there. It's We will not know exactly what happened, but uh, they tested her and it turned out that she had COVID-19, this woman who died on February 6th, and she was uh, the first person now known to have died of COVID-19 in the U.S. And the reason this is a big deal is because people are saying, well, that means the whole thing was here sooner than we thought. But we're still looking at February 6th. It's not like it was January 6th. So when did she catch this? Well, we don't know. But let's say, what, three weeks? That still puts it in mid-January. Two weeks, that puts it in late January. I don't doubt that it was here in January and that it was here in early or mid-January. I don't doubt that. I stopped playing at Commerce on January 27th for that reason. So obviously I I thought there was some danger here because uh, I quit commerce on January 27th. So is it a shock that someone died on February 6th from the U.S.? In in the U.S.? Uh, No. Now, by the way, this woman had traveled abroad. I don't know when she was last abroad, but there was another thing that was mentioned that she could have actually brought it in if she may not have caught it in the U.S. But uh, even if she caught it in the U.S., this does not mean that we it's been here for months and we only realized it in February. If there were a lot of deaths from this, if there were a lot of cases from this in December and January, it would have been known. Because it doesn't kill people the same way the flu kills people. There would have been a lot of people who show up, who can't breathe, who have to be put on ventilators. It, there was I know some were mistaken as pneumonia, but there would have been, if, if it was widespread in California in January, that would have been known. There's no way that could have been hidden, especially in something so populous that uh, there would have been so many cases like this seen that it would have been said, hey, there's this mystery illness that's, that's killing people that seems different than the flu. Or there, it would have been said, well, look, the, the, the flu season's so bad that we're seeing this really weird strain that's doing this. And then they would have later said, oh, wait, that was COVID-19. We, we haven't found anything like that. So while I think it was here earlier than is being acknowledged, and I think that will eventually be the narrative that it was here earlier than acknowledged and that it was that there were people in early January who had it, who are found to have the antibodies now. But... Uh, I don't think we're going to find there's anything like herd immunity. They're saying, oh, I bet California has herd immunity because uh, they had it uh, a while ago and they're just realizing it now. That's why California's cases aren't that bad. No, California's cases aren't that bad because of the lack of public transportation. 
that's why California's cases are not that bad. Keep in mind, California still has people dying. There was, uh, I think, uh, 71 people who died yesterday in California. There's, uh, I think, like 1,600 deaths in California overall from this. So it's, it's not uh, negligible. So I, I, there's nowhere near herd immunity anywhere from this right now in the U.S. If you think otherwise, then you are delusional. Final COVID-19 topic, and then we'll move on to our last five general topics, but only after I take a break, because I've been doing this show a long time. I've talked about things related to this before, but I, I want to say a little bit more, and that's about how to assert your rights as a consumer during the coronavirus pandemic. And before you fast forward this, if you're listening in the archives to the next topic, saying, oh, I don't want to hear about the airlines again. I know, yes, you can get a refund from the airlines. Yes, we can get a refund from the cruise lines. No, that's not what this is about. Okay, so just hang on. Hang on before you dismiss me and say I've talked about this too much. This is actually about how not only can you assert your rights for things related to the coronavirus, such as if your trip gets canceled, but also how you can actually use the coronavirus to assert your rights for things that are unrelated. And you may say, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Or wait a minute, that sounds kind of unethical. And my answer is, no, it's not. If something's right, it's right, and it doesn't matter what method you use to get there as long as it's legal. So let me give you a very quick example from real life. The cable company hit me with a charge which was not correct and not valid. I'm not going to go into the whole story. It's boring and I don't feel like telling it. But just trust me, it was a bad charge that should be removed from the bill. But it wasn't super straightforward whether I was correct. It was something where they somewhat had to take my word for it. But it wasn't a lot of money. It was a small amount of money that I was calling up to have removed for the principal. Okay? So I called them, and they told me, sorry, we don't remove that charge. We're not removing this charge. Our policy is not to remove this charge. Basically, they gave me a big, fat middle finger. And they were very proud of themselves telling me that I can't do this. And I said, let me ask you a question. This is one of these services that you can't turn off if I don't pay my bill, right? And the rep said, uh, yeah. She already wasn't very comfortable with that line of questioning. I said, well, take a look at my bill payment history. Have I been paying my bill? Yes. Have I been paying it in full? Yes. Well, I have a feeling that you're not going to be able to turn off my service for six months or more if I don't pay my bill based on current laws. And I have been paying my bill despite that because I'm not a dishonest person. I'm an honest person who pays bills that are correct and for money I really owe. And just because I can get away without paying you, I said, look, if I wanted to be a jerk, I could just not pay for six months. You couldn't shut me off, maybe more than six months. And then whenever they finally allow you to disconnect people, when it's considered that we're past this, which who knows when that's going to be, then I could just switch to the competition. 
and let you turn me off, and you'll never get another dime from me, and I'll get all this service for free. I could do that, but I don't want to do that because I'm not a dishonest person. However, if you're going to be dishonest with me, if you're going to cheat me and leave something on the bill that should not be there and tell me, tough luck, you're going to pay for it because we say so, then I'm going to say, you know what? This company does not deserve honest behavior from me. I will get what I can out of them, and I will not send another another penny, and I will leave the service on as long as you have to leave it on, and as long once you shut me off, I'll move to the competition. And there's nothing you can do about it. I can tell you right now I'm going to do that, and you still can't turn me off. So you have two options. Either take this off my bill, and I will continue to be a good and honest customer who pays the rightful money I owe, or... I'm just not going to pay anything. I'm not just going to deduct the thing I don't think I owe. I will not pay you another cent, and you're going to give me a lot of money worth of free service, definitely more than $1,000 by the time this is all over, and then I'm going to leave, and there's nothing you can do about it. So what do you think of that? (laughs) So then the rep said, well, I understand you, but I still can't remove this. I said, okay, go to your supervisor then. Tell your supervisor exactly what I said. So she went to her supervisor and came back and said, okay, we're taking it off. And I said to her, by the way, when you go to the supervisor, make sure the supervisor understands that I have a great bill payment history and I'm going to pay the bill only if they treat me honestly. So if I get anything, even one cent on my bill that I think is that correct, I'm not paying the whole thing ever again. So the choice is I'm going to be a good customer, keep paying and you can take the small amount off, or I'm never paying another cent. Let them know that's the choice. So they did, and they realized that I had them by the balls. What could they do? Believe me, they didn't want to take that off, but they knew that their choice was keep a good-paying customer or keep a guy who's going to screw them in return for being screwed. They'll screw me small, I'll screw them real big. And even though I run PokerFraudAlert.com, and constantly rail on about frauds and scams and scandals and dishonest people, if I am not treated honestly by a company, I am not going to treat them honestly. In a business transaction with me, either you treat me fairly, and I will treat you fairly, or you don't treat me fairly, and I will not treat you fairly. There's no such thing. There's some people, I don't agree with this, I've said this so many times, who say, I'm always going to be honest and fair to everybody no matter how they treat me. That's being a chump. So if a company says, yeah, well, the, the charge might be wrong, but we're just not taking it off, F you. That's our policy. We don't take it off. Goodbye. Tough luck. And I say, okay, well, I'm just not going to pay my bill and you can't turn me off. Goodbye. Tough luck. <laughs> can't do that during normal times. If I if I tell them this now, then they'll say, okay, well, when you don't pay your bill, it's going to turn you off. So that's what you want to do that you can do it. But now they can't turn me off. So, yes, I used the coronavirus to my favor to get a bill fixed. I was not hitting them for any money they didn't owe me. This was an error that they would not fix. So the motto I live by is, you treat me fairly, I will treat you fairly. You treat me honestly, I'll treat you honestly. You knowingly screw me, I will knowingly screw you back. So let's uh, move to another thing that uh, doesn't involve me but uh, involves a friend, and I was advising them. By the way, not Ken Scaler, in case you're thinking it's him. But I had a friend who, who rents a place, and their air conditioner broke. And in Southern California this past week, it has been hot. 
It was in the 90s on Friday. A little bit cooler today. It's going to be a lot cooler tomorrow. But uh, it was in the 90s on Friday and the 80s on Thursday. And uh, took a while to cool down at night. So air conditioning was needed. And uh, this friend of mine found that their air conditioner did not work. It's actually a woman I know. And I, so I, she asked me for my advice of what to do. And I said to her, well, where you live in the San Fernando Valley, it gets very hot in the summer. And for sure, uh, they need to fix the AC. They cannot refuse to fix the AC. This is something that uh, is essential to have in your apartment. Now, they, they are not required to fix it same day or even the next day, but they are required to get on it and fix it in a reasonable amount of time. Otherwise, you can either have it fixed yourself or if it can't be fixed, then you can withhold rent until they give you another unit. Uh, what had happened is they had sent a repairman down. The repairman said, sorry, this thing's shot. You'll have to get another one. And at that point, the landlord got very cheap and said, uh, sorry, we're not spending that type of money. Can't afford it right now. Uh, just deal with it. No air conditioner. So I, I told this person, I said, look, I, I don't know what relationship you want to maintain with the landlord so that this part's up to you. But I'm going to let you know that you don't have to pay rent right now. That you'll eventually owe the rent, but that uh, you can stay and they cannot evict you and you can just pay no rent. So in addition to having the legal right anytime to deduct the rent or not pay rent when they are not putting something in working condition in your unit, like they're not fixing the AC, but even uh, above that, they can't even file an eviction right now for non-payment of rent, no matter what the reason. So I told her, go to the landlord Ask again nicely, you know, look, I really need the AC. Summer's coming up and we just had a day that was 96 degrees. Can you please fix it? For, can you please put a new one for me? Uh, anyone who's going to rent it after me is going to need it anyway. So you really need to do something. And, uh, you know, it, it just because this, the landlord said that I can't afford it now. I, I don't even know if that's true. But that, look, if, if you're renting out property somebody else, I can't afford it. It's not a good answer. What you do then is you sell it. If you can't afford to maintain the property, even during these coronavirus times, then sell it. You know, it, it that's, not, that's not an excuse from the landlord. I, I can't afford to maintain the property I'm renting to you. So uh, anyway, I, I told her to just ask nicely one more time, say that this is a requirement by law to do, and that you can't just say, no, I can't afford it now. That's not an answer. That This, this is needed to live, especially since we're moving into May and, and, and June. It's going to get hotter and hotter. And if this landlord still refuses to say, okay, well, I'm just going to stay here for the next six months then and not pay rent and then just leave at the end, which they could do because you can't in, in Los Angeles City, you can't evict anyone for non-payment for the next six months. You can evict someone for causing a problem, but someone just to, if they're a normal tenant and just don't pay rent, you cannot evict them for the next six months no matter what. And I said, once you get your landlord admitting in text message, which she did, that they're refusing, outright refusing to replace the AC, that, that's a killer in court. Then they'll never win anything in court anyway. There, there's, there, they'll, I've seen this before where landlords try to do things like this and then they go to court and they just get smacked down. The judge sees this and goes, wait a minute, you, you didn't want to fix the air conditioner? Why? Oh, well, I didn't think they needed it. Well, isn't it 100 degrees in this? Well, yeah. Well, you didn't think they needed it? You, you expected rent to be paid? Do you understand the law says they don't have to pay rent when you don't do that? Well, I, I just didn't think, well, case dismissed and they get nothing. So I, I, I told her, just tell the landlord, 
you want to pay rent, you want to be honest, but you need AC, you need to be able to live. So she did. And the landlord said, okay, um, how about I get you a portable AC unit that you put in the window? And it's not a big place, so that would work. And she's like, okay. So that's what they did. Problem solved. So because there's certain protections in place right now, use them to your advantage when you are getting screwed. In this landlord example, it was absolutely the law in California that if in a place like the San Fernando Valley, as the summer is approaching, the AC must absolutely be fixed or replaced. There is no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You, you absolutely have to replace the AC or fix it when it, when it breaks. You can't just say, no, I can't afford it. I'm not doing it. Can't. Illegal. So if, if your landlord is going to behave that way, then fine. Lay the law down. Say, okay, if you're going to screw me, I'm going to screw you. And there's a way to say it without sounding like a jerk. You can say, look, I, I want to be honest here. I, I don't want to be like those people who are trying to freeload. I want to pay my rent. I want to pay my phone bill. I want to pay my cable bill. Some people are going to try not to. Some people are going to screw you. I'm not one of them. I'm, I'm the guy doing the right thing. But that's assuming that you treat me fairly and legally. Any shenanigans, forget it. Then, then I'm, I'm not going to be that guy who does the right thing anymore. It works, trust me. So if there's a small bit of good that could be obtained at this time, that, that's one of them. So that's what I mean by asserting your consumer rights during this, where you actually have a little extra power in some industries. But I would always start out by saying, I could be doing such and such, but I'm not because that's not who I am. That's not what I do. I want to pay my bill. I want to pay my rent. That, that separates yourself from the freeloaders. That separates yourself from those t- trying to take advantage where you're saying, don't make me sorry for trying to do the right thing with you. And that's really effective in any situation like this. And when I say like this, I mean anytime you can point to something where you're voluntarily doing the right thing for a person or a company, and then they're screwing you in some way in return, and you can stop doing the right thing, and you point out to them, look, if you, if this is the way you're going to be to me, then I'm going to stop doing the right thing for you that I could have not been doing all along. And then people will stop and think, oh, crap. I don't want that. Okay, well, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act right now. It works. And it's not unethical. It's, uh, it's using legal and, and ethical persuasion to get others to not screw you. Okay, we're going to take a break here. Then we're going to come back with the Jew tip of the week. Don't miss that about how to get Amazon on the phone. Something that used to be so easy and now is so hard, but it's still so important if you use Amazon, which I think most of us are using. I don't think there's many of us out there who aren't using Amazon at all at this point, especially right now. So we're going to take a break. So I will be right back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. 
The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally. And he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar. And he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back. We got some text messages, which I neglected to check during the show. So let me tell you some things that came through here during the show. From the 805, if the WSOP wants players to flock back to the series, they open it up with a million-dollar free roll. Boom, 20,000 people throw caution to the wind. You know, that might be a good idea. Uh, it reminds me of a picture I saw that's going around uh Described as a tragic picture, but I explained why it's actually not as tragic as people think, of a tremendously long line for people to get a $30 voucher for food. And the narrative, of course, was that everyone is so desperate for money right now that they can't afford food and they will stand on a hours and hours long line that just stretches and stretches and stretches just to get a $30 voucher for free food. And I said, no, that's not tragic. Actually, this would happen if they gave the $30 voucher out during normal times. And the people on that line would not necessarily be people who cannot afford to buy it. Americans love free things and will stand on very, very long lines to get it. And I've seen this myself during normal times. For example, gas stations when they have some kind of uh, radio station promo or something to get a free tank of gas if you show up between certain hours i've seen people wait six hours to get a tank of gas and this is when gas was cheaper which i guess it's cheaper again now except in california where it's a little expensive but uh, i'm talking about the days where you can get a whole tank of gas usually for like 35 40 bucks and and i would see people waiting six hours for that so uh, and that wasn't out of desperation. That was because they're giving away something free and people think, OK, well, I've got to get it. And then they see a line. OK, line kind of sucks, but I, I, I'm here. I've got to get it. And I don't understand the logic. I would never sit on a line like that, even if I didn't have money. 
if I was absolutely desperate, then I guess I would. But uh, most of the people on those type of lines are not desperate. These are just people who want something free. And there's this it, there's this irrational desire to get things free. So it's hard to separate how many people were in that line because they were just getting something free and how many were in that line because they really needed $30 worth of food that they couldn't afford. And it's, it's kind of hard to tell. It's, it's strange to think about, but yes, the, even during normal times, if, that, if they gave out a $30 voucher to go use for free food in the store, you, you would probably still see a tremendous line. So similar, this guy is saying in the 805, he's saying, hey, give a million-dollar free roll, and everyone will come and throw caution to the wind. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. You should do marketing for them. From the 516... I hope I'm up for the Jew tip because my gloves and masks are at least a week late from Amazon. Well, then I have another Jew tip for you, which I'll give you related to my Amazon Jew tip. By the way, your masks from Amazon, I'd watch out because a lot of those are actually made in Wuhan, China. I'm not kidding. Most of the masks being sold on Amazon are crap. And I don't just mean they're not N95. I mean, they're crap. From the 702, referring to the mayor of Las Vegas, the mayor is an independent. And no wonder I didn't know her to be a Republican or Democrat. From the 702, a different number, this person said that uh, Kevin Davis is trying to call, but for some reason cannot get through. He can't call or text. For some reason, it's blocking him. I don't know why I would be blocking him. The... It would block him for blocking his number, but he can always text me. I don't know what's going wrong there, but uh, if Kevin's still up, I got this text uh, three hours ago. So if if you're still listening, then I will uh, have him on. Otherwise, we can have him on next week. I'm sure that there will be plenty still going on with Christopher Mitchell at that point that we can have Kevin Davis on here and uh, can tell us in his own words – Everything that uh, he wants you to know about this and what has been motivating him, which I have wondered about, like what specifically is motivating Kevin Davis to go after Christopher Mitchell so hard? There's got to be something, but uh, I'll be glad to have him on here and have him tell us about that and tell us what he knows about uh, Christopher Mitchell that I may not have talked about. So that's... uh, Move on to the next subject I have planned, which is the Jew tip of the day, or of the week. Not really of the day, because it's not a daily show. I guess you could also say it's of the day. It's about reaching Amazon. And reaching Amazon used to be a very simple thing to do. All you would do is Google the phone number, call Amazon, they would answer, And even though it would typically be a foreign customer service rep, which usually is a disaster for any company that you reach, and it's a foreign rep, Amazon was one of the few exceptions that would empower their foreign reps, and in most cases could help you. Occasionally, you'd have to ask to be transferred to the U.S., which was your option to do. Most people didn't know that, but you could. And then you get someone who's higher up, who definitely is authorized to fix things. But in most cases, the foreign reps were empowered to help you. So, okay, great. That was old Amazon. However, this is new Amazon. And with new 
things and with new times comes new strategies that one must employ. So if you try to call Amazon, you're not going to get the same thing as before. But uh, rather than tell you what you're going to get, I'm going to show you because this is a show with a phone. Thank you for contacting Amazon. Amazon is focused on the health and safety of our associates and based on regional regulations and social distancing requirements, this has resulted in extended response times. We ask for your patience in this challenging time as our teams work to deliver this vital service to customers everywhere, especially to those, like the elderly, who are most vulnerable. As a result, you are not able to reach us by directly dialing this phone number at this time. You can track your orders and deliveries, return a product, manage your Prime account, and get help with your Amazon devices at Amazon.com forward slash help. We apologize for any inconvenience. Goodbye. All right. A few things here. First of all, doesn't Jeff Bezos have like $100 billion? He couldn't afford to hire a voiceover artist to do a decent message. (laughs) Why does it sound like some voice synthesizer from, from 1985? Why do we have to hear that telling us the message? Why can't he hire someone to professionally put this out there? He can't afford this. All the extra business he's getting during the coronavirus pandemic, is that somehow financially straining him? I I don't get that. Of of all companies, not to be able to afford a decent message that's put up permanently, not permanently, but up there for at least months, why they would have that very – Amateur hour sounding uh, robotic voice, I don't know. But putting that aside, it sounds like you have to get your help online, which, as you might guess, sucks. Here is a tip from me regarding any company, and that is online customer service sucks big time. When you have to do customer service through chat or email, it tends to be terrible. Poker stars, or at least old poker stars, the one I dealt with, they were one of the rare exceptions where they actually did email support well. But it is very, very much the exception. Just about every time you do any kind of online support, it is absolutely awful. And the reps don't really pay attention to what you're saying. They tune you out. They look for a few keywords. So you can type up this whole long story, and they'll pick out like one or two words you wrote and then just uh, copy and paste a form response to you. It's it's the most tilting thing to, to do here because you you rarely get anyone who's who's paying attention and then it's very hard even when you complain and say hey you're not listening let's try again you're not reading this carefully you'll just still keep getting the same nonsense back where on the phone if they start that you can just stop them like if they start answering the wrong question you go ah, ah, ah that's not what I was saying and, and interrupt them and repeat it and, and not let them off the phone until they take it seriously where in these chats it's a lot easier for them to ignore you and to keep answering the wrong thing and, and, and email, especially because email moves very slow back and forth. So having to do this online with Amazon is a disaster, whether it's chat or email, you just don't want it. Uh, however, knowing that Amazon did buck the trend, I said, okay, let me give this a try because Amazon, they actually had good foreign reps, at least by foreign rep standards. That had helped me many times in the past when other com- companies did it terribly. So I thought, okay, maybe they actually do live chat well in the same fashion that poker stars did email support well. So I'll give it a chance. So first of all, it wasn't that easy to figure out how to get to live chat. But uh, here's what you need to do. And 
you can give chat a chance, but don't give them a long chance. So this is what you need to do. First of all, log into your Amazon account. Go to regularamazon.com, log in, okay? Then you need to go to the live chat page. Uh, there is a thread on Poker Fraud Alert in the Flying Stupidity Forum called Jews Tip of the Day, contacting Amazon rep during coronavirus phone or center closure. There is a link to go to live chat. I can also give it to you right now, which is amazon.com slash GP, like uh, letter G, letter P, lowercase, GP slash help slash customer slash contact dash us. That's amazon.com slash GP slash help slash customer slash contact dash us. And that's all lowercase. Okay, so uh, that's the contact us page. You can also just try to find the contact us page, the same thing. So you'll see on the page, it says, fixing things is quick and easy. The bot quickly fixes your problem or connects you to someone who can. So do you think that the bot can help you? Answer, no. <laughs> of course, the bot can't help you. A bot can never help you with customer service. Don't, don't ever try to have a bot help you with customer service unless it's like a question like, uh, uh, can you tell me when my delivery is coming? The, the bot can usually do that because that's a simple thing. That's, it's a bot reporting a fact to you. If a bot has to solve any problem, there's actually no chance it can. There, there is no AI capable of doing that right now. There won't be for a long time. So do not try to get bots to solve your customer service issues. You will drive yourself crazy. So the chance of that is, is very, very low. The chance of the bot helping you is... Zero point zero. But there is a button that says start chatting now. So you click on start chatting now and a chat window will pop up. And it will start off with a bot. So do not try to chat with a bot. Nor will the bot be uh, insulted... If you don't want to chat with it, it's a bot. It's something they set up to act like a human, but it, it does a very poor job of it. So don't, don't even try. Don't even try to get the bot to help you unless, again, you're just checking some fact. So what you do from that point is you type representative. That's all you have to type is representative. And then it will ask you if you want a live chat. So it'll say something like, uh, are you sure you don't want me to help you with this? Or are you sure you want a live chat? And you you click the, the option or the button that says, yes, I want a live chat. Okay? So that's how to get yourself to live chat. Do not try to chat with a bot. Do not do it by email. Do it the way I'm describing here from the contact us page. Start the chat with a bot. Type representative in lowercase. And then click the button that you want the live chat. Once the rep comes on, there's a good chance it's going to fail. So you can try. The, the easiest method is just to quickly tell the rep what's wrong and what you're looking for and see if they can help you. If they can, great. If they either give you a nonsense answer or a form letter answer or just something that really looks like they're out to lunch and have no clue, then just immediately move to the next step, which I will give you shortly. But to, to show you how crappy customer service is, what happened to me was I ordered an item that was new from what's known as Fulfillment by Amazon. Fulfillment by Amazon is where they're using third-party companies to fulfill orders you're doing through Amazon. This is not the same as buying through third parties where Amazon processes uh, the payment and the order. This is where the actual order is kind of on behalf of Amazon, but a, a, another company is processing it, okay? Uh, the reason this makes a difference is because 
Uh, first of all, you should try to order just directly Amazon as much as possible, as long as it's not more expensive because they're the most reliable. But, but, uh, there, there's a higher standard for what these companies have to adhere to if they're fulfillment by Amazon than if they're just a third party company selling through Amazon. Because basically they're, they're kind of like representing Amazon here when they're, uh, fulfillment through Amazon. So, so fulfillment by Amazon is what I ordered this product through. Uh, they sent me a used product. How do I know it's used? Because uh, there were things missing from the package. So obviously someone returned it, didn't return all the parts. And then they resold it as new. Big no-no, but happens a lot by these third-party uh, sellers on Amazon. So I knew I was being scammed. And of course, the item was was not working without these other without these parts. It was very important. It was actually two custom batteries that weren't there, uh, and, and two custom batteries and some parts that connect to the batteries definitely was just left out by somebody who uh, tried it once and, and then returned it and then forgot to put the batteries back in there. So I said, so Santiago from customer service, this is a real person, not a bot, but obviously someone not in the U.S., said, hello, Todd, how can I help you in regards of your order? I said, hello, I need help regarding uh, order number blah, blah, blah. The merchant, uh, and I gave the name of the merchant, sold me a used product as new. It was missing three items from the package and not wrapped in any way, meaning there's no shrink wrap. It just came as a, as a box that could have easily just been closed by, by someone else. Who, who previously had it. So he says, oh, I see. I apologize, Todd. So basically it was used, correct? I said, used and returned to them, then sold to me as new. It was missing three parts. This was not a new item. That's why things were missing. This is fulfillment by Amazon, and this merchant needs to be kicked off because they are scamming people. So basically what I'm telling him here is very clear. I'm sure you understand very well that this isn't just a matter that my order was bad, that I'm pissed off that uh, one of their partners that's doing fulfillment by Amazon is, is screwing people and selling uh, used items as new so that not only do I want this made right, but I, I they should think about kicking this person, this uh, company off, or at the very least, uh, submit some kind of complaint that, that would start that process going if they get enough of them. So Santiago at first seems helpful. He says, sure, no worries. I'll fix this for you. Okay. Give me please like a couple of minutes to take a look. So I said, okay, so far, so good. He'll fix it for me. Give him a couple of minutes. I was hoping he'll come back with, uh, okay, I've reported this company. Uh, I'll have a new one shipped out to you. That, that's what I was hoping the answer would be. That is not the answer I got. I got back, Todd, I'm completing this return slash refund. And that, and that was printing a label for you to return it. That Okay. Well, that's not okay. I didn't ask print a return label for me because uh, I could do that myself. I, I can process this return myself. At any time, I could have returned this for a full refund. Nobody was refusing to take my return. The problem was I needed this item. The problem was I was scammed by fulfillment by Amazon, and I was pissed off, and I wanted a, a, a black mark on their record with Amazon. So they uh, either get kicked off as fulfillment by Amazon, or there's at least record of this. So if this happens a few more times to others, they, they, they will get kicked off. And, and also, something I hadn't mentioned yet, was that uh, I needed a replacement item and I didn't want to get it from this company and have them pull the same crap on me. I wanted to get it from a different company. The only other different company selling it was more expensive. So I wanted Amazon to cover the difference. Now, I hadn't told Santiago this last part yet, so I wasn't expecting him to know that. But uh, to him just telling me he's processing a return, that's not what I asked for. I never said, can I return this? That, was, uh, that wasn't the solution I was asking for. And he completely ignored my thing that I wanted a complaint done. So I said... No, I need more than that. So he says, like what? <laughs> not like, hey, how can I help you? What else would you need? Like what? But okay, he's not being that formal. Fine. I don't need him to be formal. 
I said, first off, I need a complaint submitted about the merchant. This was a scam where they sold a new item as used. I also need to rebuy this item, but not from that merchant. I don't trust them, but the other merchants cost more. So then he says back, well, yeah, you'll be able to rebuy it. Once we receive the original back, then you'll get your, your full refund. <laughs> How does he think he's helping here? I know I can return it for a full refund. I know once I have a refund, I'm welcome to buy it again. I'm not a freaking moron. I just explained exactly the problem here. One, I want a complaint submitted. And two, I want to be able to rebuy this from a different seller on Amazon, but that it's more expensive. And I'd like them to solve that problem for me. I was very clear about it. Oh yeah, sure. We'll just return it. Once we get it back, you'll get a refund. Then you can, you can buy it again. Well, duh. Thank you. I don't need you for this. So, so I knew he, he was not uh, paying attention. He was just looking for keywords there. So I said, can I have a supervisor, please? It seems you were not reading my responses. Please connect me to a supervisor. So does he say yes? No. Does he say no? No. He just passively, aggressively sits there and doesn't say anything back to me. He just sits and sits and sits. Doesn't say, yeah, I'll get you a supervisor. Doesn't terminate the chat. He just sits and sits, probably went to go take a a smoke break. Whatever it is, uh, Santiago decided to abandon me. Well, finally, after uh, 15 minutes, <laughs> um, I got a call. Santiago never came back and said anything, but after about 15 minutes, I, uh, I got a call, and it auto-put me on hold. So I knew what that had to mean. That had to mean that... Uh, they're having the supervisor call me. So it'd be nice if Santiago said, yes, one's going to call you now. Please hang on. Instead, he just sat there for 15 minutes, and I just sat there. I kept saying, hello, are you there? Hello? And then uh, just 15 minutes later, my phone rang, and I answered, and it was Amazon saying, please hold while you wait for a, for a rep to help you. So I knew what that was. I knew that was uh, him referring it to a supervisor. But hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What does that mean? I thought Amazon had no phone report, no phone support. I thought that that recording so eloquently told me there is no phone support during these trying times. We cannot help you. Please use live chat to help you. Well, it turns out, yes, they do have phone support. They just have to call you. You can't call them. Lo and behold, I was on hold waiting to talk to a supervisor. So I waited, and it took some time, but someone came on, and he helped me, and this is what they agreed to. They agreed to submit a complaint about the merchant. They agreed to instantly give me full credit for this return before I even return it, and they agreed to give me additional credit in the amount that is the difference between that and the price it was being sold by a different merchant so I could rebuy with a different merchant without it costing me any money out of pocket. Exactly what I was asking for the whole time. The supervisor understood this on the first try. I explained it to them very quickly. They said yes. They agreed to all of this. It was done, and I ordered the new item. 
success. But had I used the bot, no way. Had I counted on Santiago, no way. So how do you get the rep? You type representative when you chat with a bot. If the rep can't help you, say, can I have a supervisor call me, please? If they deny that uh, one can, tell them this has been done before for someone you know. But if they refuse to have the supervisor call, just say, okay, have them get on chat. But it seems to be their protocol that once you ask for a supervisor, they automatically will be calling you, not just uh, chatting with you. So that is a way to get someone on the phone from Amazon if necessary. But don't give these people in chat very long. I gave Santiago too long. I, I didn't give him that long, but I, I should have just like right away when he was acting a little sketchy just said, okay, I'd like the supervisor, please. But I, I, I was navigating through this. I didn't know the process yet. Next time, I'm just going to go real fast to the supervisor. I'm going to tell him real fast what I want. If I get anything that seems confused or, or uncooperative, I will say, okay, have a supervisor call me, please. And boom, we'll get the call. And we'll get this done. So they're just they're just kind of putting a lot of space between the customer and the supervisor, uh, where it's not just something you can call up and get now. You have to have them call you. You have to go through the process, and they don't tell people about it. So this way they can hire a lot fewer people in the phone center because Amazon is just getting cheap. And they, they, maybe they don't want to staff big call centers because of the coronavirus. I don't know, but... They could do this from home. They could have these reps working from home. It doesn't make any sense why there aren't phone reps. Like, like on the surface, some of these things would make sense. Oh, it's during coronavirus times. There's no phone reps. Why aren't there? Why, why can't they have phone reps? Why can't they have people working from home and having these calls routed to the, the homes where these uh, reps live? Why can't they hire more of them? They're doing great here at Amazon now. Like, it doesn't make any sense, but that's how you get one. Now, to answer Jeff Dimes' question... This is actually uh, something that was mentioned to me in the same thread where I mentioned this on Poker Fraud Alert by Spit This, not Split This, but Spit This, said that there is a policy which is still in place to get a $5 courtesy credit for any shipping delay. So I asked Spit This, well, what qualifies as a shipping delay? I thought everything's delayed these days. And he said, anything that is delayed from what you're originally quoted. So yes, while you can't expect something in two days now like you used to with Amazon Prime, Whatever they say the quote is for the shipping date you're going to receive it, if they exceed that, then they technically have a delay and they will credit you $5. So um, he says that um, all you have to do is start a chat and uh, tell them that uh, this is late and that you know that there's a policy to give a $5 courtesy credit for any late shipped order. And they will. So just quickly go over there into that chat in the same way. And just uh, you don't have to go through the whole phone thing like I did there. Just uh, ask Santiago or whoever else, whoever else comes on uh, that this has come late and uh, that you'd like the $5 credit that you know is the policy and and you'll get it. And it, it should be for each order. In fact, you can do this. I don't know if they'll do this twice in one chat. So you may want to do two chats. So this way you get uh, $10. But uh, claim some of that Bezos money before he gets married again and divorced again and his wife takes uh, another $36 billion. So get some of that money yourself if they're late. And that's their policy, but you're not doing anything dishonest. You're just uh, claiming what is rightfully yours from their policy. Okay, let's move on 
to a weird story about a rock, paper, scissors bet and a court case about it. I don't know if there's ever been a court case about rock, paper, scissors, but there is now, and there has been one, and it's been ruled upon. The Quebec Court of Appeal has ruled that a $500,000 debt from a 2011 rock, paper, scissors game is invalid. Edmund Mark Hooper was the loser of rock, paper, scissors, which for those of you that don't know, I'm sure most of you do, that's where you do a sign with your hand. You put the hand behind your back and then you you quickly throw a sign in your hand. A rock is you just make a fist. Paper is you put your hand out straight, uh, opened up, and then scissors is you make uh, a scissors motion. With, you basically stick out two figures look like scissors. And uh, scissors beats the paper, paper beats the rock, and rock beats, beats the scissors. So if you end up throwing the same one, you tie. I never understood in the practical application of the game, how a paper beats the rock. I was told that, that the paper crumples itself over the rock, but how does that hurt the rock any? The rock doesn't breathe. What, the paper suffocates the rock that doesn't breathe. It doesn't make much sense, but I guess the paper has to win some way and it's not going to beat the scissors. The rock beating the scissors makes sense. The rock can break the scissors by, by banging on it hard enough and the scissors, the paper is obvious, but the, the paper and the, the rock I've got a problem with. Anyway, Edwin, Edmund Mark Hooper had a problem with the rock, paper, scissors game because he lost half a million dollars. And this game took place in January 2011. Edmund Mark Hooper felt at the time that uh, if he does best of three, then, hey, he only has to win two of them. Then even if he loses one, he's still got a chance to win. It still didn't work out. Michel or Mikel, I don't know. uh, Michel, I I don't know how you say this name. It's a French name. M-I-C-H-E-L. Uh, Michel Primeau, this is a, a another male, by the way, beat Edmund Mark Hooper in this game. And he won uh, actually uh, $517,000, more than $500,000 in this bet. Believe it or not, Edmund Mark Hooper actually took out a mortgage on his house to pay off the debt for losing rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> Can you imagine going to the bank? Yeah, like a mortgage on my home. Okay, sir, uh, can you please tell us uh, why are you taking out this mortgage? Uh, yes, I, I lost a rock, paper, scissors game, but it was a best of three, so it's okay. Okay, sir, this is most peculiar, but all right. So yeah, he, he actually took out a mortgage on his home to pay a debt. And there was a notarized contract that said that this was a valid debt and that he would take out this mortgage if he lost. So they played a best of three game in January 2011 for $517,000 for a, uh, a rock, paper, scissors wager. Well, Quebec law stated that or states that a wagering contract can only be valid if it relates to activities requiring only skill or bodily exertion on the part of the parties rather than chance 
and the amount wagered must not be excessive. So what do they mean by that? Skill or bodily exertion? Well, let's say I wanted to bet someone in Quebec that I could beat them in one-on-one basketball. And I say, I'm a tall guy, but I can beat you. You're a few inches shorter than me. I'm going to have the rebound advantage, and I'm I'm going to crush you here. And we bet $100 Canadian dollars, and then I lost. Well, that would be a valid wager because there's no luck involved. It's, It's skill of whether you win the game or not. I suppose you could say there's some luck in whether your baskets go in, but really it has to do with the the way you shoot the basketball. So uh, if I were to lose that, I would owe the $100. Why? Because it requires skill or bodily exertion, in this case both, and the wager of 100 Canadian dollars would not be excessive, especially because the Canadian dollar is worth crap. But even if it was worth a real dollar, like the U.S. dollar, it would still not be excessive at 100 bucks, But the amount wagered here of $517,000 was definitely considered excessive. And Superior Court Justice Chantel Chantelaine found that rock, paper, scissors is not simply a game of luck, that it could be uh, a call upon the skill of the parties. That he's, They're saying that, uh, she said that the skill of the party, such as the speed of execution, the sense of observation, or the putting in place of a strategic sequence, could make this into a skill game rather than just the luck of what symbol you throw. Now, this is true. There, there was a rock-paper-scissors simulator that was run by AI online that, from watching how you would choose your rock-paper-scissors, this is just an online thing you do against a bot, the bot, by watching the way you're choosing rock, paper, or scissors, would figure out patterns in your head that you didn't know existed, and then it would throw whatever it thought it would throw you'd throw next that could, it could beat you. And I thought, come on, it can't do that. Well, it did. It was beating me every time. Now, it, maybe it could have been cheating, because uh, I have no idea if it's if it's acting fairly, because it's a program I can't see what's running on the other end. But provided it was running fairly, which I'm guessing it probably was, it it must have noticed in my uh, playing of the game, there must be some similarities to patterns other people picked, and that my thought process must have been similar to others it had played before who it had learned from, and it learned what I was most likely to choose next. It didn't get it right every single time, but it beat me pretty handily. It, It wasn't like super close. So there were there were a few times I beat it and a number of times I tied it, which means it made the wrong guess. But there were it beat me more than I beat it, and I, I tried this a lot of times and I couldn't beat it. So I thought that was interesting. I I wish the thing was still up, but I last time I looked it was down. Anyway, there there is skill in rock paper scissors, it, and AI would do it best because after it gets experience playing enough humans and can analyze them all, it can really learn from different patterns where a human can't, but uh, th- there is some skill in it. They used to have a rock, paper, scissors competition, like right before the main event at the World Series of Poker. I never participated in it, but there were some who did. I, I don't think they have this anymore. Anyway, uh, this judge, Chantal Chantelaine, agreed that this is a skill game, but she invalidated the contract because the amount wagered was excessive. So she said that violated Quebec law. Even if the game's of skill, you can't wager a massive sum of money, which over a half million dollars, even a half million Canadian dollars, is considered excessive. Well, 
the appeals court, because this, this was appealed, uh, the appeals court reached a slightly different conclusion in a ruling that was just published on April 17th. They actually decided that it does... Uh, that uh, the game does have luck. Chantal Chantelaine said, uh, there's no luck at all. This is really uh, a skill game under what she calls precise circumstances, which I guess what she means is for a skilled player, it's not just luck. If it's two people who don't know what they're doing, you're just throwing random uh, rock, paper, scissors signs, then yes, it's luck. But if, if there's a skilled player... Uh, then there's no luck at all. This is actually someone who's uh, who's good at recognizing what to throw. So the appeals court says what I actually agree with is that there is some luck, but there uh, th- there is some skill. Uh, so it, they said it seems evident that the game also involves a large part of chance, so it, it does not take only skill or bodily exertion on the part of the parties. So they actually disagreed and said that since it's not only skill or bodily exertion, that uh, it's not the same as like a, a contest of playing somebody in uh, in basketball or even like something in, like chess, which doesn't require bodily exertion, but it's still skill. There's no luck in chess. But the court still upheld the fact that the wager was excessive, so the other part was kind of moot. Because it's it's either valid or invalid, and the excessive wager already made it invalid, which the appeals court agreed. So the second part was moot anyway. So that was the end of that, and it looks like that Edmund Mark Hooper gets to keep his money, and he gets to keep his home, and he doesn't have a mortgage on it, and he's not a very good rock paper scissors player, and he's a bet welcher, but he gets to keep his money. Kind of an asshole thing to do, though. Because you know if Edmund Mark Hooper won, he would be demanding to be paid. Do you think he would have forgiven the debt if uh, Michel Primo could not pay him? No. So it's it's one of these things where he was a total sore loser and said, what, did I really just waste $517,000 on rock, paper, scissors, and I got a mortgage in my house? Oh, my God, what did I do? You know what? Screw it. I'm not paying. Like That's a dick thing to do. Don't Don't make a bet like that. It's a stupid bet. It's a reckless bet, but don't make a bet like that if you're not going to pay. If you're going to make a bet like that and you're going to sign a contract and you try to get out of it, you're a dick. I'm sorry. You're a dick. That's that's a real asshole thing to do. In fact, uh, who knows if Edmund Mark Hooper wasn't trying to scam him and free roll him. That If he lost, he was going to refuse to pay. And if he won, then uh, he would demand that he get paid. So believe me, I'm not happy with this decision. I, I was hoping he'd have to pay up, but he did not. So be careful with these rock, paper, scissors games. Don't don't play for half a million dollars. I know some of you are considering it, but don't. Well, when this is all over, maybe you're going to want to go to Bally's. I'm not talking about Bally's Las Vegas. Maybe you want to go there too, but maybe you're going to want to go to Bally's Atlantic City. And use your total rewards card, earn some tier credits, maybe use your rewards credits to go to one of the restaurants there. Well, don't bother, because Bally's Atlantic City has been sold and is no longer going to be a total rewards property when it reopens. 
So uh, this was done with a specific purpose in mind. It has nothing to do with the coronavirus closure. So it is closed right now, but it has nothing to do with why the sale was made. The sale would have happened either way. And it was part of a sale of three casinos, but the other two are owned by El Dorado Gaming. El Dorado sold two casinos at the same time to the same company. One is called Mont Blue in Lake Tahoe. And the other one is called El Dorado in Shreveport. So yes, they have a casino called El Dorado. They have several of them. And El Dorado Gaming is the owner. Caesars and El Dorado Gaming are going to be merging, as you guys have known. And that's still on, despite the fact that these casinos are closed right now due to the coronavirus. The merger is still uh, pending approval. It's a $17.3 billion merger. The Caesars name will be retained, but El Dorado will actually be in control. A company you probably haven't heard of called Twin Rivers bought these three casinos. It's called Twin Rivers Worldwide Holdings. It's based in uh, Rhode Island, and they actually do own two casinos in Rhode Island, and uh, they own various other casinos around the country. Not that many, but they own... uh, Properties as well in uh, Colorado, Delaware, and Mississippi. I think the Colorado thing's only a racetrack. The uh, Delaware and Mississippi are real casinos they own. So Twin Rivers bought these three properties. They bought Bally's Atlantic City for $25 million, and the Mont Blue in Tahoe and El Dorado Shreveport, they paid $155 million combined for those two. Uh, these were two separate sales. One was to El Dorado and the other was to Caesar. Or one was from El Dorado, one was from Caesars. Both went to Twin Rivers. All three of these will be now part of uh, the Twin Rivers ownership group. And uh, these will cease to be part of the rewards programs for these respective companies, which, which by the way, once they merge, they're going to merge rewards programs and it'll all be total rewards or what is right now called Caesars rewards. But these sold casinos are not going to be part of that anymore. This is different than a lot of these sales that you've been seeing recently, including the Rio, where there's a sale, but there's not going to be an immediate change. And then there's other sales that have been taking place that are really real estate sales, but not casino management sales, which means the customer doesn't see any difference, where it's just a matter of who actually owns the land and the buildings. But uh, the casino is still uh, managed and run and rented out by the same company you were familiar with before, which means the customer notices no difference. This is a real sale where these properties are just completely leaving the ownership and management of uh, Caesars and El Dorado. Why are they doing this? Why are they getting rid of them? It's, it had nothing to do with the coronavirus. You, you, you would think, okay, they're trying to get leaner as they're losing money during the coronavirus. And that's not why this would have happened anyway. Remember this merger between El Dorado, which owned a lot of casinos, and Caesars, which, of course, owns uh, a lot of casinos. There's concern that the merger will not be allowed, will not be approved by regulators if it creates a super dominant company that dominates in certain markets to where it appears like they've become a casino monopoly. So in order to get this merger approved, they have to sell some existing properties where they will be overrepresented once they combine. One of these markets is Atlantic City. The problem is that there are only nine existing casinos in Atlantic City, 
And uh, once they were to do this merger, they would own four of them, meaning that they'd have almost half the properties in Atlantic City, and they were afraid that this would make uh, regulators uncomfortable. So they decided to get rid of Bally's. Similarly, since they since Lake Tahoe is a smaller market, and since uh, Caesars already has uh, properties there with uh, Harris and Harvey's, that uh, there was a fear if they also had Mont Blue, it would be seen like they were too dominant dominant in the Tahoe area, especially because they they also have properties in Reno. Uh, Harris already got rid of their Reno property. So that's that's a Caesar's property. Obviously, they they already got rid of that, and then the ha, Reno's only an, uh, an hour from Tahoe, so it's considered the same market. And uh, because El Dorado Gaming is Reno based, they they have other properties there in Reno. So they 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 had to get rid of uh, at least one more property in that area. So that's why Mont Blue is is being let go of, and then. Uh, the El Dorado and Shreveport. I don't know as much about Shreveport, but uh, that was sold for the same reason. So, so basically, they they are trying to appeal to regulators that hey, we're not too dominant. We're not going to have a monopoly anywhere. We're selling where we've gained dominance in any market from the fact that we're merging. So, don't worry about that. So, uh, the board of direct, the chairman of the board of directors of uh, Twin River said this, this is a great deal for Twin River and diversifies our businesses across eight states. It reaffirms our commitment to employers, customers, and the communities in which we operate that the Twin River will be stronger than ever. I don't know why they're talking about eight states. This is only involving three states. They're probably talking about where they have properties in total now, but that's kind of a confusing statement. The sale of Bally's is thought to be the most important of all of these. That is believed to be the piece that might have upset regulators the most had it not been done because of the fact that they would own four of nine casinos there. This does create a bit of a awkward issue there in Atlantic City. Wild Wild West, which is uh, a separate casino but owned by Caesars, was connected directly to Bally's. And uh, before that was very convenient because they were both Caesar's properties. Now they're not going to be anymore. So they're, they're going to be connected and yet they actually uh, are different owners and it's a completely different uh, system now. So that's going to just have to be dealt with. I, I assume they're going to leave them connected. This has been something they've been doing in Atlantic City to try to prevent people from going out onto the boardwalk to have to walk between casinos and maybe get distracted to go do other things. They want to keep people indoors in the casinos, and uh, they've been connecting properties that uh, are owned by the same companies. But but here, the connection is going to be between two competing casinos now. Wild Wild West and Bally's will be the competition. However, interestingly enough... Caesars will maintain control of the sports book in Bally's, despite the fact that they don't own Bally's anymore. So that's the one thing they will maintain in Bally's is the sports book. They're going to run it, and everything else will be under the control of Twin River. So that, uh, and I, I think the the borders of each casino is going to they're they're going to be it's going to be more obvious when you walk between them when you've actually gone from 
Wild Wild West into Bally's, whereas before it was kind of ambiguous because it was the same ownership, so who cares? But now it's going to have to be more obvious. Uh, I'm not sure when this officially takes place, but it is a done deal. It doesn't really matter because none of these are open, so it's not like you have to worry about uh, when this change is going to occur. There are still plenty of Caesars properties in Atlantic City, of course. Uh, Three of the nine properties there remain uh, Caesars properties even before this merger. So that uh, that is what uh, they're going to be. That's what they're going to be. Actually, it's it's going to be uh, two Caesars properties, one El Dorado property. But still, you know, they're going to they still have Caesars and uh, and Harris there in Atlantic City at the moment, and then there will be that uh, third property currently owned by El Dorado that will join in Atlantic City. So that's interesting that it appears that not only is Bally's Atlantic City gone, which has been uh, part of the Caesars empire for a while, but the other thing is that it shows they really are still serious about the murder. It's not just lip service that even with everything happening to the coronavirus, they're full speed ahead with this. I wasn't sure before when they said it's still on if they just were saying that, but if they were really rethinking it. No, if, if they sold these properties, they really do want to go through with this. So they, they really do think they're going to come out of this. It's, it's a weird time to be doing any of these types of transactions with casinos when they can't even open, but I guess the casino owners are thinking, hey, we're, we're going to open. It'll happen. Just got to wait it out. There's another weird Caesars connection to all this that you may not be thinking of. You might remember a Caesars Lake Tahoe. Do you remember Caesars Lake Tahoe? What happened to that? Why don't you hear about Caesars Lake Tahoe anymore? Because there is no Caesars Lake Tahoe anymore. There was. There was a Caesars Lake Tahoe for a long time, but it doesn't exist, at least not in name anymore. So do you think Caesars Lake Tahoe became Harrah's or Harvey's Lake Tahoe? which are currently Caesars properties? The answer is no. Caesars Lake Tahoe actually became what is now known as Mont Blue, which is now one of the properties being sold, which could have become a Caesars property again. So Caesars could have been Caesars again. Had, if they didn't get rid of Mont Blue, which, which wasn't unexpected, by the way. It was expected they were going to sell something in Tahoe, and it was thought that Mont Blue was the one that was the highest chance to go for various reasons, but had they kept Mont Blue, which I think they would have kept if they didn't worry about the problem with the regulators, then it actually could have been renamed Caesars Tahoe again. It started off as Park Tahoe in 1978. I had never been to Tahoe at that point. I was only six years old in 1978. In took over Caesars Tahoe with a 25-year lease with the option to extend it another 50 years. So they could have uh, extended that lease that would still be going for decades from now, even though this was a uh, 1979 transaction, which is crazy, a 25-year lease, which would have ended in 2004, and then they could have extended to 2054. 2054 is so far away that... uh, my son Benjamin, who's nine, would be uh, 44 that year. <laughs> He'd be almost as old as I am now, and I had him pretty late in my life. So uh, they 
I don't believe they extended it, but uh, Caesars then uh, completed uh, more construction and the, an expansion of the property in 79 and renamed it Caesars Tahoe Palace, which then became Caesars Tahoe. I only knew it as Caesars Tahoe, and by the way, it was remodeled at the time with a Roman theme. I don't believe I was ever in Caesars Tahoe, but I was going to Tahoe a lot in the mid-80s with my family, and something that was very frustrating to me and made me jealous of Caesars Tahoe, we stayed at Harris all the time, which was not owned by Caesars in the mid-80s, and wouldn't be for another 20 years, but... I remember waiting for the bus to go back from Heavenly Ski Resort to Harrah's. You couldn't just uh, take the gondola back and walk like you can today because that gondola didn't exist. So you would end up at the bottom of the uh, California side, which uh, was still a good distance away from the uh, entrance of, of Harrah's. It wasn't something you could walk. There was a California base and a Nevada base. The Nevada base was very far. That was actually farther than the California base from Harris. So you'd, you'd go to the base of the California side and then have to take a bus back to wherever hotel you were staying. And these, these were free shuttles, but you'd have to stand and wait for them. And after you're skiing the whole day and you're cold, the last thing you feel like doing is standing, 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 waiting for a freaking bus. But that's what I had to do because that's the way it was at the time. And so many Caesars buses came, and I was like, why can't we be staying at Caesars? Why does Harris have such a crappy bus that comes like once every half hour, and I'm seeing one from Caesars every 10 minutes? It really was like three Caesars buses for every one Harris bus. I never did make it into Caesars Tahoe when it was called Caesars. I, I eventually went inside when it was Mont Blue, though I never stayed there. In 2006, it became Mont Blue. Uh, Caesars as you know it today, was the ownership. They were the owner of it, and uh, they sold it in 2005, and uh, it became Mont Blue in uh, 2006 when it got rebranded by the new owners. So that's, that's the history of Mont Blue, and it stayed Mont Blue. I don't know if it's going to change names, but Mont Blue is the old Caesars, in case you're wondering what happened to Caesars Tahoe. So I always thought it was funny that the two remaining Caesars properties in Lake Tahoe, neither of them were Caesars Tahoe. And at the time, not only was Harris not merged with Caesars yet, so it was separate, but Harvey's was not uh, associated with Harris. Harvey's uh, was a separate hotel that I've talked about before on this show, actually got bombed. A, uh, a, a guy was trying to extort money out of them and and actually said he had a bomb there if they didn't pay him, and, and he blew up the bomb. Uh, everybody evacuated, so he didn't kill anybody, but he did cause uh, substantial damage by uh, by bombing Harvey's uh, Lake Tahoe in 1980. And uh, later on, I'm not sure when, uh, Harvey's became part of the Caesars Empire, and then they were connected underground to where now you can uh, go through a tunnel and never get on the street and go between Harris and Harvey's. In fact, that's what I did during uh, New Year's of this uh, year 2020, not knowing what was waiting for us on the other side of 2020. I just thought it was the start of a new decade. I didn't know what would be happening. I didn't know what was waiting for us this year. Strange thinking back to that weekend. Actually, a poker fraud listener there was, was with me. 
know what any of you know, but he was with me there, and I'm sure he's uh, very surprised about the way this all turned out as well. All right, uh, let me move on to our second-to-last topic, and that is about Mansion Online Casino, known as uh, Mansion Bet, is under fire for offering VIP incentives for UK customers that have a recurring unemployment check, that once they've identified these people, that they're giving them incentives to deposit their unemployment check into Mansion. Now, I had to learn a bit about UK unemployment. I, I always learn these new things when I see stories about gambling in other countries because I had really not thought about unemployment in the way that's operated in countries besides the US. Like, like why would I have a reason to think about that? But I got to learn about it today because I was seeing terms I didn't understand, and then I had to uh, research it to go forth to understand this. So uh, let me explain what is happening with with Mansion. But uh, before I explain the exact story that's happening with Mansion, let me tell you about redundancy. Actually, I won't tell you about redundancy. I'm going to have a, a friend tell you about redundancy who knows more about uh, redundancy. Uh, Colonel, can you help me here? All right, uh, if, if I must. All right, so um, hello, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. I know you haven't heard me a while here, but uh, for, for whatever reason, um, Dan Druff here, when when I want to make prank phone calls, he says, no, 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 we're not doing that uh, very much anymore. That, that's kind of a thing of the past, and I, I'm almost 50 years old. I think I'm done with prank phone calls. And I said... Well, what the bloody hell am I going to do on your show if I'm not going to make prank calls? It's all, all the only entire utilization of me on your program is uh, for me to make prank phone calls. And if I'm not going to use the tally in that fashion, uh, why do you even need me at all? And and he could not answer me, so he said, "All right, Colonel, then you're just not going to appear. We're just not going to have you. Off you go." And and I was I was most unhappy with this, and uh, so so later on we have a discussion about the matter, and, and he said, "All right, I'll have you on on uh, segments which are about the UK." And I said, "All right, this is not quite uh, what I had in mind, but uh, if I must, I must." So so here I am. All right, so um, I want to tell you about redundancy pay now now. I'm sure you Yanks have no idea what, what redundancy pay is. Uh, to you, that's uh, a nonsense term. What is redundancy? Redundancy sounds like something negative. It sounds like you're redundant. You're not needed. Well, in a way, it's true. So what you know as unemployment, there's something similar here in the UK known as redundancy. All right, And uh, I'm going to tell you how it works. So if you're an employee and you've been working for your current employer for two years or more, then you're entitled to something called um, redundancy pay. All right. So redundancy pay, you get half a week's pay for each full year that uh, you were working there for when you were under 22. And the reason they're doing this, the reason they're delineating how much you're going to get to pay, based upon your age is because they figure if, if you're working a, 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 as a lad, that uh, there's only so much money you need, you know, because it's not as, as great of a tragedy if you get laid off. When, when most of the time you're working, that you were allowed and you didn't really need the money to support a family. That's, that's the theory behind this, uh, this law. But anyway, uh, half a week's pay for each year that you're, that you were working there while, while you're under 22 years of age. And, um, once you were 22 or older, but under 41 years of age, 
then you get one week's pay for each full year you were working there. And then if you are 41 or older, you get one and a half weeks pay for each full year that uh, you are 41 or older. And uh, the length of service, however, is capped at 20 years. So if you work somewhere for um, 60 years, you're, you're not going to get um, over years redundancy pay. It doesn't work like that. So, so, so the most you're going to get is, uh, is, is a check uh, every week for up to 20 weeks, depending upon uh, how many years you work there. So um, also the maximum redundancy pay you can get is uh, 16,140 pounds. And the most you can get um, uh, per week is uh, uh, if, if you were made redundant uh, after April 6, which is a rather recent change in the law, uh, the most you can get is uh, 538 pounds. And this is, this is uh, by the way, the, the, when I say the most you can get, I, I was referring to the uh, the most you can get based upon uh, those who were laid off uh, after April 6th due to coronavirus matters. But we're, we're not going to discuss coronavirus uh, redundancy here because that's not uh, really the point of this whole thing. So anyway, um, the, the exceptions to this, you're not entitled to redundancy pay if um, your employer says that they're going to keep you on and you say, no, 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 that's all right, I'll, I'll stay unemployed, then they're, they're not going to give you the redundancy pay. Or if you're given uh, alternative work to work, if, if your position's been eliminated, but they give you something which judged as a something that's deemed as suitable alternative work, and you say no, 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 this is beneath me, I refuse to do it, um, then again, you're not entitled to redundancy pay. Now, when they say suitable alternative work, they they can't move you from the executive uh, of an executive job down to a janitor, but. Um, it, it, can you believe this? I'm, I'm getting a message on Skype. Uh, who, who are these listeners you have here? I, I, I have a bloke who's who, named Stephen. I'm not going to say his last name. But, but he actually has the nerve to, to send you a message on Skype here. And he's saying um, he has the nerve to correct me as if I don't know living in the UK. As, the, as if this is something I don't know. Um, he says, uh, re- regarding redundancy in the UK, you're somewhat right. Uh, that's the government minimum you're going to, you're going over. Uh, good companies can offer superior packages. Um, uh, Stephen, you didn't give me time to finish, all right? So, so when I'm done speaking, you are very welcome to come forth and say, all right, Nigel, you, you don't know what the bloody hell you're talking about here, and you've, you've got it incorrect. But, but uh, as long as I'm giving you the lecture here about redundancy play, pay, please let me complete what I'm trying to tell here before, before sending me these clarifications. And he says, my sincerest apologies. Okay. So I suppose I can, I can let this slide. All right. So, so, um, yes, but he is correct that the, the, a good company, um, can actually give you a, a package, a redundancy package that is superior, that these, uh, um, these are maximums, which the, the companies must adhere to, but uh, that they, they are allowed to set, they are allowed to set these maximums, Regardless of what your pay is, but that the company is welcome to go over is what he's trying to say. And I, and I was going to get to this, all right? So uh, I, I hate when people uh, accuse me of, of, of being incorrect uh, when I, I know it's like the back of my hand. So um, – and, and there's a reason I'm, I'm giving you this, this whole explanation here because there's a reason you need to know all this because it has to do with this mansion story, with, which is apparently uh, relevant enough to discuss on, on a U.S.-based poker show for, for reasons unknown. So all right. So um, so this redundancy pay, you're, you're getting this every week. And, uh, and as, as Stephen pointed out, it, it doesn't have to be th- this relatively low maximum of, uh, of 538 pounds 
per week, it, it can be substantially more. So, so let's get back to the mansion situation. All right. I, I know that I was not tasked with actually discussing the mansion situation, but, but now that I'm here, I figure I might as well get on with it and, and, and not bring Dandruff back to, to talk about matters of which he's unfamiliar. All right. So, so, so here's what happened. Um, the Guardian, which is, um, a newspaper here, and they also do, uh, uh, online work in the UK. And let, let me, let me tell you about the Guardian, by the way. You know, you, when you attempt to go to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, the LA Times, what, do you typically find after you visited them more than a few times in a given month? What, what, what do you typically run into with those publications? You, you know what you run into? You run into a paywall. The paywall says you must pay us um, a dollar per month or perhaps more or, or otherwise you cannot read this. Now, there are shenanigans ways that uh, that you can um, scoot around this and, and uh, be able to read the content nonetheless. But uh, if, if you do not have that technical capability, uh, you are forced to pay to read this content. Now, The Guardian, um, being the quality UK publication it is, says, we're not going to charge you. Um, we're going to give all of our articles for free with no paywall. And then at the end, we're going to give you the opportunity to donate to us if you feel that our content has been helpful. And, the, and, and that's the way it should be done. Uh, but uh, that's the way the, 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 the states just choose just to be greedy and say you're not going to read our content. And in fact, I, I hate to go on a tangent here. But um, you know what I find to be bloody ridiculous is that the New York Times says, oh, well, we're not going to charge people to read content during the coronavirus pandemic. So since much of our content is about coronavirus issues, uh, we're not going to have the nerve to charge you to read about this important information. So we're going to take down the paywall. So then you attempt to go read this content, and indeed there's the paywall. Well, indeed – you can read it for free, but you have to sign up for their mailing list first and register in order to read these articles that are supposedly so important about the coronavirus. <laughs> so, so here the New York Times is saying, oh, no, 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 we want you to access this information. It's so important. We're doing a public service. And oh, no, no, but we need your information so we can spam you adver- advertisements here uh, till the end of time. So, so nothing's really free with them. It's not like The Guardian. They don't need to know who the hell you are, what your deal is. Um, you can just go there and read anything you want, and there's no, no restrictions at all. So, so anyway, let's get back to this, uh, this Guardian uh, investigation, which is making this entire segment possible. Otherwise, uh, no one would know of this matter. So The Guardian is investigating a customer, uh, a customer report, a customer named Matt, who's 44 years old, uh, reported to The Guardian that MansionBet, which is an online casino in the UK, that uh, they are giving away free play provided that the customer deposits a large chunk of his redundancy payment into Mansion. So Matt claimed to The Guardian that um, he was given his own VIP manager and the VIP manager called him 26 times and offered free play and uh, football tickets for higher deposits and um, and good social media reviews. But then it was shown that um, they called Matt when he deposited um, – 8,000 pounds, which is worth um, almost 10,000 U.S. dollars. And no- notice how the U.S. dollar is worth less than the, the uh, British pound, by the way. I just, just want to point that out, that the, the dollar has far been worth, has long, for a very long time, been worth less than the British pound. So the, the sterling really is the, the, the sterling standard. And uh, at one point it was worth 
to U.S. dollars back in the mid-2000s, which I, I personally feel it should still be. But uh, nonetheless, um, Matt, a degenerate gambler that he is, deposited uh, 8,000 pounds, and uh, he showed that he was re- receiving a large redundancy check and uh, to, to prove that he could afford to make such deposits. The VIP manager then gave him uh, an additional 100 pounds of free play, which which isn't very large, to be honest. I don't see what the big deal is that um, he's being given 100 pounds free play for an 8,000-pound deposit. So that by itself is, is, is rather foolish. However, um, in order to get this 100-pound bonus, as well as uh, uh, some football tickets and, and some other free bets uh, – he was told that uh, he needed to show a copy of his redundancy statement to qualify. And um, he said that he had other income streams that would allow him to put down even more money. And interestingly, they were not interested in checking upon that. The, the thing they really wanted to see was the redundancy st- statement. They They wanted to see that he was really getting a rather large redundancy check and that he was going to be getting several of them. So it turned out that uh, the the newspaper obtained some telephone recordings. I don't know how they managed this, but uh, the the Guardian obtained some telephone recordings where this VIP manager was heard saying that uh, that that he could tell the responsible gaming department, which they must have over there, uh, that Matt was managing his settlement responsibly and that he had other work. So so basically, they took his word for it that he was had other income and purposely didn't try to verify it, hoping that um, if they took his word for it, that even if it wasn't true, that this would be enough to satisfy their responsible gaming requirements, where in re- reality they were just trying to take uh, every bit of his redundancy check that they could. In addition, um, it, it showed that um, when they were looking at Matt's account – the, the Guardian noticed that he was constantly asking for free play and canceling withdrawals. So whenever he'd win and he'd start to lose again, he'd say, oh, you know what? This withdrawal I, 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 I submitted, I, please cancel that and put the money back in my account. So he was showing all kinds of signs of problem gaming, including the canceling withdrawals to continue gambling more to where it looked like he was uh, rarely actually receiving money from them. Um, Mansion Bet continued to give him VIP offers. And uh, he was asked to leave a review on a website called Trustpilot, and, uh, and then he got more, more he got more free play as a thanks for what they said was his rave review. <laughs> and uh, the Guardian also saw that uh, the manager wrote to him, "If you deposit a further three thousand pounds, I will give you five hundred dollars in free uh, five hundred pounds in free bets." I don't know why I said dollars; it's rather foolish of me. And um, they they also said that uh, if he lost more, he would be entitled to larger amounts of financial incentives. These were all issues here, and uh, there is a current investigation going on as a result of uh, what the Guardian unearths. And uh, at the moment, the uh, UK Gaming Commission is uh, looking into this as well, but there's no talk as far as uh, what is going to occur here. They say that they're going to uh, issue a statement declaring that uh, they're going to be 
consulting on additional findings due to repeated failings in VIP practices. Um, the Gaming Commission is, is basically still looking into it. So th- this is rather reprehensible that they're actually targeting those who have redundancy payments coming and giving them extra money if, if they can find it and purposely not checking that they have other income besides that so to get around the responsible gaming uh, provisions. Because if they say this is someone who's just uh, depositing almost their whole redundancy check, then they would be considered in violation of responsible gaming. If they say, oh, well, he has additional income, then that's not the violation unless they don't seem to be uh, checking it responsibly, which, which they were not. That's the end of that story, and I'm going to turn this back over to to Dandruff there, and uh, he can do the rest of the program. I don't think there's much left here. Uh, which, uh, n- Not that that he should be expected to do much, and let's face it, he, he, he's been talking nonstop for, what, like eight hours or so? And you'd like to think he got a break here, but I, th- I think we all know he really got no break during the segment. Isn't this true? Yeah, it's true. It is true. I got no break. It, I, I got to rest my voice, but it feels like I've been talking the whole time. So thank you, Colonel Fabersham. And uh, we're going to move on to our final topic about Gigi Poker and Elkie, Bertrand Grospelier. So Gigi Poker is rapidly growing and rapidly becoming relevant in the world of online poker. And they are now taking the old poker stars model of signing well-known pros to represent the site, something that poker stars has been getting away from since they were bought by Amaya, now called the Stars Group. Uh, they determined that this big roster of pros was a big waste of money, and they were letting them go one by one, eventually letting go of Negranu, who was the face of the site for a long time. Uh Negranu, Elki, uh, Boris Becker, they were all poker, sto- poker Stars pros at one point, and now all of them are GG Poker pros. GG Poker does not have a gigantic roster of pros, but they seem to be going in that direction. They seem to be seeing value, at least in big-name pros representing the site. Uh, Boris Becker and Elki were just recently signed, uh, Boris Becker, obviously a big tennis star of the past, and uh, he has name recognition uh, far outside of poker. He's not really known for poker at all. But uh, So they signed him, and, uh, and they signed Elki, who is uh, known both for his poker play and for his uh, online gaming, such as games like uh, StarCraft and WarCraft, where he's uh, done very well in esports. Elki is 39 years old and uh, he his best finish at the main event is not even as good as my best finish his was uh, in 2009 he finished 122nd I almost bested that in 2019 with 128th in fact uh, if you compare it to the field size I did a little bit better I also finished 88th in 2010 and Elkie's never done that however Elkie has two bracelets and I don't so I'm jealous of that he has one poker t- World Poker Tour title and two final tables, and I have none. He also has a European Poker Tour, an EPT title, and two final tables, and 18 caches, and I have none. 
He also has 47 World Series of Poker caches, and I have 30. So, okay, Elky, you win. But I also don't have any uh, gaming titles. I, I, I'm not a, a good StarCraft or WarCraft player. And he's uh, nine years younger than me. Okay, so I'm a bit jealous. But Elky has signed with GG Poker as a sponsored pro. And uh, and that's obviously a nice windfall for him since he just basically gets free money. Being a sponsored pro is a great deal, provided you're not representing a scam site, which GG Poker isn't. I don't like all their policies, but they're not a scam site. It's a legitimate network. It's not U.S.-facing, but it is uh, legitimate. And Elky now is basically getting free money to represent them. So, so everything seems really good for him. But there is one thing that I'm not jealous of. Elky was diagnosed with the coronavirus. He figured out that he caught it from an Uber driver. I've never liked Uber. I like driving myself. This is one more reason why I don't like Uber. But Elky believes he caught it from an Uber driver. I don't know how he figured this out, but the driver uh, was infected with COVID-19 and now he has it. Now, Elky is 39 years old, as I said, and the, the reason I mentioned that before is that age matters a lot when it comes to the coronavirus and the symptoms that you are likely to feel. And uh, that's another thing I'm jealous of because uh, so far he does not have any symptoms. I don't know why he got tested. There's actually a picture of him on his Twitter, Elky Poker, E-L-K-Y Poker. If you look at his tweet about this, which was on April 17th, at 2.39 p.m. Pacific time, you'll see, actually, he's being tested. You'll see they're, they're putting swabs in his nose while a worker in, uh, like, a full hazmat suit is, is, is taking swabs from him. But uh, I guess it's because he had contact with that driver, so they probably tested him at that point through this contact tracing. And uh, he was tested positive, but he is asymptomatic. The fact that he is 39 is probably a big reason for that. People in their 30s, and I don't have data to back this up, but from what I've observed, like in the poker community, for example, people in their 30s have a much better chance of being asymptomatic than people in their 40s. Now, this doesn't magically change in your 40th birthday, but every day that... uh, you get closer to 40 and past 40 and closer to 50, it looks like you're going to be more and more likely to be symptomatic and to have pretty bad symptoms that are going to be uh, very, very unpleasant for you to live with, uh, to say the least, and very scary and uh, awful in many ways. Whereas if you're in your 30s, you have a much better chance of being either asymptomatic or experiencing something pretty mild. So Elky is getting the best of it. He's asymptomatic so far. Now, remember, there is some time that takes place between when you contract the virus and when you actually get symptoms. However, we're not seeing anything from Elky, and it's now over a week later. We're not seeing anything from him that he is symptomatic. 
So I, I have a feeling that he's just not having a problem. I'm scrolling through his Twitter. I'm not seeing anything about uh, him getting worse. So he is self-quarantining. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to be having any difficulty. So I mean, good for him. I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy to hear stories like this. I'd be happier if he was 49 and having no symptoms. I'd go, oh, cool, I have some hope. If I get it, I have some hope. But now I go, no, he's 39, I can't relate to this. It's not that far from my age, but I think for for COVID-19 purposes, 39 and 48 are a very big difference. I think when it comes to getting noticeable symptoms, you have a much higher chance in your mid and late 40s to get symptoms than in your 30s. That's my theory. That's what I've observed anecdotally. And I think that it's something much more to worry about at my age than his. So it's a bad time to be over 45. It's a really bad time to be over 70. And uh, not a great time to be over 60 either. So another reason to be jealous of the young people and even the semi-young people. So Elke uh, continues to run well, where even when he gets the coronavirus... He's asymptomatic, and it looks like he's going to stay asymptomatic. It's one thing when they test you only because you came in contact with someone and they find it's positive, and you go, well, okay, maybe I'm just not showing symptoms yet. But if all these days later, if, if now it's now uh, almost nine days later, if he's not reporting symptoms, he's probably not going to have any. So good for Elke. I'm going to play you uh, the little welcome from GG Poker. He said, I'm happy to announce... GG Poker has recruited me to join my former colleague Daniel Negranu as an ambassador, referring to the fact that he was once a Poker Stars pro. Thanks to everyone for the last two years. Excited to start this new challenge with the fastest growing poker site, which it is, by the way. They're showing they're showing various footage of Alki playing video games and poker. GG Poker. So now they're showing. Various uh, scenic photos of you. Hi, I'm Elki, and I've been playing poker for 15 years. I won a triple crown, which is WPT, EPT, and uh, WSOP, and uh, I also won over 14 million dollars in uh, live tournament winnings. Which yeah, see, that's I'm jealous again. I, I don't have one million dollars. I'm close. I'm really close to one million in cashes. I'm just not quite there. Had the 2020 World Series gone, I think there's a very good chance I was going to get there, but. It's not going to go, so I'm not going to get there. Not this year. Uh, with me for first in the French all-time money list. And before playing poker, I was Takra professional in South Korea for about five years, where I got second place in the World Cyber Games and um, top four in the on-game list Star League for StarCraft and also second place in the on-game list Star League for Warcraft 3. When I was living in South Korea as a pro gamer, I discovered poker and I instantly loved the game and there's a, there's a great link and strong connection between esports and video games and poker, which is why a lot of us started playing poker around the same time. Now, see, I don't agree with that. I mentioned earlier when we talked to Sheets that there there is or not was it sheets no it wasn't it was uh, i'm seeing confusing the conversation and the guests that's why i don't have many interviews here uh, it was with a uh, robbie straczynski about the connection between non-poker games and poker and i mentioned magic as a big one but i don't think video games really have a big connection to poker because video games requires a form of uh, physical skill and and hand-eye coordination there there's 
the, the strategy element of video games is not the same thing as the strategy element in poker. It, it's just very different. And uh, you could be terrible at video games and great at poker and vice versa. I, I'm not seeing that many great video game players like Elky was go over to poker and have big success. I, good for Elky for doing it. I'm glad he, he has such talents that he was able to be a, a great uh, video game player and a great poker player. But uh, there's not many like this. So I, I don't agree with that statement. So lately I've been playing a lot of poker. Last year I was fortunate enough to win my second WSOP bracelet uh, during a Colossus event in the World Series of Poker Europe at King's Casino. And uh, I've been focusing on my game, of course, and uh, as well as trying to be the best ambassador I can. GG Poker is the only online poker site which has all the features you can find uh, when you play live poker. For example, you can, uh, you know, in live I always quiz your cards and you can do the same thing in GG. When you get dealt the hand, but you can also, and it's something you can't do in... Uh, Life poker, uh, of course, is squeeze the river card when you're rolling in a tournament, and that's kind of one of my favorite features. But my favorite feature, I think the best one, is that you can stake players directly on the software, on the uh, GG Poker client. You can stake players and sell pieces of yourself or buy pieces of your favorite players. Yeah, that's a great idea. And in fact, that's actually... I, they didn't steal it from me because I've never vocalized this idea. But uh, I had various innovative ideas for a new poker site, and I was going to unleash them had Phil Galfond been interested in hiring me to uh, work with Run It Once. I didn't reveal what they were because I didn't want to just give away the cow for free. But uh, that was one of the things I had in mind, that people could uh, stake each other through the software. I never told anyone about this, so uh, I guess others thought of it. I didn't think it would be never thought of, but uh, that was one of my ideas. And I, I think it's a great idea, and this is something that's been needed for a long time. So you can uh, – it, it's a win-win for the poker site because uh, people like it, and it gets more action in the games. That's a, that's a great idea. It, it helps everyone. And uh, the squeezing of the cards, the, the, you, you couldn't see in the video, obviously on the radio here, but uh, what you, you're dealt – your hand face down and you actually use the software to lift the cards. That sounds innovative, but it's not. True Poker did this in 2001. True Poker, you could lift your cards and put them back down. Now, it's true you don't squeeze the river card to see you come out on True Poker, but uh, the whole thing of, of like physically picking up cards and, and, and seeing what they are slowly, True Poker invented that a long time ago. But it's not bad that GG brought it back. I'm just... In fact, that was an interesting tell that I liked about True Poker that... Cards were always face down until you lifted them. And like, let's say four of one uh, suit are on the board. If somebody lifts their cards then to look, then you, and then they bet, that means that they uh, either saw they had it or were pretending like they saw they had it. But usually it meant that they were checking to see they had it and like, okay, yes, I have, and they bet. And that's a live tell, of course, when you see a, a fourth card come out and someone goes and quickly looks they have it, or even on the turn when there, there's a potential fourth card to come out. Uh, sometimes I'll forget exactly the suits I have, and I'll go, crap. And I'm like, I, I try to wait for the moment where everybody's looking away <laughs> before I take a look at it, because otherwise it's a big tell. But I will do it sometimes for a false tell. Like if I, uh, if, if I already have the flush, or I already have the nut flush, and then I, I want to make it look like I'm drawing for it, and uh, so this way, if it misses, that uh, then I can check raise them, things like that. So uh, 
anyway, that that's, adds an interesting element to the game. So I'm glad that's back, even though I can't play the software. So uh, that's a really, really cool feature that's like automatically integrated and I think is the best feature. And you can also buy insurance, so you can protect your end from the, those nasty suckouts and bad baits. Now that's interesting. That's one I hadn't thought of before. I, I know there's been some business models trying to give forms of insurance. Like I know there was a bubble insurance you could buy uh, through like third-party companies. I don't know about river insurance, but that 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 is interesting that uh, people can buy river insurance if they're if they're convinced they're constantly getting rivered, they can kind of like uh, switch it over to the poker site to take the brunt of of the river beat. Where basically you're just you're just buying out, or buying out partially, regardless of what the river card is going to be, and you're just you're and it's between you and the poker site. It's basically like selling some of your equity to the poker site, and and not having to depend on the river, and, and uh, provided the commission isn't that high, it, that may actually not be a bad idea if you want to lower the variance in your game because it it can be very frustrating when you're making all the right decisions, especially in no limit. You're making all the right decisions, and then the cards end up uh, screwing you, and and you lose a lot of money. Now, this should average out over time, but uh, if you want to play a a less variance uh, form of the game, that is one way to bring that down by uh, by selling off the variance of the poker site. And the poker site just figures, okay, well, it's going to all break even for us with all these insurance that are being bought. Sometimes we'll get the better end, sometimes we'll get the worse end. So that's interesting, too. They're showing a bunch of scenes of Elky. In a game, you can decide to run it two or three times, just like as you would in a regular live game. And uh, GG Poker is really on the software. Software is the best by far. They have really cool emotes, and you can interact with the opponents. You can see the history you have with the opponents. And uh, not only is it the best and superior to every other software out there, but it gets upgraded every week, so that's uh, that's really great. So with GG Poker, of course, I've been playing a lot on the site, but I will... See, I'm only partially understanding him because he doesn't speak English that clearly. It's not his first language. But uh, I will say that uh, it sounds like he was saying you could also run run it twice or three times if both people agree, which is another cool feature. I mean, the only problem I have with that is it can slow down the game, especially limit games. At no limit games, I guess that's fine because it's only going to happen in, in big pots where both people are all in. But at limit games, that would be really annoying. <laughs> to have people agreeing to run it twice and three times, and it's also the whole process of people deciding whether to agree or not. It's like that—that that would just be brutal in a limit game. I would hate it. But in a no limit game, yeah, that'd be cool. You'll also be focusing on Twitch and interacting with the fan and uh, developing your channel and uh, posting a lot of hands and videos. And I also expect my career to go to the next level with GG being the biggest online poker site in the world and the great partnership that they will have in the future. We're going to have a lot more like uh, online data. I think they're going to be much more uh, prestigious than they ever be. I'm going to get the coronavirus. It just says that uh, GG Poker, uh, I'm going to get the coronavirus, but uh, I run so well that uh, I get no symptoms. I get the best of both worlds. I get uh, immunity and do not have to suffer through symptoms to get the immunity like the rest of you. I mean, this guy just can't run bad. The guy just can't run bad. He got the coronavirus. They said for once the guy's running bad and then he has no symptoms. 
That's like the, the dream scenarios to get the coronavirus and no symptoms. Well, actually, the best scenario is, is to have already had it and not know it. If, when you get it, at least you have to sweat out whether symptoms will show up. So I will say he probably had a week of being really nervous. But now he's probably like, okay, sweet, no symptoms. I'm pr- I, he's not totally out of the woods. He, like, I've heard of symptoms showing up like two weeks in, but he's, he's pretty far out of the woods. If you can go five days from when you know you have it and there's no symptoms, you're in good shape. Five days is like the, the magical number. It's not a guarantee, but you're pretty happy if you've gone five days and there's no symptoms. Let me just say that. This was actually a pretty good video in that he was uh, telling you about different cool things about the site. And it's a lot better than a typical video of just like, hey, I'm a GG poker rep now, like this one. Hello, guys. You know I'm a sportsman, right? But I'm stuck at home like the whole world. What do I do? I started playing poker online with GG Poker in collaboration with King's Casino. Go ahead and start play with me. Sign up now with the bonus code Boom Boom. Boom Boom. To receive <laughs> exclusive benefits. Boom Boom. And challenge me in the next couple of days. Have some fun. That's Boris Becker. Hello, guys. Hello, guys. Now I'm going to play it again. That was Boris Becker's Twitter. It automatically replays. But, yeah, he's a member, too. That was that was just a little video he shot at home. They didn't do the whole intro like they did for Elkie. I guess that uh, <laughs> much higher production value for Elkie than for uh, Boris Becker. But but they've both been signed. As, they were both on PokerStars before. So GG Poker, in a lot of ways, is trying to become the new PokerStars. They are trying to be more about uh, pure poker. They're trying to have innovative features and good software. They're trying to appeal to players, both amateur and pro. They're trying to sign uh, pros to represent the brand. Same ones that were representing poker stars. I mean, a lot of similarities. It, it really seems like someone at GG is like, okay, let's go back and do what we feel poker stars did right before Maya got involved. And we think we can beat them. And they are doing well. They're doing even better because of the, the coronavirus. But even before the coronavirus, they were rapidly growing. They kind of came out of nowhere to just uh, blow everything away that was below them. And uh, they are right around uh, tied for the third biggest network right now. They, they've actually uh, grown... Bigger than party, slightly, which is pretty impressive. Poker Star is still the biggest. The IDN Poker Network is second, and uh, Winamax, which is a, a French site only, is third. But that's uh, if you take that away, because that's only for France. It's uh, GG Poker is is third by themselves. So GG Poker and Winamax are about the same size, but Winamax is France, is France only. So if, if you take away the this France only Winamax, then the GG Poker is the clear uh, third place and uh, a little bit behind them is Party. So that's pretty good. That is pretty good there. They have more traffic still than any of the US-based sites. So and By a good margin. Like they're like twice the size of ACR. As far as activity. 
So that's uh, as far as cash games go. Overall uh, number of players online, they they have a ton of people online for whatever reason. Maybe more playing tournaments than cash. For some, it's showing that almost thirty thousand online, but only never more than four thousand in cash games. That's kind of weird. I don't know. I'd have to see. Maybe, maybe tournaments go there a lot more than cash does. They're still smaller than Poker Stars for sure. But they're growing. They're they're doing well, and people like them. There are some criticisms. Their bum hunting policy is pretty obnoxious, where they ban winning players who want to only play when fish are at the table. That's a pretty bad policy. But uh, so far, they're pretty well like the GG Network. So we'll see where that goes. Well, that's it. I see where the show goes. It's going to go into the archives after I'm done doing some uh, editing, uh, some things that happened here. And and then we're going to be done. And we'll probably come back uh, next Saturday, as we have been doing the last several weeks. I hope everybody here stays healthy and does not get uh, the coronavirus. If you do get the coronavirus, I hope that you have an Elkie experience and uh, don't get symptoms. If any of you had the coronavirus and would like to talk about it on here, you're welcome to come on the show and tell us about your experience. I think that would be an interesting thing for people to hear. I know there are some listeners who have had it. So if you'd like to talk about that, you are welcome to come on. and Just let me know beforehand and we can arrange a segment for you. If you're looking to play online poker, I still recommend you stay away from the private rooms. There's too many ways you can get screwed, colluded against, just outright cheated. I, I would just stay away. I've been tempted, too, to join them. But I don't believe I will. The only reason I would be tempted to join it is because, you know, there's not that many Limit Hold'em or 08 games running online on something like ACR or uh, Bovada. So, if you want to play those, you do for the most part have to pick one of these uh, private sites, but it's just not worth it to me. I bet the games are even better, but I just, I'm just so afraid I will do it and regret it. So I'm telling you that too. It's your money, you can do what you want. I'm not guaranteeing you'll be cheated, but there's a better chance you'll be cheated there than you will be on Bovada or ACR. And I think it's going to be a while till live poker comes back. I really do. It's going to be a while till I play it, for sure. Okay, so I hope you're enjoying the long shows. And uh, I will just keep doing them as long as there's stuff to talk about. Thank you to Sheets. Thank you to Robbie Straczynski. Thank you to Trader Ruski for co-hosting for as long as you could. And we will be back next week. First week of May... Hopefully we have some better coronavirus news by then. That is all. Stay safe, everybody, and shalom.